Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let's go to Austin, Central Texas, where Julie Oliver is standing by. She is the Democratic Party's nominee for Texas's 25th congressional district. She won the Democratic primary on Super Tuesday. The general election is November 3rd, 2020. Julie Oliver is endorsed by Howie Klein which means we want her to win. Welcome, Julie Oliver. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I mean, it was, we met, like, I think yesterday or right. a couple of days ago, and we're, here we are. This, I love it. Quick yes. friendship. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, any friend of Howie Klein's is a friend of our shows, and we'll tell people how to donate money. If you're an American citizen, you can go to uh, Julie's website and donate money. It's julieoliver.org. And if you're an American citizen, you can give her money. Are you taking corporate? You you don't take corporate money. You're not allowed, right? You can't take corporate money as a candidate anyway, but I don't even take PAC money. I mean, I have restricted my funding sources to human beings. Mm. So it has to be a human being who is either contributing on Act Blue or writing the check or when we pass the hat, dropping in, you know, a $5 bill. Right. You're running against Roger Williams, uh, Congressman Roger Williams. He's entrenched in the Texas establishment. He's a friend of Nolan Ryan's. He's a friend of George W. Bush's. He was on Senator John Cornyn's finance committee. I think at one time he was the chairman of Senator John Cornyn's finance committee. He uh, was secretary of state under Governor Rick Perry. This guy is deeply, deeply entrenched. You're up against the worst of the worst. I agree. Uh, a little background on this district. This is how entrenched he is and, and what a, an operative he is for the established uh, Republican Party. He was Secretary of State, as you mentioned, under Rick Perry, but he wanted to be a congressman. Secretary of State is not a position that we vote for here in Texas. It's an appointed position. And he wanted to be a congressman. He did not want to primary uh the current congresswoman where he lives, he lives in Congressional District 12. So he had this district drawn from for him in 2011 when the state house was meeting. And he got himself a, a jalapeno-shaped uh, district in the heart of Texas. Okay. He uh, says he has a simple platform, lower taxes, less government, cut the spending, defend the borders, listen to your generals, and understand the Tenth Amendment. So let's go through this. Lower, lowering taxes. Is that a sustainable platform for any party, given what we're up against? I would say, you know, for, for future listeners, and I say future like anybody who's not gonna, who's listening in a year or two years or beyond, 
to this podcast, we're going through a global pandemic right now, and we are seeing very in a very real um, way what having low pro- low taxes is doing for our country. We were unprepared for this pandemic. We have we are woefully unprepared in Texas. Talk about Texas. We are not quite the last state in testing per capita, but near the bottom. I think we're 48th now. We have tested less than one percent of the population in Texas for coronavirus. And so, you know, when you want to prevent a pandemic from sweeping through your country and devastating not only the health and lives of the people who live there, but also the economy, you need to have a tax base uh, so that you can fund programs to <laughs> to right. deal with a global pandemic. Governor Abbott is a Republican. What kind of lockdown has he ordered? His lockdown has been the most inconvenient incoherent lockdown. He refuses to use the word stay at home because he's the way he put it, he's like, people will take that literally and not go to the grocery store. So he, well, this is what Republicans do. They insult the intelligence of their constituents. And, well, and he, you know, okay, go ahead. I was going to say that they, they may not have any intelligence to insult, but go ahead. <laughs> well, he, so he didn't want to use the word stay at home. He is on a limit. He issued an executive order, I think, over this past weekend uh, with opening, he says, opening up Texas in the limited fashion. It's still sheltering in place. We are still under sheltering in place orders. But he has opened up our state parks. Um, he's opened up some of the elective surgeries. Um, are he, you seeing an influx of coronavirus patients into your hospitals right now? Well, you know, I will say, absolutely, you know, we, we are definitely seeing an influx of, we're, we haven't hit our peak. Um, we are scheduled to hit our peak in about, I think, two more weeks in mm-hmm. Texas. So, but we do have a number, uh, thousands of people with corona who have, ha- have pov- positive confirmations of coronavirus. Right. If you can imagine in Austin, we are a, a college heavy town. So, um, a lot of young people here, um, the population in Travis County, with who are the largest population of coronavirus um, positive confirmations, are people who are in the age group of 20 to 29. And they, they've done studies that college age and young 20s, about 50% of them are asymptomatic carriers of coronavirus. And you're not going to get tested if you don't have symptoms and you've not been exposed to somebody who had a positive confirmation of coronavirus. You will not get testing here in Texas. So is it open? Are the universities open or do they close them down? Um, at least local leadership is, is exercising a little more jurisprudence and wisdom and keeping everything safely shut down. UT is shut down for the rest of the semester. I think their, their summer classes have gone to on, all online classes. Schools in Texas have been shut down for the remainder of the semester. Um, and, and obviously, mayors and county judges have a tremendous amount of discretion in what reopens. And at least we're seeing here in Travis County and Dallas County and Harris County some, some smart leadership and, and keeping their localities on a sheltering in place. And in fact, in Travis County, if you go out now, you have to wear a face mask, which is right. appropriate. Right. I'm just spitballing here, and nobody should be spitballing during a pandemic. But if half the kids <laughs> in Texas are carrying the virus, it may not be the worst idea to go with herd immunity and keep them on campus. <laughs> 
Well, we want to, um, unfortunately, those kids go, go to places like visiting their grandparents and, and their parents. And, and we just want to make sure that, you know, the, the, what I call the silent walkers, the folks who are asymptomatic, but definitely have coronavirus and it is highly contagious. Yeah. I'm just wondering <laughs> if they should be going. I just wonder if we're doing a disservice to their parents by making them live with the, the carriers yeah. of this virus. Right. Well, it's, um, and it's only 50% of those who, uh, 50% of those who have coronavirus in that age group ex- experience no symptoms. Right. Lowering so, taxes. Based on our testing here, because obviously we're not testing for it in Texas, but that's based on, I think, the World Health Organization's, right. um, with the, the data they're gathering. The Republicans, they, they have a, an amazing game that they play. They call for lowering taxes and they elect, they always get these presidents who crash the economy, who keep lowering taxes, and then this money is supposed to magically appear to bail out these Republicans. And they still won't raise taxes. This current bailout, did they do anything right? Is there anything you can point to in this $2 trillion bailout that they got right? There were some things, I think, that were um, pushed by Democratic leadership that that definitely helped. Um, I know Democratic leadership actually was on the ball about three weeks earlier than Senate leadership. And Senate, the Senate side of things took about three weeks to come up with, hey, how can we uh, raid the coffers just a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think having a stimulus payment, although most people have not received their stimulus payment yet, nope. and it would have been nice if it had been a monthly stimulus payment, I think the, hosp- the fact that hospitals did get some level of funding to deal with this, and we actually are seeing that even in Travis County, we have a federally qualified healthcare center here that has many locations, and they're going to get, I think, about... Three and a half million dollars to to help combat um, coronavirus or, or at least treat patients who have coronavirus. So there were some things that were were positive. I do think that there was not nearly enough money in the small business administration proposal to keep small businesses afloat. And obviously, you saw after but within two weeks the money ran out, and we had uh, corporations like Ruth's Chris applied for small business administration assistance and they received it and received millions of dollars. Shake Shack. A lot of restaurants and hotels are getting this money. And I don't think that was the idea behind it. I think the idea behind it was really to help the local restaurants here or the, the local print shops or, um, you know, even hair salons, nail salons, like, Hey, we want to, we want to help you get through this. Um, you know, we even had, I know this is going to sound crazy, but we had a really beloved video store in Austin called Vulcan Video. It's been here for years and years and years and years. And we would go every once in a while and actually go rent. It's no longer, um, they do have VHS tapes, but we don't have any way to play mm-hmm. VHS. But we still have a way to uh, play DVDs at our house. And my youngest daughter loves going to Vulcan Video and actually perusing the aisles of Imagine videos. Imagine that, yeah. Yeah, picking something out. Yeah. And it went under. It's gone. It's gone now because they weren't able to get uh, the stimulus help that they need, and and they're gone. It didn't go far enough in stopping, you know, uh, or putting a moratorium on rental payments, credit payments, mortgage payments, interest payments. Um, so even though certain localities have maybe issued 
eviction moratoriums, the rent moratorium's not there. The rent is still accruing. And if you have folks who have lost their jobs, they're just right now not getting evicted. But that rent is still accruing along with late fees. And if you have a mortgage, your mortgage is still accruing along with late fees. If we truly want to be in this together, then we need to hold hands with, and banks need to hold hands with us and real estate firms need to hold hands with us. The, the, the people who are hurt most by this and say, you know what? We're going to forego those payments. Um, we have we, banks now garnishing. If you get $1,200 deposited into your account and you owe the bank money for fees, they take that first. Debt collectors are getting their hands on these stimulus checks. Yeah. So it's it's so absurd to say, you know, and, and this is something that my challenger does all the time. And with every tweet, he does a hashtag in it together. And I want to be like, well, no, we're not in this together. I'm sure you got your bailout money. He has a he has an auto dealership in North Texas that he I'm inherited sure he, from his father. That he inherited from his father, and he sits on the uh, financial services committee. I'm sure he was the first in line to get his application approved by banks. Um, and I'm sure he's doing just fine. I'm sure his dealership is doing just fine. Maybe his employees aren't, but I'm sure he's fine. I'm sure he's been made whole. Um, but we're not in this together. I mean, I have a daughter who uh, is a nurse. She, well, she's actually a nurse anesthetist, so they're the nurses that intubate patients who can't breathe. Hmm. And she she works um, and is, is experiencing, just like every hospital in Texas is experiencing, a shortage in PPE. And, you know... No, we're not in this together. Your daughter's not the one who's intubating a, a COVID-19 patient. It's my daughter. Right. And, and, you know, I can't tell you how many nurses and pediatricians um, and other doctors are talking about, like, look, our supply of PPE. And, and I'm not, I kid you not, the first week, it was March 16th, we started making wealth check calls on folks in our district just to see how they were doing. I called a doctor. And I knew things were really, really bad. This was probably March 16th or 17th. And he said, Julie, we have 20 masks left in my office because if I don't have masks in my office, I can't see patients because I can't expose my staff to folks who come into my office um, who might have coronavirus or worse. I mean, I mean, not that there's much worse, but there, you know, some people don't are anti-vaxxers and um, her carrying around some really old bugs that should have been eradicated uh, uh, decades ago. Well, since your daughter is a respiratory nurse, uh, this is, just throwing this out here, because I've been reading about the masks and the, the gowns. The protocol is to throw the gown out after each patient and mm-hmm. to throw the masks out, I think, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they can't. I, I hate to sound like a insensitive and I hate to sound like a Republican, but it did occur to me, you know, we're suffering from climate change because of the way we consume. And I thought, why are these gowns thrown out after each patient? Why are the masks, when they can be washed, thrown out so often? I think we need to reevaluate the idea of just throwing this stuff out all the time for future pandemics. And they've also discovered that uh, the the respirators uh, that we think we need uh they're they're finding that there's some simple solutions like turning the patient over have you heard about this i have not yeah that again i'm not trivializing the shortage of respirators in this country 
But a lot of ICUs have discovered that if you make the patients prone, you put them on their stomach, mm-hmm. it cleans out the lungs. It makes it easier for them to breathe. They're finding that they don't necessarily need the respirators, that sometimes you can use uh, a sleep apnea machine. I'm not saying that this response has been even close to stellar, but it does it does show the waste in our healthcare system. The idea that you need these twenty five thousand dollar respirators when again, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. When you you can do these things for a lot cheaper and that respirators sometimes your daughter would probably be able to tell you this, sometimes respirators uh are more dangerous. So yeah. you know, but uh, I think that with this, but there, I'm, what I'm saying is there's a lot of waste in is. these hospitals. That I, I think that what we're seeing in the, even in this crisis is that, you know, there are a lot of things that we can try. I think there have, because we've had a shortage of PPE, there have been companies who have sprung up that said we will, we'll sterilize the PPE for reuse. Which, right. And so why aren't we doing that? But even before the pandemic, we should be thinking that way in the future because it's better for the planet. Why are we throwing all this stuff out? The waste. Yeah, I agree. I think that there is, you know, the ability to try everything, you know, or see what works and what doesn't work. We're having to do that. We're forced to do that because there wasn't this national response. And they're clearly whatever is happening with the national stockpile. and, And I don't. I don't know, and I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but I do know several states have had major shipments of PPE ordered only to have it seized by the federal government, and we don't know where it's gone. But we do know that some Republican fundraiser quit fundraising, and he's now suddenly in the PPE business. Hmm. So uh, I'm not saying that that's what's happening, but I'm not saying it's outside the realm of possibility either. Yeah. I mean, greed um, re- greed runs our healthcare system. There, you know, the CDC under Barack Obama was planning for this type of pandemic, and they gave a government contract to a California respirator company to make low-cost, portable respirators that were something like $2,500 East yeah. each. And then the company got bought out by a bigger company that makes more expensive respirators, and they canceled that contract because they didn't want to be selling $2,500 respirators. So they and they canceled the government contract and were forced to buy twenty five thousand dollar respirators. And because there's a shortage, some states are paying fifty thousand dollars for these respirators. So we have to reevaluate our health care system in this in this country. That's not too unfamiliar with what happens in the pharmaceutical world. I mean, the pharmaceutical right. world, you could have a small uh, pharmaceutical supplier that actually makes a, a, an effective drug for a low cost get bought up by a larger pharmaceutical company that just does away with it or adds um, some sort of, you know, 
new plastic coating to the outside of a pill and it suddenly went and I, I actually had somebody call me the other day because she suffers from migraines there's only one medication that works for her um, with when it comes to migraines and she's been on it for over 10 years right. and in this last year she saw what used to be I think $45 a month was what she was out of pocket for her migraine medication so it has gone up to at times at times it's been as high as 6000 a month Mm-hmm. She does apply for assistance, um, and, and I think now can get it. She goes, but I never know till I show up at the pharmacy how much it's going to be. And it's, I think now it's like twelve hundred a month. But something that was forty five dollars a month a year ago has gone up to a, an average of twelve hundred dollars a month. But she's had as high as six thousand dollars a month, and that's all because of consolidation within the pharmaceutical industry. And the Republicans will say, you know, we need these animal spirits. We need competition. It's much more efficient than government. You're running against Roger Williams. He's saying, cut the spending, get government off our back. Well, look at our health care system during this pandemic. They're, they're coming hat in hand. The hospitals are getting hundreds of billions of dollars. They're, they're getting bailed out because... The alleged free market, and I don't believe there's any such thing as a free market, yeah. it it can't handle epidemics, pandemics. No. It's not. Well, that, I, here's what I, I would love to debate Roger Williams on free markets, because free markets don't work when there's not real competition. And very rarely in the healthcare world do you actually have real competition. I am not, as a patient, in a competitive position to a hospital if I need heart surgery to say, you know what, I can pay you $1,000 for a $250,000 surgery. Will you take that? Right. No, they're going to say no. Go find the next hospital. Um, I'm grateful for Imtala, which requires hospitals to stabilize patients in an, in an emergent condition. What, what is it? What, grateful for what? Imtala, it's a federal, uh, the Emergency Medical Treatment Act that requires any emergency room. Um, like if you come into a hospital through its emergency room and you are in an emergent state, let's say cardiac arrest, they have to stabilize you. They cannot just let you, they can't push you out the door and let you die. But they also bill you. They also bill you. Yes, they do. And, um, where do you stand on Medicare for all? I would assume you're right. I'm a, I'm definitely an advocate for Medicare for all. I think it's the, um, in my mind, if you want to really increase our health outcomes, and you know, as, as the United States, one of the richest nations in the world, our health, health outcomes are pitiful compared to other developed nations. Mm-hmm. And you actually want to bend the cost curve. Medicare for all is the solution. Right. It can be both. We're seeing COVID-19 roll through the jails, the prisons, the concentration camps along the border. What are your thoughts on mass incarceration, private prisons, locking up all these people? So I would love to see an end to federal contracts with private prisons. I would love to see an end to state contracts with private prisons. But what my jurisdiction would be was it would be at the federal level. So ending federal contracts with um, private prison companies, um, primarily because they they are incentivized to keep people in. Mm-hmm. They are paid per head. And if they have empty beds, they are not paid. So the fact of the matter is there's no rehabilitative element for folks who w- would be in the uh, criminal justice system for something they've done that's, you know, um, been in violation of the law. With respect to putting kids and moms and dads in cages at our borders and, uh, like, 
to your point, in concentration camps, because that's essentially what they are, um, we need a major overhaul of our of our immigration laws. And, you know, for folks seeking legal asylum, and it is still, it is lawful to seek asylum in the United States. Um, we need to have more immig- immigration judges who can hear the cases. We need to allow unaccompanied minors to go stay with family members here or say, be in safe spaces. A safe space is not, um, you know, C- uh, CPB. It's not. What's CPB? Customs and uh, CBP, sorry, Customs and Border Patrol. Right, right. You know, it's that's not a safe space for a child to be. Obviously, they're not equipped. They're not, they're not. um, That story has disappeared. It has. And it's. it's But it's still going on and getting worse. Yes. It's it's going on behind the scenes. And and yeah, because Trump creates, uh, you know, a national news frenzy, you know, every 30 minutes of every day. The things that really need to get covered, like the fact that we are still uh, caging children, that we are still not housing children um, when they come here unaccompanied, that they are indefinitely in our system in violation of, of court orders, federal court orders. Um, there's just there's no way to keep up with it. Yet I have such a I, I'm so um, dismayed that they'll cover these nonsensical, uh, you know, rallies or whatever you want to call them that that went on over the past weekend and last week um, with respect to sheltering in place orders that that governors have issued. I mean, they'll cover the fringe groups in these tiny little protests, but they're not covering the things that that matter in people's lives. And I will tell you. Wow. Well, well said. Well, pisses me off. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 These fringe groups who are astroturf, they're they're fueled by the DeVos family, some crazy gun nuts who are trying to just play the system to make money. People aren't against sheltering in place. This is a no. fake story. What's and you just what you just said. What's really going on is what's on the border. These concentration camps and the effing media doesn't want to cover that because it's depressing. And it's pretty. What we're living through with Trump is pretty darn depressing. I mean his his daily. I mean his daily. Sh- shit shows um, are, yeah. are pretty depressing, but they fall for it. You know, it's just like they can't get enough of it. They're, it's like they're an addict and they cannot get enough of the Trump drug. Yeah, and, they, and, and you know, the war, the war in Iraq continued way past our interest in it. The war right. in Afghanistan still going on. We still have soldiers in Afghanistan way past our interest in it. They move on to the next story and we think the problem is solved about once a year, we, you know, Rachel Maddow discovers the detention camps along the border as though, you know, they came out of nowhere. And that mm-hmm. goes on for a week and everybody cries. And then they get bored with that and they move on. It's like a toy. Like these stories are toys that you give your kids on Christmas and the press gets bored with them. I want a yeah. new toy. I, I don't want to play with this toy anymore. It is infuriating that they would cover these fringe groups. They give more time to the fringe groups than they do to ICE and yeah. the Department of Homeland Security. It's they're giving they're giving, you know, oxygen to fringe groups that don't represent America on any level, yet they're not discussing the the real atrocities that are being committed by our government on a daily basis. 
And I went as recently, oh my gosh, maybe two or three weeks before, I guess it was February, I went down to Matamoros, um, you know, because they've created refugee camps on the other side of the border because Trump, um, you know, the stay in, the stay in Mexico orders are, um, <laughs> which are just really, it's horrible. Well, they're death sentences for many. They are. They're death sentences for many. 85% of the folks in in the camps, the refugee camps, are women and children. 50% are children, so 35% are women. Um, And that leaves 15% men. I mean, it's not like, and we asked, you know, some of the the, the folks down there, what would you want to, what do you want Americans to know about who you are? And they're like, we're business owners, we're farmers, we're family, we're families. And we aren't what your president says we are. Right. It was heartbreaking. It was just, it, I mean, I was moved to tears several times walking through the camp. And I want people to know there's a group called Witness Tornillo. It's not just Tornillo anymore, although I went to Tornillo in June of 2018 when they erected the first tent city in Texas Um, I went with uh, when Beto O'Rourke held uh, a protest there. And so a group came out of that called Witness Tornillo that they constantly wanted to have it in in the social media feed that we're still doing this. Well, it's grown, obviously, from Tornillo because Tornillo has since shut down, but to other facilities. And they are that's what their purpose is. It's like we need to show because the media is not showing that this is still happening. We want to show that it's still happening. I I hate to trivialize this, but. Has anybody thought of handing these people crosses? Because they're all Christians. They're all Catholics. They're not, I mean, to, to, to shame the Republicans to have these people at our border carrying large crosses. Has anybody thought of doing that? I don't know, but I'll talk to one of their organizers, and I bet she would think that's a good idea. I mean, I'd, I'd like to see the media cover these people. I'd like to see that caravan that's invading us. Right. Holding crosses and right. uh, shame the Republicans. It's disgraceful. Well, Julie Oliver is running for Congress to unseat Roger Williams in the 25th Congressional District of Texas. Congratulations on winning the primary that must have uh, made you feel good. Uh, it wasn't a good day for most people. It was Super Tuesday. It was a bad day for Bernie supporters. I would assume you're a Bernie supporter. Yeah, I was. I was disappointed. Obviously, I said this from the beginning. I was going to support whoever was top of ticket. But I absolutely loved Bernie. I loved that um, the things that we, that not we, because I didn't consider him fringe, but the things that a lot of people considered fringe ideas four months ago are not, they don't sound so crazy now, like paid sick days and universal health care and, um, you know, pay, n- suspending uh, all student loans and, you know, basically canceling student debt doesn't sound so crazy anymore. Universal basic income. You know, it, we're, sound, we're, it sounds crazy to Joe Biden. It sounds crazy to these establishment Democrats. It sure sounds crazy to Barack Obama, who wouldn't even let the the Democrats vote. He put his hand on the scale for Biden. The the backroom politics. Uh, we, and that's why we got to go smash the smash the patriarchy. That's my. I don't really have a campaign slogan other than smash the patriarchy. It came out in 2018 when we did a rock and roll show fundraiser, and it looked really cool on a t-shirt but it really is and and there are some men who get upset that that's 
our slogan, but really the patriarchy affects men just as, it, as much as it does in women. And if you don't believe me, look at family law, where moms are given almost exclusive rights and dads have none. So the patriarchy, and it was not female judges who uh, created family law. Um, so the patriarchy affects men just as much as it does women. But when I think of anything that is establishment, and whether it's establishment democratic politics or establishment Republican politics, whatever you call it, let's smash it. It, it, it does nobody a service. Um, you know, we, we are lucky if we can tread water in place. But the reality is you get somebody like a Trump uh, who can just basically – throw a tidal wave over your treading water in place, and then you can't, you can't do anything about it. So you have to have um, ideas that you have to have big aspirational ideas right. and they're not outside the realm of possibility of actually enacting and had, putting right. Had, had Barack Obama not put his hand on the scale, had he not put his thumb on the scale and convinced, I mean, it's, Unbelievable that Mayor Pete dropped out before Super Tuesday. That, that's just unbelievable. It and, was. It was not believable. I agree. So, you know, these backroom deals, had everybody stayed in the race, where would Bernie be now? Well, honestly, I think Bernie probably would have gotten the delegates he needed to be talking ticket yeah. yeah to win um, and we never got the debate we deserved we, we never, never got well, the debate we deserved we got well, a, a little yeah. of a debate between bernie and biden on cnn during yeah. the lockdown but and well, I, you know i guess biden did okay but we didn't really get the debate that we needed so the reality is when there were more candidates on stage biden did not perform so well no he didn't in any of the debates Prior to Super Tuesday, he did not do well. Um, and it, it's just, it's it, if nothing else, it's a statement on the fact that politics as usual is still politics as usual. And we have to get people in elected who don't view politics as usual as, hey, let's let's cut these backroom deals and let's, you know, I, you know I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. No, the reality is... If we're elected to do something, it's nothing more than a, a glorified customer service role. We need to be serving the people that are in our districts yeah. and letting them choose. And we should never feel safe or comfortable that, oh, I got this in the bag just because my name has a D next to it or an, or an R next to it. Or, you know, I'm, I was the vice president under uh, President Obama. Yeah. You know, let people choose. You were homeless when you were a teenager. I was. And you were I, on Medicaid? I was. What, I was. what state? Texas. <laughs> Texas. It was, I, my Medicaid benefits ran out on my 18th birthday. Hmm. Um, and it was truly almost coincidental because, one, um, I had my daughter May 24th, and my birthday is July 25th. And in Texas, you only get Medicaid benefits as a pregnant woman for up to 60 days post-birth. So it was a coincidence that it was my 18th birthday and um, the 60-day run. But, yeah, it, a lot of people, especially in Texas, like, I want Medicaid recipients to work. Well, right. who do you want to work? The children, the elderly, the folks with disabilities, or pregnant moms? Because those are the only folks in Texas who qualify for Medicaid. Right, right. And you can't get an abortion in Texas. Well. Not right now. You can't. Pretty impossible, right? It is impossible. It is impossible. Um, the Especially governor, now during the pandemic. 
Yeah. He's the governor is considering that elective. Um, and so women cannot make a choice about their own bodily autonomy with their health care provider. Um, not in Texas, you can't. And I mean, we're not alone. There are other states that are doing the exact same thing. But it, it's a way to, again, it's just a way to control women. And um, it's been happening for hundreds of years. And I suspect until we have women are on parity with men uh, on an elected basis, we're not going to see much change or much movement of that needle. Yeah, you would think of 435 Congress people, one of them would have experienced homelessness. I doubt anybody serving in Congress has ever lived on the streets. The only person I know is Senator Cinema uh, in Arizona. Okay. He grew up home. Her mom and her family were homeless for, I think, three years. And they lived in an abandoned gas station. And I yet, and yet she's a blue dog. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. To be continued, Julie Oliver is running for Texas's 25th congressional district. Did I get that right? Yes, it's District 25. <laughs> she is in favor of Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented, an end to mass incarceration, and for a more just and equitable economy. She's supported by Howie Klein. If you're an American citizen, go to julieoliver.org. Give her money. Thank you, Julie, for oh, taking time to be with us. Can you stay on the line for one quick second? I can. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Milwaukee, Oregon, where Mark Gamba is standing by. He is the mayor of Milwaukee, Oregon, and he is running for election to the U.S. House of Representatives to represent Oregon's 5th Congressional District. The Democratic primary is May 19th, 2020. Welcome, Mayor Mark Gamba. Thank you. It's great to be back. Yes, it's great to have you back. Howie Klein is endorsing Mayor Mark Gamba for Congress. So if you would like to help out a little later on, we'll tell you how to go to markgamba.com and donate money. And if you live in the United States and you're an American citizen, you can uh, you can donate money to the mayor. And you're not a corporation. And if you're not a corporation. I'm not taking money from corporations. You're not taking money from corporations. Of the candidates, let me ask you the tough question. You you got endorsed by Howie Klein. Of the presidential candidates, who did you like the most? I was leaning towards Bernie. Not leaning. I had endorsed Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, still think of all the people that were on that stage in the first debate, uh, Bernie has the best ideas, is has been the most consistent with his way of thinking, um, and is has really, truly thought through all of the issues that are facing America. And I believe he had not only the the knowledge and, and, and the right ideas, but he has an ability to inspire people that a lot of those folks just don't have. 
Um, so I'm kind of disappointed in where we're at right now. Do you feel um, the you feel the Democratic Party, the voters were cheated of a real debate between Bernie and Biden? Yes, I, I not only feel that, but more importantly, and this is not directed at you, but uh, sort of the big media um, folks. I, I feel like between the Democratic Party and the mainstream media, which let's all recognize that they are one percenters, one and all, and they work for one percenters, and they're funded by one percenters, and their ad dollars come from one percenters. Um, they were terrified of Bernie Sanders. So they spent a lot of time either ignoring him or when they did have to mention him for some reason, they would make sure and and sneeringly say the socialist or uh, all the little cues that they give uh, to the the average viewer that's not really clued in. Um, why were they so the, threatened? Why was the Democratic establishment so threatened by Bernie? You know, a lot of people have said this, so this is not m- me saying something clever and new, but um, the, the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans is slim. Uh, when you're talking about the 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 parties themselves and the, the movers and shakers within the parties. And, and the reality is the status quo politicians in America um, are run by and part of the wealthy 1%. And, the, and their consultants, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and so anything that threatens the profits of those people, anything that threatens to tax those people um, is scary to them and they will immediately push back. It's why they were pushing mainstream people all along. I mean, there was no reason in the world that Buttigieg got all the juice he got early on. And he's a, he's a brilliant man. I'm not taking yeah. anything away from Pete Buttigieg. He's a brilliant man. Uh, I'm sure he's a great mayor. Um, yeah. A pretty good mayor. I don't think the African-American community would tell you that. That's true. I have heard some things along those lines. But go ahead. I'm sorry. In any case, he got a lot of juice early on. And apparently they at some point decided they couldn't make that fly. So they fell back on Joe. Um, You know, I do a radio show with Ralph Nader, and he always talks about the consultant class, that they worm their way into the political system and bully the candidates as a candidate for Congress and as the mayor of Milwaukee, Oregon, are you coming up against the consultant class and what's in it for the consultant class? Why are they so powerful within the Democratic Party? It's back. It's back to money. It's always the answer, right? Um, the the consultants, if you, if you take your average political consultant, the way they make their money is on media buys. That is that is where their bread and butter comes from. So you want big media buys, so you want a lot of money flowing through the campaign, so you want people that are popular with big money. I mean, it, it all, it, it, it just follows through. I was saved from that class because uh, the DCCC did me a giant favor <laughs> at the beginning of when I ran by issuing an edict that anybody who worked for uh, somebody running against an incumbent Democrat would never work for the Democratic Party ever in their lives again. Right. So I lost. I had uh, actually a consultant lined up. I had 
uh, several staffers lined up and they all evaporated when after the edict was issued, which has made it hard on our campaign. But I've got some great. This young is Cherry Busta, who's head, I believe, of the DCCC. Yeah. And she said, if any consultants work for candidates who are not supported by the DCCC, they will never work for the DCCC. Boy, that sure seems like restraint of trade. I mean, that's almost a lawsuit waiting to happen. But people fell in line with the DCCC and they walked away from you. They would pressure you into making these ad buys because they get a percentage of those ad buys. So they'll say to you as a candidate, you need to be on television all the time and we need to buy ads. We don't need to get you on the news. We need to buy time during the news because that's how they make money. They're not going to pick up the phone and call the news director of a local television station and say, you need to interview Mark Gamba because they don't make money that way. What they need to do, they get on the phone and buy time. Well, the really good consultants, to be fair, the really good consultants would do both, right? They they would be working to get you earned media as well as paid media. Okay. Um, but yes, as a class, as a as a way of functioning, what you said is is more or less true. But I mean, I do know I, I have I do know a couple of consultants here in Oregon who who are not that who are very much about the cause and very much about getting good people elected. Um, now, Mark, do you have bipartisan consultants? Is do you have a like Dick Morris who helped Clinton triangulate in 1996? He worked both sides of the aisle. Has it changed? Are the consultants now lined up with specific parties? I don't know all of the consultants that well to be able to answer that question. The couple that I have relationships with don't ever work for Republicans. Right. They work on, uh, they work on causes. They work on, um, you know, ballot measures or whatever. And then they work on, uh, for candidates, but mm-hmm. always, always democratic candidates, not necessarily progressive democratic candidates. Right. <laughs> I mean, the one, the one does, but the other one, uh, it's, you know, whichever democratic candidate has the funding to be able to afford them. Okay. So let's turn to the pandemic and how it's affecting Milwaukee, Oregon. We first heard of COVID-19 coming out of Washington state. A lot of people died, nursing homes, and Governor Inslee seems to have done a pretty good job of flattening the curve. What did you guys do in Oregon? You're right next door to Washington. What, how soon did you become aware of this and what what did you do? Well, I personally was watching it when it started to become a thing in Wuhan and um, assumed, unfortunately, I, I got to quit assuming that the federal government is doing what they're supposed to be doing. I assumed that somebody at the federal level was prepping, right? They were reaching out to manufacturers and saying, we need to start ramping up the production of PPE, ramping up the production of ventilators. We need to get these distributed out to hospitals, blah, blah, blah. Clearly, they weren't doing that. They weren't preparing tests. They weren't doing anything. And they turned down the WHO's tests when it was offered and then made one that didn't work. Uh, in Oregon, because we were... You're talking about the, C- the CDC made yeah. a test and we're discovering that sloppy lab work caused it to be a complete failure. 
Right, after we turned down the one from the WHO. And do we know if the WHO, because Trump (laughs) claims the one from the WHO wasn't reliable. Well, I believe that's what the Koreans, South Koreans, were using. Okay. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure that's they manufactured their own, but I believe they used that test. Right. Um, I don't hold me to that, but that's that's my memory. No, no, I I trust you more than our president. So you were following (laughs) for some reason. I I know it's hard to believe. So you were following what was the big story in Wuhan before we were even aware of it here in the United States. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you would assume that people at the highest levels of government would have been doing that and preparing. They clearly weren't. Um, what we did as mayors here in Oregon, the, so the, the, there's a group called the Metro Mayors Consortium. It's 24, 25 of us. I forget what the current number is. Um, and we worked on a stay at home, uh, edict or however you want to call that, uh, and then asked the governor to issue it. it. It was, we knew that we were on thin ice, um, because of Oregon law. We were on thin ice, uh, legally to issue it ourselves. Uh, it was much better coming from the governor. Um, she was getting a lot of heat from the rural areas. Not is, is she a Republican? Who's your governor? No, no. Kate Brown's a Democrat. She's good. She's a good governor. Um, but she does, you know, she's the governor of a state that has both Democrats and Republicans. Um, you have, you have a state that has some right wing militias and people who almost sovereign nation people with guns. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They, 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 uh, they just before this, it was, it just seems a few months ago, they were starting up their uh, thing of trying to secede from the state again. Right. And don't you have, I believe, a member of the assembly who, in Oregon, who's a sovereign nation person who? Yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the state senators, I think he is, uh, right. from the east side of the mountains. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we put that together and, uh, had a meeting with, reached out to the governor and said, this is what we would like to do. She, the next day or two days later, um, went ahead and did it, not quite as strongly as we had worded it. Hers was a little more lenient. Um, she obviously was getting uh, good advice from the medical people uh, because Oregon flattened the curve really well. We we have done well, given that we are between two of the hotspots in the nation, um, we have had a relatively low infection rate and death rate. So we, we did pretty well. Now that said, um, you know, flattening the curve, all that means is you stretched it out longer. Mm-hmm. It means that you gave the hospitals an opportunity to get the ICU units up and running, to get, you know, new ventilators, to get PPE, to get all those things because flattening the curve doesn't mean none of those people are going to get sick. What it means is when they do get sick, they are more likely to get treatment because we're not having to pick and choose who's going to live and who's going to die because we don't have that many ventilators. Yeah, we're, uh, we're discovering, uh, thankfully, uh, well, actually not thankfully, a lot of emergency room physicians are wondering where all the 
cardiac patients are. We're all the people with gunshots and ulcers. They're not going to the ER because they're afraid of taxing the system or they're afraid of catching COVID-19. So we don't know how many people are dying from COVID-19, not because they had the infection, but because they left other illnesses untreated. Yeah. No, there's there's a lot. There's going to be a, a very interesting reckoning. But at the end of this, um, I'm I'm certain there have been a number of deaths at home, you know, by people who either didn't have insurance and they knew they couldn't afford the tests and knew they couldn't afford treatment, so they didn't go to the doctor or to the hospital in the first place, and they died at home, or because um, they weren't even sure they had it. You know, there's going to be there are going to be more deaths. But on the other hand, you know, I have a doctor that told me the other day, he thinks that every single death right now that someone is dying of any kind of respiratory disease, they're just chalking it up to COVID-19. And he said, and if you look at the flu death rates, they've plummeted. So what's that, right? Is that we're now calling deaths that would have formerly been called a flu death, a COVID death, so the numbers are going to cut both ways. And, I agree and with you. I'm glad you said that because you're the you're the mayor of Milwaukee. We'll get back to the reporting of the numbers in a second. But I do agree with you that everything now is COVID-19. You read an obituary in the New York Times. I saw a woman. I'm not making this up. A woman who died at the age of 105. And they said she died of COVID-19. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not... I'm not MAGA. I hate Donald Trump. But, you know, anyway, uh, what are the orders that you've issued in Milwaukee? So our, our orders are the same as the entire state of Oregon. We um, So we shut down City Hall. We shut down all of our city. We shut down our library. We did all that stuff before the governor issued her order. We, we were... Uh, we had our poor IT guys setting up home offices for all of our directors and all the staff that could possibly work from home. Schools are uh, shut down. Libraries are, schools shut, are down. shut down. When yeah, did you schools, shut down the schools? When did you shut down the libraries? The governor shut down the schools. God, now you're going to ask me to remember dates. It, it feels like forever ago. Yeah. Um, it was pretty early on. Like March 16th, March 14th around. I want to say 12th or 13th, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, so. and the hospitals in Milwaukee, are you being taxed? Are you seeing an influx of cases? There are an influx of cases. They are not more than they can handle currently. That's None great. of the hospitals that I'm aware of. Now, that said, uh, the hospitals very early on, again, by, at the urging of Governor Brown, uh, put a lot of work into, and, and actually the Multnomah County Commission, the County, Clackamas County Commission, the Washington County Commissioners were involved in this too. They, uh, had conversations with all of the hospitals in the Portland metro region and said, look, we need to come to an agreement where if one hospital is getting too many patients, we will just automatically take them to another hospital and we won't do this insurance game where, oh, you're not covered by that. You know, we'll make, just make sure that everybody's taken care of. Um, so they they have done, I mean, Oregon has done a great job, and I, I put that 99% in the hands of the governor and the, the county commissioners because in this state, public health uh, rides a lot with the counties, um, not with the cities. So uh, they've all done a phenomenal job. 
but we so we shut down our stuff before any of that happened because we saw it coming. Um, got our folks situated to work from home. Everybody that could, obviously our cops can't, obviously the guys working on the sewer pipes and the water pipes and all that stuff, they can't work from home. But we created systems where people are separated and we created teams that don't inter, uh, interrelate, I guess, so mm-hmm. that they're, we don't cross contaminate if somebody gets it. Um, we did, did you, do you have a paper. shortage of PPE and masks? You know, it's hard yes. to blame. It's hard to blame Trump for these shortages. There, it's worldwide. It is. So here's here's two things, and I will not blame Donald Trump solely for this. However, I think we should have been what he should have done. Okay, let me put it this way: Were I president of the United States when we saw this happening in Wuhan, I would have reached out and I would have said, "Okay, of all these things that we're going to need, clearly, what do we manufacture here in the states?" Let's get those things ramped up now. What things don't we manufacture in the States that we could manufacture in the States? Who has the capacity to manufacture these other things that we've, over the years, shipped off to China, which is insane. Well, I'm gonna, I want to get back to that. Yeah. Um, and let's get those underway so that we have a stockpile of that stuff. We Our, our stockpile, so we theoretically keep a national, national stockpile of a lot of that kind of stuff. For starters, what we had was out of date, and for seconds, we weren't. Our stockpile wasn't even up to snuff. It wasn't even up to the stand, their own standards that they've set. So we were as caught as flat-footed as you could possibly be. Now let's get back to that manufacturing thing because that's huge. Because it is more profitable for these big corporations to ship all the manufacturing for everything we make overseas to China, to Bangladesh, to wherever. We now are in a situation where even critical things that our country requires in a moment of emergency are being made by countries that some people consider enemies. Right. We have literally put our lives, our ability to function in the hands of our enemies. How stupid is that? We need to bring back a whole lot of manufacturing, but in particular and without doubt, the manufacturing of critical items in this nation. There, it is just utterly insane that we've allowed the relentless drive for more profits to do that. And how do you change that in Congress? Through the tax code? That seems to be the most efficient way to get these corporations to get in line with America. You could. You, I mean, you know... Again, to uh, I'm, I'm no fan of Donald Trump, uh, but you could use take a page out of his book and use tariffs and say, look, this is a critical item that we believe should be manufactured in this country. If you're going to have it manufactured in China, we're going to raise the tariffs on that to the point where it is more expensive for you to do it in China than it is to come back here and produce it in America. Right, right. The stimulus package, the Small Business Paycheck Protection Act. Yeah. This is just a boondoggle for yeah. millionaires, isn't it? 90% of it, yeah. So the, uh, the millionaires all got $1.7 million in, in uh, tax breaks. Uh, a whole bunch of money went to uh, the Fed to be able to turn into a whole lot more credit for a whole lot of of, of big corporations, everybody got, well, not everybody got their $1,200 check. Matter of fact, I, I did an informal poll the other day in one of my town halls, Zoom town halls, 
And out of the, what, 30 people on the call, I think four of them had gotten their money. Mm-hmm. So th- that's not even rolling out well. And $1,200, seriously, how many families in America can live on $1,200 a month? Yeah, Tell me about the Zoom town hall. I'm curious how that went and how is that some things we're not going back on some things. Is there an efficiency to a Zoom town hall? Are we, is it conceivable that one of the goods that will come out of this pandemic is politicians will have no excuse for not meeting with their constituents? There is that. Yes, absolutely. So it, it's, am I, if, if I am elected to Congress, I will absolutely utilize that um, when I cannot come back to Oregon. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I've always been a little bit uh, – I, I, I have always been very um, – Let's put it this way. On my business card, my mayoral business card is my personal cell phone number and my personal email. It goes to me. It doesn't go to some staffer right. and routes it to me. That's how I have functioned as a mayor. Um, that's how I intend to function as a congressman. That constituent said, services, by the way. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people don't realize this, but constituent services, when you call your congressman with a problem, they can fix it. I I have called several times uh, for, uh, for, for I've, I've advocated for several friends who were sick and they were on uh, Medicaid or Medi-Cal in California. And you'd be amazed. Uh, I called Congressman Schiff's office and they open doors. They make things happen. It's almost as though they're like a second mayor uh, of, of a town and constituent services is I don't think we take advantage enough of our Congress people. I then and I think the reason for that I think we used to and I think the reason for that is because so few of them today actually function that way. Um, I know my congressman does not. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. Some of the good ones do, and and so I, I intend to be very available to my constituents. Um, but I'm also conflicted about flying back, having the carbon footprint of flying back and forth from Washington, D.C. To, to Oregon. So I think Zoom does open up, right, a new opportunity. And I think it's a new tool in the toolbox for campaigns in large districts like this one. I mean, it takes, God, end to end. Uh, it's a six and a half hour drive, I think, end to end mm-hmm. in this district. Um, so I have to say, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I'm going to Howie Klein and I are doing a, a Zoom interview tonight. He's on my show once a week and we're doing our first Zoom conference where listeners can attend and ask questions with Howie Klein. I've done two office hours with my listeners every Friday night at 9 p.m. It was uh, transformative in many ways. I got to meet some of my listeners. We had some of the guests on. I know I couldn't sleep afterwards. I, it went on for three hours, and I thought, well, something good is coming from this pandemic. How bad is business now in Milwaukee? I mean, your tax base, how are you going to get through this fiscal year? So there's a double-edged sword in Oregon about that. Um, the for most cities, almost all cities in Oregon, counties in Oregon, the vast majority of our funding comes from property tax. It does not come from sales tax. We do not have a sales tax in Oregon. 
um, nine in 99 times out of 100, I will decry that as a problem. Uh, it, it leaves us with basically a one-legged stool. And the, and the property taxes are paid directly to the city. It's paid to the county, but it's apportioned. Our our portion of it then. Is How does that affect your schools? Badly. Um, Why? Because they are also only paid, or, or ninety used to be. So this is we've got some history here. Well, I guess the the question I'm leading to is, if you live in a wealthy neighborhood, if the schools are funded by property taxes, I'm going to assume that the schools are better funded than the schools that are in districts with like homes Milwaukee. that don't cost as much. Right. Um, and it, it, interestingly enough, that is true, although... Uh, it's, it's a little bit of a mystery as to why, because in theory, the apportionment for the schools goes back to the state, and in theory, the state doles out the same amount of money per student to every school. Really? Yep, that's the theory. In Oregon, that's how they do it. Yep. That's, yep. that's really interesting. But, you are absolutely right. The very best schools in Clackamas County are in the richest city, which is like Oswego. Now, Milwaukee has some pretty darn good schools, um, and and North Clackamas School District, which is wh- where Milwaukee is, has um, dramatically increased our high school graduation percentages, and all all the numbers are really up due to the fact that we had a uh, still still have he's retiring this year, but a, a really good administrator. Um, but uh, the schools lost a lot of taxes because there was something called Measures 5 and 50 passed back in 92, I think, uh, that was literally designed so that the timber companies did not have to pay as much property tax. Timber companies in Oregon are currently logging roughly as much wood out of the forest as they were in 1992, Hmm. and they're paying one-tenth of what they were in property taxes. That's what that bill did for them. But the way it was written was it controlled how much everybody's property taxes could go up. It could only go up 3% a year maximum, and that only on years where the cost of everything else rose more than 3%. Amazing. So Amazing. the cities in Oregon have been getting poorer and poorer and poorer, just like the schools, just like the counties, uh, since 1992. And it's a problem, and it's going to have to be fixed. So normally I would I, I whine about the fact that we don't have a sales tax. I think we can have a progressive sales tax that, that doesn't tax food, that doesn't tax drugs. You know, necessities aren't taxed, but you can tax luxuries, right? Um, however, in this particular instance, in this COVID moment, it's kind of a blessing because whether or not business is conducted in Milwaukee, it doesn't really affect our coffers much. Now, it does affect a lot of the businesses in Milwaukee. There are, I'm sure, businesses that are going to go out of business. We we did a grant program to, to, to get uh, $5,000 grants to all the small businesses that we could afford to. Um, we Obviously, that's not <laughs> all the small businesses in Milwaukee. Um, our coffers are not that deep, uh, but we did what we could, and we're, we're trying to help. We're, we did a, a whole thing, restaurants that you can go to in Milwaukee. Please go to your local restaurants and do takeout, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, when do you see 
When do you see the restaurants opening? When do you see the schools opening? Schools, I I don't know. Um, So there's a couple of things. In conversations I've been having with doctors um, and with the public health professionals, I've learned a couple of things. First of all, we have never in the history of humankind developed a vaccine for a COVID virus. This is not the first COVID virus that... Right, they couldn't come up with one for SARS or MERS. Or any of the other ones. But there wasn't really a market, I was told, for a vaccine for SARS and MERS. But you'd think you'd start developing one, right? If you're a pharmaceutical company and you go, well, this is not going to be the last time this happens. Okay. So it's a little hard. I've heard that it's harder than we think to get this vaccine. And it's going to take at least a year. At, at the very least, and there are some people that think it's not possible or, or it's a very long ways out. So what that means is that we are going to essentially have to go back to old school herd immunity, which is we slowly let people get this disease at a rate that the hospitals can handle, right? At a rate that we can save the lives of people when they get this disease, and eventually get enough people in the community that have had it that it doesn't spread. Now, if it's going to do what the flu virus does, which is to mutate every year and come back as a completely or a quite different uh, virus, that may or may not have a lot of effect. But um, they that, say if it mutates, it usually gets weaker. That's what. So, I, yeah. In any case, that I, I think it's going to be longer than we think it is. Even even if it's not as bad as I think it's going to be, you know, the, the point of flattening the curve was to push the peak further out, right, and to have the peak be lower. Well, so we've done that. So we haven't hit our peak yet. So that means we are not even halfway through. Mm-hmm. And that's people go, oh, we're at the peak. Yay, open things up. No, peak means you're right in the middle of it. It doesn't mean you're at the end. It means you are smack in the middle of it. You are at the highest point. You need to keep things tight until we tail off to where there's a far, far fewer people. Are you Um, getting resistance from your constituents to reopen? A little bit. Not uh, not the vocal kind of uh, AR-15 wearing resistance that you're seeing in, uh, where was it, Wisconsin or... Yeah, and then it turns out that most Americans, something like 70% of Americans favor the lockdown, that these protests have been ginned up by a few right-wing gun-toting crazies who find it, as usual, fi- there's a financial incentive in getting people to oppose these lockdowns. But most Americans want to stay indoors. Yeah. Well, most Americans believe in science. Most Americans right. understand climate change too. I mean, we, we, you know, for all for all the terrible news that's out there. That when I say that, I don't mean bad news. I mean bad news reporting, um, like Fox News, where they call into question the reality of climate change. Most Americans still do believe in science and do listen to experts. You have a jail in Milwaukee. Um, our jail system is run by Clackamas County, so it's not actually in in Milwaukee. It's uh, in Oregon City. Does it cooperate with ICE? 
Now, Oregon is a um, is a sanctuary state across the board. So, ICE, there's a presence, but they don't get any. They're here, uh, and they pull stunts. Like they um, they for a while were going to the Multnomah County Courthouse and grabbing people, uh, but they get a lot of pushback here in Oregon. Right. Yeah. And the jails, is it spreading, is the virus spreading through the jails? We're not seeing, uh, I know the governor is watching that very carefully, um, but we're not seeing it. Okay. Uh, not seeing the giant uh, uh, pockets like like some prisons have. Okay. We've been talking with Mark Gamba. He's the mayor of Milwaukee, Oregon. He is running to the U.S. House of Representatives, and you do run. Well, you bike as well. You're a biker. I I do bike. Or everybody runs in Oregon. He's running for Oregon's 5th Congressional District. The primary is May 19th, 2020. How do you vote during a pandemic? Oregon is fortunate. Uh, We have had vote by mail for 20 years. Uh, I think we were the first state in the union to do it, and uh, we have a great system. We get our ballots about two weeks before the election. You have time to sit down at the kitchen table and have a conversation with your partner and look things up and read and go online and research and do as much work as you want to really vote well. Is that the only way you can vote in Oregon? That is the only way you can vote in Oregon. So then you can either drop it off at one of the many ballot boxes spread all over the place or... um, How do homeless people vote? You can mail, too. Uh there's a general delivery mechanism with the post office that they are theoretically can get their ballots. I'm not, I haven't actually dug deeply into that, but that's the theory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So in any case, we will be voting by mail uh, across the board. Is this something the Republicans support in Oregon as well? They did back in, when did we do this? 90, 97. Okay. Um, remembering, um, yeah, it was it had bipartisan support back then. Okay, because I mean I think Oregon is is uh, <laughs> why the why the Republicans don't support it nationally is because they recognize that when more people get the vote, the vote tends to go Democratic. Yeah, although they're not so sure about that anymore. There's different states have different results. Mark. Gamba is running for Congress. He's supported by Howie Klein, which means you need to go to markgamba.com and give him money. If you're an American citizen and you're not a corporation, give give Mark Gamba money. We need to send him to Congress. Who are you running against in the primary? His name's Kurt Schrader. He's a blue dog Democrat. Um, he's supported by Monsanto and the NRA and the oil companies and the gas companies and the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance industry. And he's a Democrat. <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> he has a D behind his name. Okay. So I uh, I was going to say douchebag. You know, uh, that's you can say that on the FCC allows you to say douchebag. So I'm not being that offensive. We call him a dino. Oh, okay. Democrat, Democrat name, only. name only. Before yeah. you go, last question. As a candidate for Congress... What was your top priority before the pandemic, and is it the same now? There's actually two, and yes, they are. Um, 
And, and I think they are actually, this pandemic has made them both very much more clear. My two top priorities are Medicare for all, universal health care, and the Green New Deal. Right. Um, briefly, Medicare for all. If, if, if today we had that system in place, less people would be dying. Right. There would be more hospitals, there would be more doctors, there would be more ICU units, there would be more ventilators because all of the population would be being treated all of the time instead of whatever it is, somewhere between 50 and 80% of the population that currently gets medical care. Right. So that, I think, this moment more than ever before has really shown why that's critical. And so that's a key one. The other one is I think the perfect way out of the economic downturn that we are going to experience because of this pandemic. This, it has the potential for being worse even than the Great Depression. And the absolute perfect way to do it is with a jobs program that solves climate change. Somebody strangely has already come up with that idea and they called it the Green New Deal. So launching the Green New Deal as the pandemic ends is literally the perfect way to come out of this pandemic to put millions of people to work with good-paying union wage jobs solving the greatest threat that's ever faced mankind because climate change is going to bring with it more pandemics. As the earth warms, we will be experiencing more pandemics. Yes, yes. Mark Gamba for Congress. Thank you. Can you stay on the line for one quick second? Absolutely. Thank you. Let's go to Los Angeles, where Howie Klein is standing by. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive and some socialist candidates around America. And Down With Tyranny is required reading. Go to Down With Tyranny and read him every day. Welcome, Howie Klein. I feel welcome. Thank you. We have a new theme song that was written for you. We're debuting it right now. Are you ready? I haven't heard this. It's from one of our listeners. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. Your new theme song. I hope it's bad. Howie, you are my moral and intellectual superior. I mean That's an endorsement from uh, Bernie. I didn't know that he he's a big fan. He might be. I don't know if he is either. Okay. Not too much I mean, music you know, he's, there. He's friendly to me when I see him, uh, and there is no music. There was nothing at all. So I don't know if it's a theme song. It's, it's fine. It's good. That I, comes... I didn't quite understand it, but it's, it's good. Good enough. <laughs> You're a tough, tough audience. I was laughing. I thought it was great. Howie Klein, we're trying something different here tonight because we want to do a town hall with some of your candidates who I've interviewed over the years. And 
We're going to try to do it on Zoom, record it for Facebook and YouTube and this podcast. So we have 13 listeners, 13 fans of yours who are sitting in on this conversation, and they will ask you some questions. But first, I wanted to ask you about Joe Biden, because on Twitter, I said, I'm interviewing Howie Klein. Do you have any questions for him? And several people said, yeah, ask Howie Klein whether or not it's white privilege not to vote for Joe Biden. Is it the privilege of the white man who is sheltered so he can say, I'm not voting for Joe Biden? That was one of the questions. Uh, Okay. Uh, I I don't know. White privilege is in the eyes of the beholder. Um, I'm not voting for Joe Biden, and that's because I vote for people who I want to see become president rather than because someone else is worse than they are. So that's, you know, that's, I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton either. Uh, I didn't, you know, obviously I didn't vote for Trump, uh, nor would I ever. Uh, and I'll even acknowledge that um, Biden is the lesser evil between the two. But I don't want to see Biden as president. A lot of people had just discovered Biden when he became a presidential candidate, or, or then another amount of people knew who Biden was because he was vice president. Uh, but few people have followed Biden since the 70s and have developed a kind of uh, animus towards him as I have. I, I have always hated Biden. Biden, in fact, speaking of white privilege, Biden is a racist. Now, do I know that he's a racist right now? No, but he started his career as a racist. And when I say that, I mean, that was the main thing. That's how he got into office. He campaigned very, very hard on one big issue, and that is against school busing. Mm-hmm. That was his thing. He talked to suburbanites in Delaware. I will protect you from school busing. And we know what that means. Uh, it's not really about buses. It's really about uh, keeping uh, black and white children separated, right. uh, especially back in those days. That's what it was about. That's what he campaigned on. And then he was used to brag that he is the most conservative Democrat in the Senate. And he always acted that way in, when he voted and when he uh, introduced bills and when he uh, became, uh, you know, uh, his behavior on committees. He was always terrible. To me, I decided I wasn't going to ever vote for Joe Biden decades and decades ago. So if someone wants to say it's white privilege, let them say it's white privilege. It's fine. I don't care. doesn't matter to me. I know. I know. Uh, I know the reasons I would never, ever, ever vote for someone like Joe Biden, ever. I would never vote for someone like Joe Lieberman, ever. Okay. That's, 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 that's not, that is, those people are not what I want to see running our government. Not, not even close. Well, Justin, who remembers you from 415 Records in San Francisco. I was just listening, Justin, I was just listening to, uh, Chamber of Hellos two minutes ago, uh, because, the original drummer from uh, the Renegades and then Chamber of Lows, um, Federico, he sent me something yesterday yeah. about how Argentina is handling um, uh, uh, the crisis, the, whole, the COVID crisis. And I was and I was writing about it. And while I was writing about it, I started listening to Chamber of Hellos and um, decided to put that in the post as well. So tomorrow at nine o'clock, you can listen to uh, Chamber of Hellos. 
Fantastic. Justin, you have a question for Howie Klein. Well, yeah. Thanks, Howie. Fun fact, I, I played guitar with Wire Train uh, at a few gigs in Columbia back when I was uh, a teenager. Anyway, Columbia. He wanted to know what Columbia is, but let, let's stick with the question. So you want me to read your question, Justin, or should I, you want to ask it? You, you try asking it. Yeah, my question was, uh, what does, uh, how we think of the Democrats' chance for taking the Senate in November? And what are, what are the chances of the Dems taking the Senate in November now? I feel with, very, very optimistic um, that we're going to have a gigantic blue blue wave or anti, anti-red wave. I feel it's coming. It's going to be really strong. And I think that uh, Democrats, even though they have uh, pretty lousy candidates, um, the, people just want to vote against Trump. They want to vote against the way he hand, the way he's handling the pandemic. They want to vote against everything that he's done. Uh, and I think that there's, you know, Trump has his 30 some odd percent or let's say 40 percent of people who will follow him over the cliff and the rest of the country will vote against him and they will vote against Republicans who are so uh, identified with him that the that the Democrats are going to get a, a lot and lots more House seats and they will get enough seats to win and win the Senate as well. They'll certainly win in Arizona. They'll win, win in Colorado. They'll win in Maine. So you've got three there right off the bat. And then there's a very, very good chance that they can pick up a few other seats as well. Georgia is one example. Iowa is another example. I think the Democrats are going to do uh, just fine. Uh, and, and it's not because they have good candidates in, in most of these places. It's just that uh, people just want to vote against Trump and, and, and his party. You know, what's interesting about Trump, and you got to give the American people some credit, he is underwater again on his approval rating, whereas Macron, Angela Merkel, they're, they're, when there's a crisis, it's human nature to rally behind the leader. And we're seeing this. And they in- rallied around Trump for, for days. There, there were at least at least four days or five days, they rallied around Trump, and then they woke up and they said, what the hell? This, is, this guy's the problem. Right. And then they unrallied around Trump. But they didn't rally the way the Italians rallied around their prime minister, Spain. They have a prime minister? <laughs> they they all... I thought the Italians... I don't even know that they have a government anymore. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Who keeps track? You got to give the... what you're saying. Yeah, you got to give the American people some credit because they hate Trump. So what are Biden's chances in November? I think that Trump will lose the election. I don't think, you know, you could run a corpse, which Biden basically is, (laughs) against Trump, and and the corpse will win. Right. So it's not that, I I would never say that Biden is going to win. That's that's putting some kind of an idea out there that Biden has some kind of skill or ability or something attractive about him. Uh, And I don't believe that. I just think Trump will lose. Okay. And if Trump loses, Biden will become president. And if you want to say, therefore, that defines Biden winning, that's fine. I don't see it that way. I see it as Trump losing, period. Okay. We have uh, some questions from some of our attendees. Dan Frankenberger and Pat have questions. Pat, do you want to ask your question? It's interesting. 
uh, his mic doesn't work. Okay. He wanted to know, and then I'll read Pat's question and then Dan, you'll ask yours. Has, uh, if, uh, AOC, the, uh, Pat's question is, should AOC run for New York Senate and should she run against Schumer or Gillibrand? That's an interesting question. Yes, she should, she should run against Schumer, uh, whose seat is coming up faster. And, uh, and yes, she should do it. I mean, you know, we have to obviously look at the, um, at, at how, how the polling is. It, the last time it, you know, it was very, very premature, but it showed that she could beat him. So, um, and, and we'll see. I mean, the, the neoliberal establishment in New York is doing everything they can to take her down now. They are, you know, they're running this Republican, Michelle Caruso Cabrera, uh, against her. And, uh, you know, Michelle, Cabru- <laughs> Michelle Caruso Cabrera was an actual Republican. She changed her party. Uh, she wrote a book where she talks about how Social Security and Medicare should be abolished. They're Ponzi schemes, according to her. She's a pure Republican. And uh, Andrew Cuomo's uh, chief political operative is 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 basically uh, steering all of the uh, Andrew Cuomo's donors to her and making sure that she's going to they're, they're aiming for a 10 million dollar budget against uh against AOC and they're going the the plan is to uh, claim AOC is corrupt uh and say she's you know funneling campaign money to her boyfriend and that's that's what they're going to run on and they're going to blanket the district with um, lots and lots of hate uh, mail and uh, calls and TV and radio and just go full bore. And that, and that is uh, partially to try to preemptively protect Schumer. They want to just take her down and beat her. And even though she's probably going to win and they know it, they want to do all the damage they can to her. Right. Right. I hope that answered the question. Yes. Dan Frankenberger has a question. Then Evan seems to be using one of your recipes. So, Evan, you're up next after Dan Frankenberger. <laughs> oh, and we can talk about the recipe I'm working on right now as well. I, I hope that it was a simus that you, you used. But anyway, let's. Uh, uh, I think he's making pot roast. Pot pot roast. No, instant no, that pot. would not be my. Instant oh, oh, pot, pot, pot pot roast. And I'm wondering, since it's 421 when we're recording this, if there's actual pot in it. We'll ask Evan that in a second. Dan, you have a question for Howie Klein. Yes, sir. Howie, has there ever been an incoming president that was incapable of reciting the oath? (laughs) You're talking about Joe Biden? It could be be either of those clowns. Yeah. Um, You know, know, what, what can I say? I mean... In, in either case, America, uh, you know, is doing something horrible to itself. I right. mean, we had an opportunity to get rid of, to get rid of Trump with, with someone like Bernie or someone like Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, the American, the Democrats picked the worst possible candidate that they could pick. I don't, I don't know what to say. Did, did anyone read, uh, George Packer's new story in the, uh, let's see, I think it was in the Atlantic today. No. Or, Anyone that one? It's about how coronavirus didn't break America. America was broken, and coronavirus showed how how broken it was. Exactly. And it, it, it's a very very interesting story. It's worth reading. Um, Packer is brilliant anyway, and always worth reading. Well, 
I, I think in answer to Dan's question, I'm not so sure Barack Obama recited his oath properly. He had to go back for seconds. I think Justice Roberts screwed up the oath. Nobody really copped to it. But do you remember the first inauguration for Bar- Barack Yeah, what yeah. happened? They had to go back and redo it. Yeah, he, he said a few words wrong. I mean, and then the Republicans made a big fuss about it. Right. And, you know, normally it would have just been ignored. It didn't matter. But, uh, you know, they, they took great pleasure in um, making, making fun of our uh, first uh, African-American president. Okay. As though, they were pro- as though they were proving something. Right. Let's now go to Evan, who is making instant pot, pot roast. We're recording this on 420. Where are you, Evan? Oh, I have to unmute him. Hang on. New York City. You're in New York City. Which, which East borough? Harlem. Where? East Harlem. I'm sorry, I, I didn't hear it. Where? In East Harlem, New York. East Harlem. All right. Do you ever eat in Rouse? Uh, I have about 15 years ago. Yeah, I haven't been there in a really long time either, although there's one in L.A. It's not quite the same as the one in East Harlem. But uh, what a delicious, wonderful restaurant it was. I, I think I haven't been there in, like, three decades or something. All right. Now, Evan has picked up a bad habit from Howie Klein, and you're cooking uh, while you're talking. What, what are you pouring into? What are you pouring? Me? He's pouring bone broth. Anything. No, no. Evan, people, oh. they take their cues from you, Howie. So, and he's drinking a martini. Well, you're also doing this at seven o'clock. I mean, come on. That's true. That's true. What is, so, what is your question for for Howie Klein, Evan from East Harlem? I actually don't have a question. Are you, you cooking? You, 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 <laughs> you you're you were cooking and showing me the recipe, and I figured I figured you were using one of Howie Klein's recipes. But I figured since this is going to go on for five hours, I might as well show you something. <laughs> All right, Evan. Let's. Uh, I'm going to mute you. Go back to your pot roast. Howie's a, a vegan. He, uh, he doesn't. This next question comes to us from Lars, and let me see if I can turn him on. Hey, Lars. Uh, is this is this my old friend Lars from uh, the Bay Area? Lars, let me unmute him. Lars, are you there? Yeah, my, um, I'm not Lars from Metallica, but I'm, the, I'm like the closest thing. Okay. Are you, do, do you I know how he climbed? Used to go to their, I, I literally used to go to their uh, rehearsal studio before anyone knew who they were. They, they were, you know, they didn't have an album out yet. And they would play me the song. They would, they would play the songs that they were, that they were, uh, that became the first uh, album. And, uh, you know, I thought they were a really great band then. People mostly know about me uh, for having uh, um, punk rock uh, radio shows around the Bay Area. But I also had the first all-metal show. Wow. Oh, wow. And uh, was a, I was a major, huge fan of, uh, of Metallica. Do you know anyway, Howie, Lars? No. Um, oh. no. Just from listening to your show. Okay. What is your question for Howie Klein? Well, um, who do you think Biden's going to pick as the vice president? Will he, pl- will he uh, pick a black woman? Or? 
He wants to know if he'll pick Stacey Abrams or Val Demings. Who's Val Demings? Val Demings is a congresswoman, terrible congresswoman from uh, Orlando. She's horrible and stupid. But um, she got a little bit of fame because she's on the House Judiciary Committee, uh, and her staff would write her, you know, things to say, and she would say them. But, uh, uh, you, you know, the other uh, African-American woman, I, I kind of African-American anyway, we argued about this one time before, is um, Kamala Harris, the senator from uh, California. So he, he has those three choices, you know, he, or he could pick someone really good like Barbara Lee. But I, I, I don't get the feeling that it's going to necessarily be an African-American woman. He's, he has committed to picking a woman. Uh, you know, I heard something today. I'm trying to remember who told me this, but uh, that he was, he was vetting someone that's so horrendous. I mean, to the right of, of uh, Amy Klobuchar. But I, I, I mean, I can't remember who it was. But, but presumably, he's going to talk to lots and lots and lots of women, uh, give them the honor of having, you know, been be vetted so that they'll, you know, bond with him on some way and help him in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 of course, no one knows who he's really going to pick. Now, when Bernie first announced that he was going to definitely pick a woman as his running mate, he made it very, very clear that he was going to pick a woman who would carry on his uh, policies if, if he were to pass away. So, you know, so that would mean probably he was thinking about Elizabeth Warren, right. although there were other women he, he could choose as well. Uh, you know, Nina Turner was someone who Bernie fans were all excited about, who had been a state senator uh, in Ohio a few years ago, but never, uh, never won any statewide offices. But, but in any case, uh, Biden, if he wants to pick someone who is copacetic with him uh, uh, ideologically, then it would probably make sense uh, for you know, him to pick Amy Klobuchar. She's, you know, maybe not quite as far to the right as he is, but she's right enough. Um, but if but he, no if he really picked, I don't, I don't think Biden knows either at this point. If he picked really, Elizabeth, you know, if he picked Elizabeth Warren, would you vote for him? No, really, uh, I wouldn't vote for Biden. Even if yeah, he picked I Elizabeth mean, Warren, he, I would vote for him if he uh, adopted policies that would be good for the country. That, I would vote for him then. Uh, picking Elizabeth Warren would be great, and I think that she's the best person that he has on his radar as far as I know, but it wouldn't be enough for me. She, I mean, if I was sure he was going to die in a couple of months, I would pick, I would vote for him, but, uh, there's no, there's no guaranteeing it. Okay, I'm going to poll our attendees. Uh, right now. I wish now. everybody could smell the, uh, the Moroccan uh, stew that I'm making now. It's just like driving me crazy. It's like I fasted yesterday and I didn't eat anything today. And I'm making this stew for dinner and it's so wonderful. I'm like literally drooling as, as I'm talking. All right. Uh, so I just launched a poll of our attendees here and I'm asking them if they would vote for Biden or no. The question is Biden or no. But uh, while people are voting... We have a question from Rich. Does Howie have a... Is the poll poll just Biden or is it Biden plus uh, uh, Warren? I just asked Biden 
or no. So okay. And thirty eight percent of the attendees have uh, voted, so we'll wait till everybody's voted. Meanwhile, Rich asks, does Howie have a big-name Democrat that could be a surprise loser like Crowley lost to AOC in 2018? Is there somebody out there like Crowley who doesn't know what's in store for him? It's possible. Uh, there are some really good... Uh, people running in primaries, and, and there's, there's always a chance that one or two of them could lose, uh, which would be wonderful. Later today, we're going to meet Mark Gamba, who is the mayor of Milwaukee, but the Milwaukee near Portland, Oregon, right. not the Milwaukee in Wisconsin. And he's running against a really horrible uh, blue dog named uh, Kurt Schrader. So there's, 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 that's a chance. Um, another uh, Democrat who who, uh, who could possibly lose is the guy who took over as head of the Queen's political machine when Crowley was defeated. So we know Crowley was a congressman, but he was also the head of the, the Democratic machine in, in Queens. And when he uh, was defeated by AOC, one, one of um, AOC's uh, campaign volunteers uh, challenged Gregory Meeks, who, that, who became... The new Crowley, who he's now the head of the machine, the the party boss, the county party boss, and okay. he's terrible. He was he was named the most corrupt member of Congress a number of years back, and uh, I and the guy who's who will be running against him is is Sean Chowdhury, a young guy mm-hmm. who uh, worked up in Albany in the state legislature, and uh, is also a a star uh, rugby player. He's the captain of. Um, the Indian rugby team, which is a, uh, and he's not Indian. He's, he's American and he, he's not even descendant of Indians, but right. somehow he became the captain of their team and they, uh, they're a championship team. Great. Anyway, Great. he's also, a, uh, when, when David often says Howie, uh, uh, and Blue America support, uh, Democrats and socialists, Sean is the socialist. Right. Seventy-six percent of our attendees have voted. Evan, uh, I see that you're still cooking and you haven't voted yet. Uh, okay, so I'll read the results of the poll in one second. Enough time has passed since Super Tuesday, and the more we read about Biden's ascension to become the presumptive nominee, the more we understand the role that Barack Obama played in delivering this nomination to Joe Biden. Is that a fair statement that Joe Biden would not be the presumptive nominee had it not been for Barack Obama? Uh, I I would say so. I I would say that Obama um, uh, stage managed the whole thing, starting with uh, South Carolina and all along the way. I mean, you know, it was really didn't go the way I wanted it to go. It went really, really poorly, uh, and made me, you know, horrified for my country. And yet, I can still see the genius behind the way they did it, the way um, Obama did it. And, and even though I don't like what he did, I admire his skill in doing it because Biden was basically, you know, dead and buried. He wasn't going anywhere. He was coming in fourth in, in primaries, and Obama just like. You know, just turn that all around so quickly, and it was just shocking, shocking to everybody who was watching that closely. And 
you know, horrifying, but also, you know, beautiful in a way uh, in, in, in terms of his technique. Getting Mayor Pete to drop out before Super Tuesday was phenomenal. Yeah, and Amy Klobuchar. I mean, right. it, was, it was the way that he was able to get all of them on, on uh, you know, behind, uh, behind Biden. And just you know, just make it look like a fait accompli, and make it look like uh, it just, you just had to do it. You just had to go along with it. Is it political and malfeasance? Is it political malfeasance on his part? I mean, the man can't string together. No. Oh well, I agree. Yes, that's a good way to look at it. Yes, in that case, it is because he's doing something uh, awful to the country. I mean, they probably have a plan. Uh, you know, to put in a, you know, a very strong cabinet, uh, that's going to really run the show while he sits and drools on himself in a rocking chair. Right. I'm guessing that that's what, that's the plan. Okay. The poll has now ended. And what percentage of people attending a Howie Klein Q&A, what percentage of them say they will vote for Biden? And what percentage, Howie Klein, do you think say they won't vote for Biden? Well, I, I don't know the people really, uh, but I, but I mean, I would just guess fifty-fifty. Okay, I'm going to tell you that it's not fifty-fifty. So, okay. does it skew away or towards Biden? Um, probably towards Biden. Very good. Seventy percent of the people attending this Q and A with Howie Klein say they will vote for Joe Biden, and thirty percent say they won't. Interesting. I'd be curious to find out where exactly they're from. Uh, there are a couple of more questions uh, that I won't be able to get to. Uh, this one from Pat. Uh, he wants to ask you about the San Diego, uh, the 50th Congressional District in San Diego. Any idea why Amar Kampanahar has seemed to walk back his support for all the progressive policies he was supportive of last go around? Is that the guy... Uh, who ran against the guy who is going to prison? Yeah. What, what's yeah. his name? The, Duncan, the son of the... Uh, Duncan Hunter Jr. Dunk, yeah, yeah. Is Amar... Yeah. So, so, I, so I got to know Amar a little bit, and uh, Blue America endorsed him when he ran last time, and if you've noticed, we haven't endorsed him this time. So that's, you know, there's a reason for that. Uh, and I got as I got to know him, I... Uh, did not feel uh, uh, faith in him. I didn't feel I could trust the guy. Uh, there were a lot of things about him that made me think, "Oops, we made a mistake in endorsing him." But you know, it'd be great if he if he beats Hunt, Duncan Hunter. Uh, but then I thought, you know, he's not going to be a good Congress. He's not going to be a good member of Congress. He's not going to really be a progressive. That that's the stuff I I was thinking. I had like you know I don't know how many talks with him. 20, at least 20 talks with this guy. And I, and I, as I got to know him better, I started you know, worrying that I had been uh, taken in when, uh, when he convinced me to endorse him. And we didn't, we didn't make the same mistake uh, this cycle. So do I know why uh, is the question. And I don't know why uh, exactly, but uh, except to say that I don't think in his heart, he's a real progressive. I think in his heart, he is a, Careerist who is, will do anything to get this uh, get this job and be a congressman, and he felt like he was so close last time uh, 
that he can probably make it this time. I agree. I think he can make it this time. Would he be infinitely better than Daryl Issa? Yeah, he sure would be. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I'm looking for people who are going to be, uh, you know, good members of Congress like AOC and like Rashida Tlaib and like Ilhan Omar and like Andy Levin and like Ted Lieu. I mean, they were really good members of Congress, and there's no reason why we shouldn't have more like that, people who have strong character and people who have good values. And that's what, that's what we do with Blue America. We try to find people like that to support. Okay. And I, I don't feel that uh, Amar uh, Kapanajar is one of them. Great. And I hope he wins and proves me wrong. Okay. Last polling question, just out of curiosity, I asked our attendees, are you vegan? So far, 76% of our attendees have filled out the poll. I'll give them another minute. Uh, Shahid Buttar did not succeed in primarying Nancy Pelosi. Is there right, any... Excuse me? This, this, is, did. this is a question from Justin Hibbert. you want to ask the question, Justin? Go ahead, Justin, from San succeed. Francisco. He, he did succeed. Yes. Since when? Well, first give the backstory. Okay. So Shahid Mukhtar was one of the uh, Democrats uh, taking on uh, Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco. And it, it was a um, th- uh, California has jungle primaries, which means everybody runs in the primary together. Uh, so all the Democrats and all the Republicans and independents and libertarians, everybody runs in one big mess. And then who, whichever two people have the most votes, they go on to the, um, to November. So it's not a runoff in a primary. They go on to the, they go on the ballot in November and both Nancy and Shahid were the top two uh, vote getters. And that means that Shahid beat the Republican. Uh, and the other Democrats who are running, and he will now contest the election against Nancy Pelosi, and he's working very, very, very hard. He's taking this extremely seriously, uh, and, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi normally gets about in, uh, 70-some-odd percent, and he's he's taking this on as though he can win it. I hope I hope he does. He'd be an amazing member of Congress. Okay. Well, then I guess, yeah, I guess I would just, uh, modify the question just to say, you know, uh, if it's, a, if it's going to be a, a race just between Shahid and, and Pelosi, uh, what do you think are his chances of success? Well, <laughs> I don't want to jinx him. Uh, and this is just my opinion. And, I hope, and he would, ha- he has a different opinion, but I think his chances of success are not great. I don't think people generally win primaries on on uh, on one try. It takes it takes it takes a lot of effort, and you know we may we may think badly of Nancy Pelosi, but her constituents by and large are very proud of her, and they like the idea that they have um, the kind of they feel like they have a certain amount of clout because of her, and uh, you know she's been around a long time. She's got you know as much money as she needs to spend. And I, I, and, and Shahid is working really hard. But what that could mean in the future is that when Nancy decides to, uh, pack it in, which, which is probably very, very soon, and her daughter runs, uh, Shahid will have a shot to, to win the open seat over Nancy's daughter. 
What do you think of Shahid? I think you once said you weren't going to vote. I think very highly. Oh, okay. Very, very highly. I like him very, very much, and uh, I agree with all of his positions. And, uh, you know, I mean, I happen to be friends with Nancy's daughter as well, and I like her too, but I think Shahid would be uh, an amazing member of Congress. Okay. Uh, last question. We had uh, Mark Gamba, thanks to you. He's the mayor of Milwaukee, Oregon. He's running for Congress in Oregon. They have mail-in ballots. They've had mail-in ballots for the past 20 years. There are no voting precincts. There are no, you don't go anywhere to vote in Oregon. Are we going to have right, a, are we going to have a presidential election in November if if they can't fix this virus? Are we going to switch to mail in ballots? Well, yes. I mean, in a number a, a number of states. Look, there there are three categories here. So there are a few states, Oregon being one of them, where that's all you have just mail in ballots. That's it. You, you don't, you, as you said, there are no polling places. You just mail in your ballot. Mm-hmm. That's the best situation. Then the worst situation is when states discourage people from uh, being able to send in absentee ballots. You have to have an excuse. You, you bring a doctor's note saying why you can't do it. Um, you have to somehow prove that you're un- incapable of doing it. And then the and then in the in the vast middle, there are states where it's it, it's allowed. You can anybody who wants to vote absentee. Uh, or mail-in ballot can do it, and no, it's a no-excuses system, and most states are that way. I believe there are only 11 states now, all Republican states in the South, no, not, they're not all in the South, but all Republican states uh, where you're not allowed to, um, where, they, where they discourage you. So it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I think we're, we're, we're pretty set. A lot of the states where, um, where uh, are, are, are getting more and more uh, pro mail-in ballot. And that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to say for all time, uh, we're going to have mail-in ballots, but they're certainly all saying, like New York, for example. Uh, New York is not one of those states where it's all mail-in ballot, but it's a state where they're saying, yes, anybody who wants to vote mail-in ballot, let's go for it, let's do it. And they're, you know, push, pushing on that, uh, very, very hard for, for November. And, uh, the state, all of the swing states, Every state that's in play uh, are, allows mail-in ballots. So I, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Uh, you know, Trump's, for all Trump's carrying on, I don't think he realizes that the only states that are really discouraging it are his states. Right. So that's going to hurt him. He's a fool. Right. And, 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 and as you've pointed out before, Republicans don't necessarily suffer for mail-in ballots. They haven't. That's right, because they do it. But this is the thing: what the, what what progressives want, and which Nancy isn't moving on. What progressives want is that everyone get a postage paid mail-in ballot. What, so that's one extreme, and that's the good extreme. And then the bad extreme is Trump, who wants to shut down the post office so there'll be no mail-in ballots at all. He wants to close up the uh, the U.S. Postal Service. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Howie. Uh, the poll has been closed. We did a mail-in ballot. We asked the attendees if they're <laughs> vegan or not. And I am shocked by the response. What? Now, oh, you are a vegan. Is that correct, Howie Klein? 
No, I'm a vegetarian. You're a vegetarian, but you you eat what you you eat like cheese. Well, I do. I eat cheese. In fact, I'm not even a vegetarian because you know every couple of weeks I might decide to have some um, some some fish as well. So. You know, I don't do it much, and, like, now I'm not doing it at all because I'm doing all my own cooking and I don't cook fish. But, you know, sometimes I'll eat fish, too. Okay. It's not during the pandemic. Yeet. So I, I was a chef I was a chef in Amsterdam uh, in, in a uh, macrobiotic restaurant, and uh, I did that for four years of my life. And I, and I just rediscovered uh, cooking now. I love it, and I'm doing it uh, every night. So you're okay with dead fish, but you won't vote for Joe Biden. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. What percentage of the people showing up for a Howie Klein Q&A are vegan, Howie Klein? What percentage? Uh, uh, 30%. The same people who, who aren't going to vote for Biden. 8% are vegan. 92%. Okay. Eat meat. Yeah, they eat meat. I'm surprised. I'm genuinely surprised. Howie Klein, uh, Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, which raises money for progressive and some socialist candidates around America. You know, you had uh, gotten me two candidates today, uh, Julie Oliver in Texas and Mark Gamba, and I thought, oh, my God. People are running for office. There's there's something happening out there. When do you do you notice that people are are slowly beginning to pay attention now to politics and they're dipping their toe back into it? Yes. Funny you should ask that because um, when you know back in uh, I don't know January. Well, really in, in by February by early February, I was writing. Um, a, a, a post about uh, coronavirus every day. And people were saying to me, you know, you're, you're going to bore your audience to death. Uh, no one wants to hear about it. And I thought, you know, I'm going to stick with my gut. And my, my gut says otherwise. <laughs> Sorry. My gut says otherwise. Now I'm getting another. And, and eventually I wound up uh, doing five corona posts a day, just writing about coronavirus. My whole blog became a coronavirus blog. Uh, now I'm getting the, the opposite feeling that people are ready to start hearing about um, going back to politics, which is really what my blog is about. And um, now people are telling me the same thing. Oh, no, no one wants to hear about anything but coronavirus. I'm getting a feeling that we're getting to a point where people do want to go back to hear about other things besides coronavirus. Okay. Nicholas, you have a question? Nicholas? Yes. Hi. Um, where, you, where, you, where are you zooming in from? Where are you zooming in uh, from? Where do you zoom uh, Los from? Los Angeles. Okay. Hi. Where? Where in L.A.? Um, where in L.A.? Uh, West L.A. I'm actually close to Santa Monica. I used to live in West Hollywood for the last three years. What is your question for Howie Klein? My question is... Um, what are your what are your thoughts in in uh, the left of uh, the Democrats to you know take basically take the leadership away from the centrists? Um, I mean, unfortunately, Bernie 
loss, which was really sad, but at least the majority of the people of Democrats were more supportive of his policies, according to exit polls, than uh, they certainly were Biden. And, uh, you know, I, I'm curious as to, as to think that if Trump is out and people aren't looking for the lowest common denominator, uh, which I think is a stupid way of thinking about it, like, what are your thoughts of the left gaining more power over the years? Um, obviously, it's not well, going to happen magically, but... Right. Right. Great question. Yeah. You know, I try to be an optimistic guy, and I generally am an optimistic guy, but uh, there are two different things here that you, that you brought up, and, and they're, not, they're, they're not the same. One is if the left can pass policies, progressive policies, but the other is about gaining power. Um, I don't think the, the progressives have any chance of gaining power, unfortunately. Uh, but I do think that they can do what's important about having power, which is to pass, uh, pass policies. I, I think that can happen. Fantastic. So, yes. Everybody should read Down with Tyranny. Thank you all for coming to our first Zoom town hall with Howie Klein. I think we proved to Howie that the technology is there to do town halls writ large with his candidates, to start bringing in your candidates. And I... Am I going to be part of this thing with the candidates? Of course. I wouldn't... You wouldn't trust me alone with one of your candidates. You so and I'm staying, on for, I'm staying on for like another hour or something. No, no, no. We're going to do this next week. We'll, we'll do a. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, uh, just for my podcast listeners, so they understand. Every Friday night at nine o'clock, we do office hours, and we've been experimenting with Zoom. I've now upgraded to webinar. That's a, another level of Zoom where we could bring in panelists and then live stream the event on YouTube and Facebook. So if you can't get into the the meeting, you can watch it on Facebook and YouTube. That's different from a Zoom meeting, which is more fun because it's limited to 100 people and you can really get to know. Uh, it's more intimate. So it's, it's so interesting. What's, what's happening with, with Julie and, and Mark tonight? There, I interviewed them. I, in, I interviewed them already, and they said, oh, they, and they said they would come and do a town hall with you and the listeners. So, Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, which raises money for progressive and some socialist candidates. How do people donate to your pack? Well, if you go to Down with Tyranny, uh, my, my blog, there's a, um, there's a, a big blue bar at, at the top right, and it says uh, Blue America or Act Blue on it. And if you just click that, it'll take you to the page that we use to collect money for people running for Congress. Great. Great. This was a lot of fun. Howie Klein, can you stay on the line for one second? Thank you, yes. sir. You called in your backup becomes now, see if we can get some more brain power in this We thing. got one here. Roger. Fly to Go. Go and go. Uh, he's, never mind. He's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the uh, limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good. So if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM 
electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let us now go to Wisconsin, where Professor Harvey J.K. is standing by. His latest book is FDR on Democracy, The Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. If you want to read the greatest speeches and writings of Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey J.K., pick up Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. If you want to learn more about FDR, read The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. And there are many books this man has written. Welcome back, Harvey J.K., or as I call you, Dr. Frankenstein, because (laughs) you turned me on to Zoom. Hello, sir. It's great. In fact, as long as you mention Zoom, I want everyone to know that it's always fun to do a podcast with by phone or or whatever uh, technology people are using. But it's particularly nice having done months of talking to you just by phone that we met one, that time in New York and then that time in Brooklyn recently. But it's great to be able to see your face as I speak to you about these kinds of things. It makes me feel like, you know, oh, hey, it's, it's great to see you, David. And I feel like I'm like people used to say about FDR's fireside chats, they felt like FDR was in the living room with them. So good mm-hmm. to see. How transformative is Zoom going to be? Because you attended office hours. You were part of your hopefully you'll always be a part of our Friday night meetings with the listeners. I find it transformative. I, I We've done two office hours now and the ability to have guests of the show mingle with the listeners, it seems there's potential that is exponential. Yes. As a matter of fact, so the first week was kind of fun because it was, you know, it was like nearly a train wreck kind of evening. And in fact, I think on my calendar, I write, I write Friday train wreck with David. Now (laughs) I should write office hours, but this past Friday night, I, I thought that was, it was in some ways less serendipitous because it was, more, you know, planned, you might, mm-hmm. planning is not the right word, but it, it was more like an agenda we had. But it was absolutely wonderful. And it, it was wonderful for a start because we had, as you know, 99 people in attendance. Well, we, 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 yeah, we had to turn people. I, I have to confess that there is a huge part of me that takes pride in the fact that we had to turn people away because we, we do only allow a hundred. That's the, uh, but I felt bad, uh, that we had to turn people away, but I was happy. But there that, were people wait, but there were people who waited until some others had vacated so they could come in. I mean, that, right. that was telling as well. That was really great. Right. Right. That was good. Also because I think it was good that we had so many voices speaking, you know, like, 
my young colleague, John Shelton, who spoke about labor. And then we had the animal behaviorist, would you call it animal psychologist? Yeah, uh, animal behaviorist, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin. Yeah. Right, who, who was clearly very calm and collected and cool in, in front of the camera. She was undeterred by, by whatever silliness we might have gotten mm-hmm. into. That was, really quite, that was really great. And then to think that all those people actually did bring their pets right. at, for, the, for the pet beauty pageant. Oh, I have a plan for the pet, the pet beauty pageant. Oh, I've okay. decided every week we're going to do a pet beauty pageant, and it's going to be like Powerball, where I'll no, say... No, wait. Before you go too far, hold on. It takes too long. Yeah, it does. I, th- I figured we'd do it at the end. But here's, here's why. I think we have a jackpot... And everybody shows me their pet, and I'm going to say the jackpot is $500. And each week I'll go, nap, they're all ugly. I'm doubling it to a thousand. And so, <laughs> so we do it like Powerball. Go up to like it, it goes up, and I'll just insult everybody's pet. I, I, it went on too long, but I think I, it's. No, no, it, it, it wasn't that it went on. It's, the point is, if every if every if this becomes the routine, it'll seem all the longer. That's my point. Right. What I'm what I'm thinking is we do it at the end because it is interesting to meet the pets, but it does slow. Down. It's it's uh, a sweet way to end the night. I mean, the, well, how about if you you know how about if you said like this? We were going to do it dogs. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another not a bad week, idea. Another week, cats. Another week, anything but cats and dogs. Right. Right. Okay. And then another week, in honor of that fellow who brought his pet rock, I'm forgetting who that was. That was funny. You know, bring your favorite, you know. I I mean, I've got, I mean, what you could even do, bring your favorite trophy. Right. Right. Maybe somebody bring their trophy wife. Who knows? Yeah. I think dogs, I think your pets are kind of interesting. Anyway, let's, it was great. And we're going to do it every Friday night at nine o'clock. And who knows? Uh, I loved it. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Of course, it kept me up all the later because we went, what? Three hours? It, it was three and a half hours. It wasn't that. I it wasn't. It was that. And then after those three hours, which were so stimulating, I couldn't go to bed. Right. So I was probably up another hour and a half. Why I couldn't sleep either. My mind was racing with the possibilities. I feel this is a new medium, and you have to figure it out. It's something in and of itself. Is how do you have a meeting of a hundred people? And make it interesting because it's not a podcast. It's not a YouTube show. It is a meeting of a hundred people that should be stimulating and motivating, getting people to, yeah. to, to, to radicalize them, which I don't think I've succeeded in doing yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, so many of the people are, are your many, 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 many followers around the country, around North America around the world. So, I mean, they're already primed. I mean, it would be interesting. In fact, that would be an interesting thing to find out to, if people wouldn't mind. Like you did a poll the other day, right? Yeah. We did that. I wonder if there's a way to do a poll so people could place themselves on the left spectrum. Right, right. You know, to see if, like, people call themselves liberal. Yeah, you know, how many people call themselves liberals or progressives or socialists or right. anarchists or, well, yeah, whatever. That would right. be kind of fun without anyone having to, you know. Make yeah, one, one of the things, I'm learning the Zoom program one of the things that I couldn't do, but I've learned how to do it, I think, is to write the polls before the meeting starts. 
yeah. so that it's, we can have yeah. some questions and I can just yeah. hit the button. But I was trying to do the poll, like write them out while I was conducting the meeting. Uh, you know, you got to give it time. You got to learn this thing and grow with it. But it is really interesting. And one of the things we're going to be doing, I spoke to Howie Klein, is I've bumped up to webinar. And one of the things that Howie's excited about and the candidates I've interviewed are excited about, and that is doing town halls with congressional candidates yeah. where Howie introduces, say, Shahid Buchar. We'll talk about him yeah. in a second. And we have people like Harvey J.K. and maybe two other renowned public intellectuals who will ask questions the way a, a town hall should be. And then we could take questions from the audience. And I think that will be very satisfying. I'm not sure it lends itself to the podcast. I think it's just, I don't know yet. I think it is probably. I think, I, I think it's a great idea. And I think, um, I, I think the more ideas that you, that you and I generate, to carry us through. We're going to be doing this for quite some time, I hope. And, um, you know, like, you know, I, I've even like doing this has also given me ideas because one of the things I'm not keen on teaching online, which I'm supposed to be doing right now. And I've generally turned my classes that had been going half through the halfway through the semester into group independent studies and then next week and the week after, I'll be consulting with students face-to-face -face by Skype or FaceTime about their essays. But I, I was thinking, I'm a, I've done something in seminars for seniors, as in seniors in college, where I turn them into a, a radio play group. That is, uh, Norman Cohen's play, We Hold These Truths, which he, it was presented in 1941, the week after Pearl Harbor, um, in honor of the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights, this is 1941. Um, I had a group of students, two years in a row, um, groups of students, actually develop it as a, a, a play that they could perform in front of others as a reader's theater. Mm -hmm. And I was, and I was thinking, well, if, if in the fall I have to do online teaching, I, I just can't keep running these independent studies. It's just inadequate. So I thought maybe I would take a class of say 25, divide them in half and have a Monday group and a Wednesday group and run two, two plays with this group. And then, so we'd spend two hours on a Monday and then they'd go off for a week and do other kinds of stuff and then come back and we'd continue it. So this Zoom stuff to me is very interesting. I, I, I don't want to think of my life on Zoom. But given the circumstances we're in, thank goodness we have Zoom. I want to ask you about Biden in a second. Uh, last question about Zoom. I spent the weekend reading and thinking, which I haven't been able to do. I think all of us are just overwhelmed. But the dust definitely seems to be settling. And I think we're settling in to this pandemic and trying to figure out what's next. And from what I've been reading... This thing isn't going away. Right. They're not going to have they're not going to have a vaccine for at least a year, maybe two years. They don't even know if they can get us a vaccine. They're going to have to open up this economy very slowly. And ironically, the 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 people who do our shopping, the people on the front lines, the first responders will hopefully 
have antibodies. They will be the the superheroes who don't have to worry about catching the disease, and they, they most of them. Yeah. Go ahead. You, you respond. Well, you're, you're speaking as a New Yorker right now, right? And you don't. And I think it needs um, uh, the bigger picture. For a start, out here in the Upper Midwest, we have right wingers, maybe one of every three Republicans, who they they want to open up Michigan and Wisconsin, for example, now, where we haven't even seen the peak mm-hmm. of, uh, of the virus's impact here in these states. Do we that know part- if they, do we know if they really are that? Big the people who want to reopen, or is this like astroturf? Uh, well, I, 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 let's put it this way: they turn out at state capitol buildings. Some of them, you know, brandishing weapons. Um, the Republicans themselves are, in this state at least, are going to court to have uh, the governor's initiative to close the state down uh, declared unconstitutional according to the state of Wisconsin Constitution. It's this kind. I mean, this is serious battles going on out here. Um, remember, you're a blue state. You've got a governor who, for all, I mean, a governor who otherwise would be considered a, you know, fascist. Or, <laughs> not, no, I won't go. I won't go there. Okay? okay, a neoliberal, which to me is a pretty dastardly thing yeah. to do to be, and but he's taking charge in a, at least in a public face way, and and CNN has promoted him heavily. So the point is that you're, it's. I agree with you that what I've read tells me at least a year, maybe more. It's not even clear that testing for antibodies will make any difference from what I can tell. Well, they can't get one. They they can't figure it out. Yeah, and exactly. So, you know, we shouldn't. I was just, by the way, I was just reading an article along these lines asking the question, would we be better off if we had socialist health care? And I don't just mean Medicare for I mean socialist health care and research and all of that, because we have so few companies right now that are pursuing these kinds of things compared to the past. And moreover, we could more readily prepare for, because companies are out to make money, period, okay? Right. In contrast to the public the public good kind of enterprise, a, a, a trust, a government agency, whatever, they might well be on, on, you know, on the front line of trying to prepare for these moments and at least be prepared to respond quickly. So anyhow, there's all these questions that emerge. I just don't think we know enough to say anything confidently. Right. This thing is going to last longer than we're accustomed to bad things happening. Yeah. This is, uh, and we're, well, yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you about Biden. My, one of my daughters called me and she said, I hear you're not endorsing Biden. I said, well, I haven't said anything. I didn't think you and your friends cared what I said on my show. My daughter said, <laughs> you, you have to vote for Biden. And I said, wait a second. This is flipping the script. Yeah. I'm the one who's telling you to vote for Biden. I'm the one who's telling you to be realistic. And, you know, Bernie had his shot. The people have spoken. Now get in line. I, you shouldn't be telling me to vote for Biden. So we had this long conversation. I hate Biden and I hate Barack Obama for pushing him on us the same way McCain pushed Sarah Palin on us. Uh, so I said to my daughter, I don't have to uh, endorse Biden. 
I don't have to say he's better than Trump quite yet. A lot of people think it, it's almost treason not to vote for Biden. What are your thoughts on voting for Biden? Well, okay, so I, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to read the statement that I issued as a thread on Twitter yesterday. Yes. People, okay. That's why I brought it up. Thank you. And I want to make it clear to everyone that what you've said about Biden and Obama, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't disagree with you. Okay. I don't disagree with you. But the question isn't simply Obama or Biden. The question is whether or not we're going to have a future. I, I mean, seriously, a future. I mean, a future for American democracy, a future for the United States, a future period given the bizarre death cult that seems to have emerged around this uh, coronavirus pandemic. Anyway, so I, I'll read this and I'll make, I hope it'll be clear. And I was really looking forward to, to this opportunity to talk to you and, and maybe to explain to people who might be surprised. And I want to add at the end, something that's not in here, something about my feelings about Bernie and how he suddenly endorsed. Okay. And, and why that was unfortunate. Okay. So here's this is the statement. This is serious, very serious. A pandemic without a public plan, a fascistic president, gross inequalities of power and wealth, America's revolutionary promise denied and in mortal jeopardy. We know how we got here. We failed to effectively counter 45 years of continuing class war against the radical and progressive democratic legacy and achievements of FDR and the greatest generation by corporate capitalists, conservative Republicans, and neoliberal Democrats, which, by the way, includes the likes of Biden. I'll add to that. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what do we do now? What do we do right now in the wake of Bernie Sanders' defeat and essentially a withdrawal? I can only answer for myself, and I hope that others agree. I live in Wisconsin, I should point out. Those of you who live in solidly blue states will no doubt see things differently and feel free to answer that question otherwise. And I understand completely, if not enviously, in view of the forces and crisis we face, which threaten American democratic life itself, I believe, as a citizen, a father and a grandfather, that we must act to assure that we and our children are not only able to vote this November and again in 2024, and the dates roll out from there, but also to continue the fight to both redeem America's promise and create a truly progressive social democratic America. Indeed, the fight must continue even now through direct action. Thus, the clear and present danger of Trump, the reactionary Republicans aligned with him, and the right-wing rallies in Michigan and elsewhere, including my own state of Wisconsin, to liberate states, in quotes, to liberate states, compel me to declare in favor of fighting to fight, in favor of living to fight another day, that we should vote for Biden in November. I am not oblivious to the reasons not to do so. So much of Biden's record is deplorable, but Trump's is utterly despicable, and we cannot deny the peril. Drawing strength from not me, us, and never forgetting how Americans overcame reactionary forces and mortal crises in the 1770s, the 1860s, and the 1930s through the 1960s, by radically enhancing freedom, equality, and democracy, we must vote 
to both take back America and better position ourselves to make America radical again. That's, that, that's my feeling. I, I, I didn't come to that easily. It was painful to write it. I actually flew it by a whole host of people uh, to see what they thought. I revised it over and over again to make sure that I didn't fail to make clear how I feel about Biden, but at the same time, how, the, 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 the revulsion in me regarding Trump. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's my statement. But I now want to add something to it. If you don't, please, maybe you want to respond. No, no, no. I'm fascinated because I'm, uh, I'm angry. I'm really angry at, but I can't see myself getting excited about this guy. Go ahead, please. Well, just a week or two, you may recall, I, I said it here. I said it on rising on Hill TV live. You know, I said that it was imperative that Bernie not not withdraw, that it was imperative that he make demands on Biden, that that I thought Biden was vulnerable in spite of in spite of his seeming resistance. She used the term resistance to going left. I felt he was vulnerable. Okay, and and if they wanted Bernie to step out then they needed to make a deal. And I believed a public deal, one in which Biden came before the American people and said, you know, we're in a crisis that we, we, that I, I apologize for not having foreseen. Okay? Mm-hmm. A crisis in which our president is literally placing us in moral mortal jeopardy. And I now recognize the imperative for Medicare for all. That's what I wanted to hear him say. Okay? People told me I was crazy. He was never going to do that. That's what I wanted. And I made it out to be the case of there was no way in hell I was going to shift my position unless I heard it. The problem was, first, I did not expect the loonies to come out here in the upper Midwest to, to open these states of Michigan and Wisconsin before we've even seen the full brunt of the virus. Right. right? And in some cases, at least from what I could see over in Michigan, they came brandishing weapons. Okay. Now. Having said that, to me, then, what it tells me is that, and that was in response to Trump saying he, it was time to liberate states. I believe he made reference maybe to Virginia, whatever else. The man was inciting a death cult and violence. And it was imperative that those of us from liberals to socialists stand united in some way, that we not sort of scramble in different, you know, and run off in different directions. We needed to stand united. So that was, that was the thing that drove me to say, okay, Okay, I want us to all be alive to make sure certain things happen. That was first. But I also want to then say the thing that's been on my mind, and that is that I think Bernie should not have endorsed in the way that he did. I think he should have. I think, look, my presumption, everyone's, in fact, I think it came out of the Times that, that Obama called him in, or well, called him in probably by Skype or FaceTime, whatever technique they've got. And I think Biden... I think Biden was sort of a, a, a the side player in all this. And and whatever Obama told him to do, he would have done. And it just strikes me that, that Bernie should have played the game of saying, you have got to come out in favor in light of this crisis for Medicare for all. In other words, there's a whole host of things he could have done. I didn't expect Obama or anyone else to come out for the Economic Bill of Rights to declare that we're going to, you know, nationalize the banks, which Bernie didn't even say. I don't expect all of the agenda to be embraced. But I think Medicare for all in light of this crisis was absolutely essential. 
And I think that I'm not telling you that Bernie, I mean, yeah, in a way he kind of failed. Once again, he failed basically to lay it on the line and compel Obama, at least Obama, to say, well, we can phase it in. Even, even, even just to say phase it in. The point was to have Obama and his puppet Biden endorse Medicare for all. But we were beyond that. Every day that passes, something emerges, something arises, which in some ways changes the calculus. So my feeling is we have to win in November, even if it's another, even if, even if Biden hasn't embraced what needs embracing. And we need to win because we've got to make sure that we don't flush this whole enter- public enterprise of ours down the toilet. Because electing Trump again is like flushing the United States down the toilet. Yeah. Although, some, you know, some people think it's already been flushed down the toilet. Well, I'd like to at least come back up with the filling of the tank. How bad are things? I mean, if you look at, I mean, I'm in Manhattan, so things seem really bad. However, however, we do have a, you know, a competent governor, and we're not seeing... The ICUs flooded with COVID-19 patients. We're also not seeing people coming with cardiac arrest. And, and so there's a lot of non-COVID-19 tragedies not being treated. We're going to discover that a lot more people died because they didn't go to the emergency room, even though they didn't have COVID-19. But there is some semblance of a functioning system here in in New York, even though we have 150,000 kids who go to public school here who are homeless. Uh, it's not functioning, then. It's not functioning, is it? No, it's not. And I, I look, I mean... I mean, you saw the... When you look in te- down in Texas and you see six-mile lines, people in cars lining up at food banks... Uh, it's not working. Yeah, well, the main th- and the other thing is, is that I mean, before even president, before this, the president we have just doesn't give a damn. If you listen to his words, remember he speaks most of the time off the top, you know, off the cut, not off the cuff, from literally off the you know top of his head, whatever pops into it. And the fact is, what he's more concerned about. You know, a continuing. What was this show called? The Apprentice, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. This is like it's like a sitcom to him, or a reality sitcom to him. I mean, this is unacceptable behavior. Okay. Now, I, this is, but not only by him. This is unacceptable. The whole administration, number one, and the Republicans in Congress. I mean, seriously speaking, if we had any justice, they would all talk about lock them up. There you go. Okay, this is utterly unacceptable in the United States of America. This is not the rule of law. Not to mention, every so often he tests the waters for a dictatorship. Okay, not to mention the fact that you know when he comes on TV, he goes on and on only because he's jealous of of what's his name Cuomo in the morning. No, seriously speaking, we are in really really big trouble right now. And and another way of bringing it home is this. And we talked about this the other night on Friday night on the on the office hours show. The fact is that it, here in the state of Wisconsin, let, let's not forget. Back in the 1950s, Americans 
confronted a pandemic. Polio. Mm-hmm. It was still around, okay? And then you had the Salk and Sabin, Sabin vaccines, you know, those kinds of things. But the fact is that, that we had a 90% marginal tax rate on the rich, okay? We had decreasing inequality and a thriving economy. And a president as, you know, Eisenhower, who had already run the European theater of war uh, 10 years earlier during World War II, he wasn't going to let the, the, I mean, whatever we might have to say about him, the fact was that he was a, he was a significant president who had some degree, you know, he was savvy. Now, okay, what have we got now? Well, we start, we, we're already reducing taxes on the rich for decades. We're reducing taxes on capital for decades. And then we walk into this presidency, and he and the Republicans give, we don't even know how much ultimately, what, a trillion-dollar gift to capital and the rich, mm-hmm. Right. And, and what do we do? We, we, we say, well, we can't afford anything else. And the Democrats line up and say, we can't afford this, we can't afford that. Was it two months ago? Not even that many weeks ago, I was saying, I was utterly ashamed and disgusted with the Democrats for failing to embrace Medicare for all. Now we see we're going to spend trillions of dollars. But once again, by most accounts, the overwhelming majority of those dollars are going to be funneled or literally shoved into the pockets of capital, not in all cases, but in many cases. And we have a president who's literally just worried about his television ratings, right? I mean, it's, it, it, this is utterly ridiculous. Now, here in the state of Wisconsin, which had already literally given plenty of money back to the rich, had already slashed education and university budgets under Scott Walker, his uh, 12-year reign of, of, of Republican uh, political terror, you know, could always say. They rewrote, uh, you know, reapportioned the state so that they could control forever, it seemed. And what happens now? So there, a, a, a recession-slash-depression is, is, is descending upon us or rising up from the, from, the, from the depths of hell. And they've already realized that the university system is going to be millions of dollars in the red next year. So they've declared furloughs. Okay. What is now? That's a nice what, furloughs. It says, Hey, you like, you're going to have a good time. You're going to get time off. Well, it's not, that's not the case at all. What it means is we're not going to get paid for days. Okay. Now I'm, I'm, I have a reasonable, I have a reasonable income re- salary. I'm not, I don't make money from wealth from, from my salary. And I know many other people have it far, far worse. Okay. But it also means that students, are going to, are going to suffer as a consequence. Staff at the university who will be seen as expendable will be given longer furloughs or laid off. I mean, it's, it's, it's in all the, all the areas of American life. And what are we doing? Well, we don't have a plan. We have a pandemic and we have no plan. We need and a pandemic. Like, we have a plan. And it's tragically, it seems right now that it is a pandemic. Okay. I mean, people in tech that, Asshole of a, of a lieutenant governor was willing to write off a generation of people over the age of sixty. Basically, um, I'd like all those guys to to, to forget it. I yeah, know. I know you can't say what you have. Uh, you know, the New York Times on Sunday did a breathtaking. Sometimes they get things right. They they yeah. you know they wrote about inequality and it was magnificent in its scope. And they, they talked about the slow growth in life expectancy here in the United States. No other Western country has suffered a, a, a slow growth in life expectancy the way we have in the United States. 
we have half a million Americans who are homeless before COVID-19. Right. The purchasing power of the minimum wage has not budged since 1968. It's actually falling. Uh, the character of this country, has it been irreparably altered? You know, you, you write about taking back our history and, and figure, reminding us, I say figuring out, but you say reminding us who we are. Uh, I sometimes wonder if we're just a, we're bad people. I talk to people from other countries and they used to be more forgiving of America. They used to say things, well, you know, you make mistakes, but you always work it out. Yeah. Uh, I think people genuinely hate this country since Trump took office. Well, the word hate, I don't know about that yet, but they sure as hell feel sorry for a lot of us. What did Winston Churchill say? America will do the right thing after they've exhausted all, <laughs> all other possibilities. Yeah, yeah, right. He's also said something like democracy is the... Is the Worst the system, worst system, the worst system of government, but it's better than all. Yeah. Are you still there? Did I lose you? No. Did oh. I lose you? I, I think we're. Uh, anyway, do you sometimes wonder? I, I want to ask you about these candidates who you're supporting. You're putting your money where your mouth is. Uh, there are a lot of people suffering. I, I, by the way, I'm not giving grand grand sums of money. I just want to show solidarity with these people. Right, right. When when you look at, and can um, I mention their names as long as we? As yeah, long as I, I want to get to that in a second. Okay. But people are really suffering in this country. You know, it's it's become banal now to repeat the fact that seventy percent of Americans can't come up with. $800 for an emergency. You have 11 million American families that can barely afford to rent an apartment. They're paying like half their income on rent. Uh, the pandemic is horrible. And Congress, all the folks in Congress are at home. All the Congress is at home. They've quadrupled. The deficit, the, the, the debt is now up to $24 trillion. I have to tell you, David, we're, we're getting a thunderstorm right now, which is probably why, for a brief moment, I shut off on you. Okay. Okay, just so you know. If it happens again, I'll likely come back, but we're getting thunder and lightning. We have a severe thunderstorm warning, just so you know. Okay. So, maybe the pandemic... And I, I'm sorry to say this because so many people, you know, people are suffering physically. Are we capable of a reset if this were to go on? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. If this goes on for another year, and this yeah. is a terrible thing to say, but when you read about $60 billion a year earned by sports complexes, the billions of dollars that's earned by the NCAA, the time and money that's wasted on anti-civic pursuits, childish things, a year of this, will people wake up and say, I don't need to watch. I don't need to go to a Yankee game. I don't need to go see the the next Brad Pitt movie. 
Well, okay. Are you asking me or is that rhetorical? Well, I'm asking you, can we reset yeah. the way our... Okay. Let, me, let me say this. I mean, history does not repeat itself. But as Mark Twain said, it does rhyme at times. And I think we should realize that this is not the first mortal crisis that we've confronted. This is the kind of thing you and I have been talking about for the last, must be eight months already now. And I, I, I don't know what we're going to do in this instance, but when it came to other instances, as I mentioned in this public statement, back in the 1770s and the 1860s, which was a far, a more, an even more, if you like, critical moment than it may well be today. Maybe. Okay. 1930s, the worst economic and social catastrophe in American history. World War II. Americans take for granted that we would have won the war. It is not imp- unlikely that if Roosevelt had not been president, that we would not have won the war. Right. If he had not been president, we might well have lost the war. And I say that because we would not have been in a position to fight in World War II had we not had the New Deal during the previous eight to nine years. Okay, we were not at all capable otherwise. Okay, and and the other thing to keep in mind about that is that uh, is that Britain might have fallen, and even if we hadn't entered into a war with Germany, it's not unlikely. People should watch, uh, should read uh, these things like Plot Against America and things like that, or watch right. the series. It's not unlikely that you would have had some kind of presidential leadership. In that case, I don't want to give away endings of that one, but you would have had presidential leadership that might well have sought to negotiate with Hitler. Right. And you know that if they, if somebody like that had negotiated with Hitler, people like you and I and, and, and a hell of a lot of other people who weren't even Jewish would have ended up in some kind of internment camps. Undeniably, that was the case that, that, uh, that Roosevelt ended up imposing on West Coast Japanese Americans. But you would have seen not simply internment camps, you would have seen even worse. Right. Okay. And, and they wouldn't be the fr- and they wouldn't be the first internment camps here in the United States, right? But it would have been concentration camps. Well, that would have, have been. Yeah, we have them. Now. No, no. I, I, yeah, yes and no. See, definitely concentration camps. We might well have seen death camps. Let me put it that way. Right. Okay. Right. That's more likely what I meant. So. Right. Okay. You know so, the Great Depression. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I was a kid when Hoover. Became president. No, you weren't. <laughs> the depression. The depression started right after Herbert Hoover was inaugurated, and went yeah. four years under him. Yeah, and then the New Deal came. Right. The war, World War Two, was, you know, forty-two to forty-five. Yeah. These well, things. Actually, the war, World War Two was actually. 39 to 45. We didn't go in until 42, well, after Pearl Harbor, December 41. But the British were already at war. Europe was, remember, Nazi Germany had already overrun Europe by the time we got into the war. But our generation has not seen a multi-year commitment to pain. We, we... But but hold on, I, I always keep in mind, somebody of my students are veterans, I can tell you, that we have seen a far too long commitment to pain when you think about the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Pain for people we don't pay attention to. We don't pay enough attention to. We, but you know, what if, let me just say, you know, if I had been continuing to live in the Northeast, I might actually have been oblivious to a lot of things that living out here has taught me. 
One of them is the fact that Native Americans matter. Right. Okay, they're not just out there in the West. Okay, we have two reservations nearby. We actually have three reservations nearby. I have students who are Oneida, Menominee, Stockbridge, Muncie. And the other thing that I learned is that, you know, I have students who are veterans, men and women veterans. I have students right now in uniform who are, who have been during these last several years called up in the middle of semesters. So I'm very much aware of the pain that families go through. Um, so, but, it, but on the scale, you're right. On the scale of World War II, it is definitely not the case. We, we, we get, we're we not get in it together. Right. Professor. Speaking of football, we're not games, in it together. We're not. And the football games and baseball games, the most, to me, the most bizarre moments, however seemingly patriotic they are, is at the beginning of a football game. And this is out here in Lambeau Field here in Green Bay. And I'm a big Packers fan. And it's, a, you know, it's a topless stadium. Right. right. And at the beginning of each game, everyone waits for that moment. The national, we all stand up. They sing the national anthem. They unfurl a, a hundred yard long American flag. And then two to three Navy, Air Force, whatever mm-hmm. jets fly over. And everyone's like, well, you know, like this, you know, that's their moment of patriotism. And, and you think to yourself, my God, is this cheap? I had Andrew Basovic or Basovic on the show a couple of years oh, ago. And did, he referred, yeah. yeah, he's amazing. And he referred, he calls it cheap grace. Yeah, cheap grace. Said, cheap, yeah, and I call it yeah cheap patriotism, right? Yeah. All right, let's put our money where our mouths are. You sent some to you sent your money, not yeah, your I mouth. I sent small sums of my relatively small sums of money today, since I no longer was giving on a steady steady basis to Bernie, and and I thought you know I'm not going to give to I'm not going to give to the to the Democrats. Because the billionaires basically gave us Biden, and they'll pay for Biden. That's my feeling. Okay, right. and I'm going to vote for him, but I'm not necessarily going to pay for him. Let Biden, right. let Biden talk to the billionaires, right? Right. right. And but I did th- I do think there are insurgent young Democrats who are challenging the older generation of Democrats. Not all, but some of whom I, I'm I'm even willing to say some of the, some of these Democrats are are fine people. I don't have any particular trouble with them, but it's just time for more progressive, in some cases, democratic socialist politics to be a part of the Democratic Party. We've seen the squad. We should make the squad into a company or, you know, what is it? Squad, platoon, company, eventually a battalion and eventually the whole army. Right. Mm -hmm. So I thought I should I should do something about that. And I here in northeast Wisconsin, it's just not going to happen. Um so I gave I gave a bit of money to Shahid Buttar out in the in the Bay Area. We talk about him on today's show. Great to challenge who's challenging Nancy Pelosi, who, you know, it's time for Nancy Pelosi to step aside and and act like a grandmother and start eating all that ice cream she's got in those expensive freezers that she displayed for us in her own, you know. Egomaniacal fact. I don't know how to explain it. Her inconsiderate fashion the other night, and then similarly, I'm I've given a small sum of money to Lindsey Boylan, who's on the Upper West Side of New York City, to and take on. I what, assume that's the, the Nadler seat, and right, I and right. I can tell you, once upon a time when I met Nadler, it was at a Democratic Socialists of America convention back in the nineties. He was not a member of DSA to my knowledge, but he came and spoke to DSA, which was a very ecumenical thing to do. But, you know, as these people get on, it's time to make space or at least to, to have people emerge in the party. And, and the first person I gave to today was uh, Lauren Ashcraft, who is in the district of Carolyn Maloney. And she lives 
Carolyn Maloney lives on the east side of near of Manhattan. Uh, uh, Lauren lives, I believe, across the East River over in Queens. And she's a Democratic Socialist and also a comedian. Okay. Now, I have not personally met any one of these three, though I have had a significant, you know, sort of regular exchanges with Lindsay in Manhattan and uh, Lauren over in Queens. And I like them. Mm-hmm. I like them and I like the kinds of things they stand for. And I think that they're smart and it'd be great to see them in Congress. Will that happen? I don't know. That's up to the folks who live in the districts near where you live or out in the Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah. The Democratic Socialists. Some of these people, you know, some of these people actually are getting some attention by your show, by Young Turks. Uh, I hope they're showing up on Rising in the Morning with uh, Crystal and Cigar. I mean, I, you know, Majority Report has them on, I, I would expect. Uh, so, anyhow. The Democratic Socialists, we were feeling, we, uh, yeah. I don't know if I would consider myself quite a Democrat. I guess I love Bernie. I don't, well, anyway. Two months ago, they were forced to be reckoned with. What's what's their future? What's the future for socialism? Okay. The, I, the future for, for the DSA, I think, is quite good. Okay, you know, I'll give you an example of what I mean. So, from what I remember, when Ronald Reagan was elected president, the subscriptions to the nation increased. Okay. When a Democrat probably gets elected, especially if the so-called, you know, those who call them the liberal Democrats, I expect National Review subscriptions go up. Who the hell knows? But I know that that liberal publications and progressive and socialist publications do better when we're, we're you know, we're beaten mm-hmm. in, at elections. Now, DSA saw a rapid increase in its membership as a consequence of Trump's victory. Now, if Trump wins again, I'd like to imagine DSA seems, sees a dramatic increase again. If Biden wins, I still would like to see a dramatic increase. And here's what I, here's why. I'm voting for Biden, but I'm not a neoliberal. I, I, from now to November, I will, I will not necessarily speak terribly ill of Biden, but you're sure as hell I want to push the Democrats from the left. Okay. And especially if for some reason, you know, God decides Biden's going to win, then I want to make sure that we're in a position so that they hear us. Right. But and is I he going to listen? I mean, wait, hold on. No, wait, hold on. DSA in itself. I was going to say, I don't think DSA is the force it likes to imagine itself. Right. The bigger question is how many people who might not join DSA might at least have certain sympathies with DSA. And in that sense, to what extent... Here's the big thing. DSA is not going to not going to be the specific force that mobilizes. They'll get pissed with me. I pay my dues to them, but they're going to get they get pissed with that. I think the critical thing is that there is this new. I call it now the movement media. I coined this the other day on the on the Humanist Report. Movement media, which includes everyone from the likes of you, whether you like it or not, okay, and to Michael Brooks, to the Humanist Report, to. Uh, Majority Report to the Young Turks, there is this diverse, you know, array of podcasters and radio people and online streaming video people, and and they'll get word out. The thing we need, however, and I believe in bottom-up movements, but I don't, I'm not an anarchist, I do believe that we need voices of consequence. 
And to me, the question is, who will be the voice of consequence? Admittedly, we have young people who are consequential voices in Congress, AOC, Rashida Tlaib, okay? We have... We have Bernie as a kind of elder statesman if people aren't feeling scornful about what happened. But we need more people in the middle range age, right? You know, in their later 40s and their 50s. People who can, you know, take charge of a movement that's that's yearning to, to win and to bring about radical change in America. So there's a lot of things that have to come together. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I was disappointed by Bernie's sudden flip and endorsement of Biden, that in some ways I wanted to see him better positioned to start cultivating that movement before he necessarily gave way to Biden. That's all. I mean, that's Do, looking at history. When you talk about building the social safety net in the 60s, America was doing pretty well. And so yeah. we could afford to be generous. Uh we had gone, well, when Roosevelt became president, we weren't doing well. No, it was unimaginably bad. And somehow we could afford to be generous this time around. Right, but let's not forget, Roosevelt himself did not like to give money away. What he, he believed, as most Americans did, that it wasn't simply a matter of handing somebody money. The fact is you had to engage them, engage them. That's that's a key thing there, okay? Now, admittedly, in the short term, you must provide relief. Right now, we need to put money into people's hands, not only to sustain them, but to have them spend the money, which they will necessarily do, in order to get the economy at least moving, even if it's not in a mode of recovery, at least to keep it moving, right? What are, so, but, what are we up against? Because... The Republicans, the richest 1%, are these the same exact people Roosevelt was up against? And uh, what are we up against right now? How could you look at a line that goes six miles long for food at a food bank and think, nah, the, we, we have to bail out Shake Shack first? What you know, kind of what what, what are as, they as thinking? You said, as you said that I'm recalling the early 80s when the Reagan recession struck. And all the Republicans had loved saying Americans didn't want to work, Americans didn't want to work. And as soon as a new hotel opened in Chicago, they were lined up around a full city block looking for, you know, jobs as bellhops or kitchen work or whatever. Okay? Now, I think it's the case that back in the days of Roosevelt, Roosevelt knew Americans wanted to work. He talked about two things, jobs and economic security, okay, and insisting that under no circumstances would they do things that were not in the American tradition of de progressive democracy. So, but, but we don't have that president today. We don't have that president today. And that's why Biden, even though I'm going to vote for him to save us from four more years of Trump, Biden must be pushed. Bernie needs to go once again in front of him and say, are you crazy? Are you, are you so crazy as to deny the imperatives that stare you in the face? Okay? Or is Bernie too much of a sweetheart to do that? Biden? You know, maybe, and you know what? How do we organize a, a, 
you know, some people call it a general strike. We, we really ought to have that, that one day where we direct our, our ferocity as a people at not simply Trump, okay, because he seems oblivious anyhow, but we direct it at the Democrats and demand they start remembering that they're Democrats. One good thing about Biden. Tell me one good thing about Joe Biden. One good thing? <laughs> Tell me one thing. One thing. Well, I don't know everything about him. <laughs> one good thing. Uh, one good thing. I, I'm trying not to be snotty on this. Hold on a second. Uh, one good thing. Well, I, mean, I told you the one time I really liked him was when he plagiarized Neil Kinnock, the head of the British Labour Party. <laughs> at least it showed he chose wisely in his selection of... He chose words from a democratic socialist. How do you like that? <laughs> Now Bernie should say to him, hey, look, you, you, you plagiarized Neil Kinnock. Can I write your next speech for you? <laughs> That's funny. Plagiarized for me. Name one good thing. I mean, I found myself liking him when he went up against Paul Ryan from your neck of the woods. And when he went up against Sarah Palin, I was rooting for him. I didn't know that I hated him back then. I was uh, still yeah. sipping the Kool-Aid. Yeah. What has he done that represents good? What has he ever done? It's a, rhetor it's a rhetorical question. Let's face it. It's a rhetorical question. I mean, I've already said most of his, his too much of his record is deplorable. Maybe so, de you know, de deplorable to the point where the good is shadowed so much that we can't even remember it. Hillary gave us chips. Oh, Hillary, by the way, the, here's a cocktail party question. Who's worse, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden? Biden, by far. I mean, I think Hillary genuinely wanted some type of universal health care. Hillary care, it wasn't socialized medicine, but she tried at least to do something. I'm sure you would feel it was horrendous. But okay, but then you balance that. Okay, so how about look? How about the fact that Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, set it up as a private health care commission, which sort of was the kiss of death for a start. Okay, how about the fact that Bill Clinton um, enacted? By the way, I, I don't see this as I, I mean, husband and wife. They're not they're not utterly separate entities. They've shown that over and over again. They're both sharing in the billions that they've raised since his presidency. I mean, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that Hillary's on her own and Bill's on her own. They're, they're, they're together. They're, they're partners. And the fact is that he, he pursued NAFTA, which was a Republican plan. He pushed mass incarceration, and I believe she was one of the eager beavers, okay, along with Biden. Um, I mean, over and over again, I don't remember her, her dissenting on anything Bill did. I remember being, her being something of a cheerleader most of the way along most of the way. So, I mean, frankly, I, I, I think, I, I, I don't know. I, I said it was a cocktail party dinner uh, conversation, cocktail um, party and dinner conversation. I mean, for the hell of it, I could make an argument I think Hillary's worse, but I, but I can't think of any redeeming value on the part of Biden. So I can tell you what his redeeming value is. He's goddamn better than Trump, Okay fascist reaction a guy who was willing to be nice to nazis that's not biden okay? right 
Right. Neoliberalism may be bad, but it's not, it's not true. And by the way, let me make one, let me say something else. It's our fault too. This is why, it's our fault too. The American people voted for these neoliberals over and over again. Okay? And the fact is that Obama, maybe Obama could have been a better president if we hadn't literally sort of been so pleased that Barack Obama won the presidency, that there was no opposition other than the Tea Party, okay? Where the hell was the labor movement when when Obama failed to go out to to make organizing easier in the card check system, in the fair, uh, what's it called, the the Employee Free Choice Act, EFCA? I mean, where was the labor movement then, okay? Where, Where was... Where was early on the movements that would have said to Barack Obama, we're marching on Washington because we don't want to leave the public space and the public square open for right wingers like the Tea Party. So, you know, we can blame these individuals, but it's also the case that as as bad as they were, we sat back and we saw it on Super Tuesday. You know, there was a clear choice. The Democrats, it's in controvertible they went with biden you can't say the elections were fixed against bernie more democrats preferred one could argue that along the way there were any number of efforts to fix it against bernie okay but it was the case he did win and he was the man in the lead okay so and we can blame bernie because he didn't know how to pivot and he didn't know how to talk by the way did you see the did i send you that piece from yesterday's new york Times from sunday's new york times which one it was the op- it was opinion piece by Bernie. Okay, right, we right. really need to question the, the you know the structure and the system of our nation. And he's, all of a sudden he said, you know, he he was trying to redeem. I'm paraphrasing. He was trying to redeem FDR's legacy. Well, I thought to myself, Bernie, we're well, worried. I didn't just say that in the debate. Right. I mean, it's like give me a break. Right. I was so upset. People were sending me notes saying, "How does this make you feel?" And <laughs> he's done it now. I've asked this to a couple of guests on today's show, and we'll end on this. Barack Obama, it, it's become increasingly apparent that he put his thumb on the scale. He made yes. oh, the Jesus. calls and got Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete to drop out. And Bernie to drop out. He did it. it he, he was, you don't think Biden called him. It was, it was Obama who called him. When Sorry. when you get these endorsements, when Beto goes to Texas and tells Texas to vote for Biden, how much sway does that have when Klobuchar endorses Biden, when Mayor Pete endorses Biden? Does that carry weight with their supporters? Do they immediately- well, I can't imagine Klobuchar makes a difference at all because the very people who would have voted for Klobuchar would have voted for Biden. Right. I, I don't think of Klobuchar as... Is she that different than Biden? I, I honestly don't know, okay, other than she's from Minnesota, he's from Delaware. I, so honestly, I don't know. Uh, Buttigieg, she's an irrelevance. He was an irrelevance from the from the get-go. He's just hoping that Biden doesn't win so he can run in 2024, I suppose. Okay, those pigs. So then the question really is, I mean, does it, Clyburn? Does it matter? Does, does, it, what's does it matter when Clyburn? Yeah, it seems okay. to have made a difference in South Carolina. Right. Some people even hang the some people even hang the disaster in the end on the fact that Bernie never picked up the phone to Cole Clyburn or that he didn't get Jesse Jackson to come out and get down to South Carolina stumping for him because he's a South Carolinian or has you know, those ties to South Carolina. I mean, there's, you know, that's all second guessing. 
I don't know if it's if it could make much of a difference if these people endorse or not. I mean, that's why it's so frustrating that even though I'm going to vote for Biden, the fact is that he has it. Maybe he's you know I don't know if he's just if he's losing it or he's dense. I mean, he 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 wants to be you know well liked. Well, mm-hmm. he wants to be well liked. He ought to figure out how young people can be brought in somehow because. Look, young people have a tendency not to show up to begin with. Right. So if, if you want to make it, but they will vote Democratic if they turn out. Right. So what do you do? How do you make that happen? Well, Harvey J.K., and we'll see you, I hope, Friday night. I don't not know. hope. I think of myself as your sidekick. My, uh, my, uh, my uh, Sherpa. Sherpa. <laughs> Take hold of our history. Make America radical again a collection of the professor's speeches and writings. His latest book is FDR and Democracy, the greatest speeches and writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He's also written Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, a history and biography. He's also written the British Marxist historians. I mean, you've written a lot of books, sir. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and the, <laughs> one of my—I won't ask you to read the, the titles of all of them. So. But the fight for the four freedoms, what made FDR and the greatest generation truly great, is a great read, a truly great read. Follow Harvey J K on Twitter at Harvey J K. I will see you Friday night. Thank you, yes, sir. Can I say one? Wait, can I just say one thing? Sure. Okay. Besides, thank you. Is Will I get to meet Howie Howie this Friday night, or is he not going to come at all? He, I'm trying to get Howie Klein to embrace Zoom. I think he is intrigued, and we're going to do this town hall with the candidates. And if you're available, I'll I would love to have you ask some questions. Okay, I'm I'm ready. Stay you on. Know I'll be there. Fanta- you know I'll be there. Fantastic. Can you stay on the line for one quick second? Professor. I'm already on the line. I'm staying right here. Thank you, sir. Stay on the line. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let's go to Chicago, where Dan Weissman is standing by. He is the host of the Arm and a Leg podcast that highlights what I consider the sin of America, our health care system. Thank you, Dan, for joining us. Thanks for having me. When did you start Arm and a Leg? In early 2018, I was, uh, I thought, like, I'd been working for places like WBEZ and Marketplace as a reporter, and I was I was between jobs, and I was like, you know, I don't, I, I think I might need a new career because mm-hmm. uh, I I didn't see I wasn't going to move from Chicago, and having left WBEZ, that was like the place where I could work on staff. And I was like, I don't see where I'm going to get health insurance out of this deal, uh, just working freelance, and my family needs it. So I was like, oh, I need another career, but we. Uh, we were, my family was like, you know, uh, that's going to take you a while. You could do something else if you wanted to. <laughs> they, or rather, excuse me, 
they were they were receptive. Like, oh, with that cough, I hope you have health insurance. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I I I told I said to my family like, look, how about I take a week and explore this crazy idea? I'm not the only person who whose whole life is about like, where do I get the health insurance from? How how's that going to work? We can't be exposed to this. Mm-hmm. And I took a week and started talking to them. And I was like, you know, I think I'm onto something. Right. So I right. started working on the show at the beginning of 2018. We launched in November 2018. Right. And we wrapped we wrapped season three uh, at the beginning of this year, and now uh, now it's season nineteen. Right. It's a a, well, it's season nineteen because of COVID nineteen. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You and Kellyanne Conway have been working oh, with yeah? the numbers. Is she is she taking my bit? Uh, well, no. She's you know said things like uh, there have been nineteen. There were 18 COVIDs before this one. She didn't understand that it's named after 2019. Your weekly podcast focuses specifically on health care and insurance. That is. It's the cost of health care, right? It's an arm and a leg. Yes. And you focus specifically on surprise bills and the nightmare of trying to pay for getting sick. What is the most outrageous story? You've heard, I would think, hundreds of outrageous stories. What is the most outrageous, the one that just you wake up in the middle of the night and say, I cannot believe that somebody from a health insurance company did that? It's a super good question. And I, I should say, like, the premise of the show is that this is a show about the cost of healthcare that aims to be more entertaining and empowering and occasionally useful than enraging and terrifying and depressing. But like the whole, the whole idea is like, cause I wouldn't tune in every week to something that was like, Hey, uh, I got something. If you thought last week, which in a bad mood, wait till you see what I got for you now. So I, I, I tried, I actually am not tuned in specifically to like, what's the worst channel, but, but I'll, and I'll, it's funny cause this is the story that we do where I was like, this is a great story. And, and true to my, Expectations, people. We lost listeners the following week, but this story was uh, Be- because it was so depressing. That's my hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. we'd been we'd been getting more listeners every week, and we ran this story, and the next week, like fewer people listened. And I was like, "Ooh, okay." Yeah, I see. My I thing is, you have to lower the bar. I believe with podcasting, the audience should know they're going to walk away from this show. You know, on the you know about to jump. So, but you, you you, right. So this, in this case, I, the, the week we launched the show, I've, I've always been like, Hey, send me your stories. I want to hear what's going on. And people wrote to me, they were like, help couple in Minnesota, pregnant woman in Minnesota needs help. And they were, this was November. And they said, Oh, in, in September, beginning of October, we were like five, six months pregnant the first time. And so then we got, we heard from our health insurance company. They were like, yeah, we're dropping you. You didn't pay. We were like, we paid. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And they just could not get anybody on the phone no, to, to take the next step with them. They had no idea what went wrong. And the, the, the health insurance company was like, nah, no, we're done with you. And they were like, what is going on? And, and while they were in the middle of all this, the pregnancy ran into complications. So they were writing to me like from a hospital room. Mm-hmm. It was their second stint in a hospital room. And, you know, they, 
they they were very resourceful people, and they wrote to everybody they could think of. And eventually, like, their U.S. senator, it sounds like, hooked them up with somebody from the state who was like, I'm going to help you solve this. And by the time I actually, you know, interviewed them at length a few months later, this was in March, and their baby was born, the baby was healthy, uh, they were okay. Uh, this, this person from the state had hooked them up with this, like, other insurance plan. They had not been able to get them reinstated. Nobody really knew what this is after wrong. Obamacare. This is after Obamacare, right? Right. This is after Obamacare, and uh, and they were still going to be out like the which meant like the hospital bills if they were really uninsured that they knew about were in the twenty thousand dollar range, and with this with if they'd had their old insurance it would have been like in the zero dollar range, mm-hmm. and with this kind of backup plan it was like in the ten thousand dollar range. And this was like where they had landed. And the funny thing was, of course, you know, after interviewing them before we released the episode, I called their health insurance company and I was like, Hey, uh, so here's, here's the story. Here's what I got. Uh, what's your comment? And they're like, we'll call you tomorrow. And you know, b- the next morning I was like, what do you got? They're like, we'll call you in a few hours. And before that happened, I got a call from Corey and Caitlin, the couple in question. They were like, yes, who we just heard from it was their health insurance company being like, we want to make this right. And and as far as I know, they did. And they ended up, you know, retroactively reinstated on their insurance. So there were a couple of things that made this especially wild. And one was, while I was reporting the story, I found there were other people who had the exact same experience with this same health insurance plan. And the health insurance plan was like, this is legal. The thing that happened next was, I, before we released the story, I wanted to know, like, could this possibly be legal? And I spent, like, a couple of weeks. Well, so you're saying that a couple of – what was the insurance company? Uh, health Partners health. in Minnesota. And who are they it's, owned it's, by? Uh, I, it's a good question. I think they are their own entity. They're like, a, And they're like a local hospital chain uh, that also offers a kind of insurance product that covers their – Hospitals and this couple had like spent a whole weekend because they they enrolled through Obamacare like a whole weekend before any of this happened like figuring out well what insurance do we want we think we want to have a kid and they were like we think we want to have the kid they were real planners they were like so they had been paying they had been paying their premiums oh yeah 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 and then because of a bureaucratic bug one of their payments didn't go through. Basically, and they're immediately cut off without anybody saying, "Hey, we didn't get your payment." No, right, no questions, right, right. And so I, I call. I was like, "How can this?" But what is be the legal? thinking behind that? If you're an insurance company, yeah. why would you cut yeah. somebody off? Don't you want their business? Super good question. I mean, you don't want their business if you. I mean, oh, this is such a good question. You don't want their business. If they're not going to pay you every month, I guess is one. And especially if they're only going to like, they're going to be like, yeah, you know, we stopped paying your bill, but now we're sick. So we want our insurance back. Right. Then if you're the insurance guy, you're like, hey, but in this case, second, was she going to the, did they see a lot of bills from the, uh, no, they had a totally, they had a totally uncomplicated pregnancy. And, and as far as I can tell, there was nothing personal, you know, in as far as I can tell, but it doesn't sound like a, it doesn't sound like an efficient business decision. Right, right. Don't you want people to? So what is, so what is the thinking? Why cut somebody off? I I think, I think the thinking is that you want people paying every month. And what you don't want is what the, the term that the nerds use for this, that I've become this kind of nerd. The nerds use for this is called adverse selection. 
and I still don't really understand where that term comes from, but what it means is basically like you don't want someone signing up for insurance because they're sick. You want someone if they're like you don't want someone being like I didn't need health insurance, but, but now that I'm looking at a hospital bill, but this I'm is not the case. But this wasn't the case right. with this woman, right. right? Right, 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 right. I think again, like I, I never, you know, the people at the insurance company did not talk to me, but the uh, other than to say like we'll call you tomorrow, but but I think the thinking is like, look, if we let you not pay us this month and then come back to us when you want and say, I want to be reinstated, then we think you're probably only coming back to us because you ran into trouble and now you've got a bill you want us to pay. Okay. And that's not how we, that's not how we work. So the, the economics of health insurance defy logic, surprise bills. We hear about them all the time. I read somewhere that a woman got a flu test and a surprise bill showed up for like $30,000. Could be. Totally could for, be. For a basic test to see whether or not she had the flu. Her doctor calls her up and says, look, if you uh, come over and she had to do something to help him get paid by the insurance company. He said, if you come over and give me the the insurance voucher i'll waive your copay and she did and he got something like you know twenty eight thousand dollars yeah yeah from the insurance twenty eight thousand bucks yeah this is from one of those surprise bills and i'm thinking well hold it we're told that there's an efficiency to the free market why would a health insurance company agree to pay a doctor twenty eight thousand dollars for a flu test. What's yeah. the incentive yeah. on the part of the health insurance company to pay these bills? This is such a good question. This is such a good question. I, 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 I become the kind of nerd who, who's going to say like, okay, well, wait, there's two things here. I become the kind of nerd who's going to say like, well, wait, a surprise bill is when you get a bill from somebody who you saw who surprise doesn't take your insurance. Now they're like, we want all this money from you. And what you're talking about is this other thing where the insurance company has agreed to cover something that seems totally ridiculous. And yeah, I, uh, I learned, I learned, I, I had the same question because I, I, I met a guy who, uh, who got a brace for his leg at the hospital. He like went to the doctor, the doctor says, you need a leg brace. I'll give it to one downstairs. Uh, and he gets it and he, he loves it and he looks it up on Amazon. He's like, what would I, how much does this thing cost? And he finds it for like 150, 200 bucks. And he's like, I wonder what they're going to charge for it, though, really. And uh, the, the doctor's office was like, or the hospital was like, 1600 bucks. And the insurance company, you know, according to their little statement, was like, no, 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 that's too much. We're only going to pay you 600 bucks. And this guy had not paid his deductible. So they were like, hey, guy, uh, have fun paying 600 bucks for this leg brace that you could have ordered on Amazon for 200 bucks. And this raises this question of, like, why would an insurance company agree to this? And so this is how, this is how I've come to understand it. Um, I talked with a reporter who, who covered this stuff and basically bigger healthcare enterprises can have insurance companies more or less over a barrel. Like she looked at obstetricians in the Bay Area when they got paid by insurance. She talked to a small practitioner who was like, uh, 
I, I keep asking them for a raise. I don't get one. She found that independent practitioners got 2000 bucks to deliver a baby. If those practitioners work for Stanford Medicine, insurance paid them 5000 If they work for the University of California, insurance paid them 8000 And it's like, why is that? It's because what the, what the insurance company told this individual doctor was like, you don't got any market power. You don't like what we're offering. Don't take our insurance. But if they, if they go to Stanford Medicine, Stanford Medicine is like, Hey pal, it costs six, five thousand bucks to deliver a baby here. You don't like it. Have fun selling a Blue Cross policy. It does not take Stanford insurance, Stanford Medicine. Your customers aren't going to like it very much. And the insurance company on their side, you know, rather than being like, we're going to drive a tough bargain with you, they're like, okay. And then they turn around to whoever their customer is, whether it's an employer or an individual and say like, Hey, that policy that you want that covers Stanford medicine, we had to raise the premium because they keep jacking the price up on us. It's like nobody on, on the business end of it, whether you know on the insurance company end of it really has a compelling reason to a compelling incentive to negotiate prices down. So the logic of the free market, market is defied. I mean, you know, the, the the logic of the free market is working great for Stanford Medicine. It's working fine for the insurance companies. They are they're in business. They are negotiating deals in which they don't lose money. It's working great for them. United uh, Healthcare is doing fine even during the the downturn. In fact, healthcare stocks are. I think healthcare stocks are only down about five percent while. The, the 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 stock market is down something like twenty percent. Without that mm-hmm. negotiating power, they still seem to do well, and they've done especially well under Obamacare. Well, they do again. This this setup is not one where like they don't they don't have an incentive to negotiate really hard, right? They have incentives to offer policies that cover Stanford medicine. They're going to, they're going to agree to pay whatever Stanford medicine asks. And then they're going to turn around and hit us with premiums to back that up. Right. Their whole, their whole business model is just like, we take money from you. We, we get enough money from you so that when we pay out bills to them, the providers, we're left with something for ourselves. And uh, we've got a whole army of actuaries and everybody else to make sure that it works. Right. I mean, they're, that's, you know, they're like, we got a business model here. It's great. And under Obamacare, you know, they got more customers, mm-hmm. right? People who had, who, who hadn't been able to buy insurance now are buying insurance, but they're setting prices and, and designing products to offer that make sure that they don't lose money. I mean, essentially when you buy a health insurance policy, you're buying, you know, this like piece of financial engineering. It's like buying a derivatives contract, right? Right. right? I mean, it's been designed by this whole team of, of financial wizards. But, you know, if you were buying a derivatives contract, you have to be like a certified investor. You've got somebody looking out for you. You're analyzing this financial instrument that you're buying. You're buying an insurance policy. You're just like, I'm on healthcare.gov. I guess this is what I'm getting. Or like right. my employer was like, these are the insurance policies that we offer. Like, that's what you got. I mean, that that's what it is. It's a disgrace, you know. Bernie wanted to put these health insurance companies out of business after Super Tuesday, the day after Super Tuesday, healthcare stocks jumped about 10%, 9% when it became apparent that 
Vice President Biden was going to be the nominee. They were so terrified that Bernie was going to put them out of business. You have about six million people working in health care who earn less than $30,000 a year. You have about six million people working. I guess that would be is 30,000 the poverty level. That's pretty close to it, right? I don't know. I don't know. Is this a quiz? I don't know. No, but it's not. It, like, it's not. But it's it's not a whole lot of money. Not a whole lot of money. Six yeah. million people working for these health care companies, making yeah. less than thirty thousand dollars a year. Half yeah. of them are non-white. Eighty-three percent of them are women, which suggests there are probably children who have to be taken care of. Do we know if they get health insurance? Do we have any uh, stats on the numbers of doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals who don't have the product they deliver? I do not, but I do have a really outrageous story for you. Okay. Okay. So this was, and this is like, like came to light by through the efforts of this amazing reporter named Wendy Thomas in Memphis where she learned that the biggest hospital in town was suing thousands of its own patients over unpaid bills, like garnishing their wages. Mm -hmm. She found that that included lots of their own badly paid employees. And I was like, how did you know that they were suing their own employees? She was like, well, I showed up in court. You could see them in their scrubs with their Methodist hospital badge. That's incredible. I know. I so know. when did it, this start? When did non The other thing that is so confusing about this is a non-profit hospital still gouges the customers and still rips off the insurance companies. So a non-profit is, you know, is what you decide it is if you decide that's the business that you're in. And yeah, non-profit hospitals is no there's no the, the, this hospital was had mil- had surpluses in the millions of dollars every year, and you can pay the administrators a couple hundred oh, thousand dollars a year. The doctor who runs the hospital, Absolutely. you know, Mount Sinai Hospital here in New York. I have to assume that's nonprofit. The guy who runs it makes six million dollars a year. He refused to leave his condo in Florida to come back to Manhattan and help during the Corona virus because he said it was too dangerous for him. That's wow. a nonprofit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I visited this hospital. I went to Memphis and met Wendy Thomas and visited that hospital. It was a nice building, right? Somebody had, somebody had built a new wing. They put really beautiful original art on the walls. It was highly designed. I mean, one of the things that I'm interested in is like, we're, yeah, we spend like three trillion, three point some trillion dollars on healthcare in this country. Every year. And it's a lot, you know, enough to buy a lot of N95 masks for healthcare mm-hmm. workers. I'm like, yeah, where, where does it end up? How many million plus dollar salaries are there and who's getting them? And capital expenditures, building, yeah. building, buying yeah. land, expanding, expanding. For what? For what? I, I don't understand our healthcare system in the United States and Somebody, somebody is, <laughs> I, I blame the doctors. I, I do. I, okay. I think at some okay. point I blame, the, you know, there are about 200 medical schools in this country. 
And you would think the doctors would say we were we went to medical school to save lives, not figure out how to get paid by these insurance companies. Why aren't they striking? Why aren't they speaking? Speaking. I mean, it's 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 a good question. In some cases, they don't know. They don't know what their own hospital is up to. So like when 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 stories come out about hospitals, there have been a few in the last year, some really good pieces of reporting about hospitals suing patients, garnishing their wages. People who just are getting totally shafted in in some of those cases. Doctor like doctors get together and write letters and get them published. They're like, we didn't get into this to, to do this to our patients. This was not. But where are, where, and they, they write letters to the board of directors of the hospitals and like, get this to stop. This isn't okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so, so most hospitals are nonprofit. As far as I, I mean, I'm, I'm not looking at the figures, but I think that's probably true. But there, millions there of dollars of, are going yeah. in and out of these hospitals. Yeah. And now another bailout bill seems to be going through Congress and Trump is going to sign it. I think they're going to give like another 50 billion, 100 billion dollars to the hospital so they can get the PPEs and the and the ventilators. Uh, why don't they have with all that money? Why aren't they prepared? Why are these uh, nursing homes unprepared? You know, I, I talked the episode we're putting out this week. I talked with a guy who's he's a doctor now. Uh, he spent before when in medical school, he spent 10 years on the finance side working with the insurance industry. And so he's been on the inside. I mean, you and me, we can observe it. It's not too hard. But he's like, look, you know, the, 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 these companies like insurance companies, pharma companies, lots of other companies are doing what they're designed to do, which is make money. They've gotten very good at creating efficiency, you know, for, for, to, in order to create more profit for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that means like working the, like the workers work harder. Sometimes for less money, like you were talking about. Um, and what that means is, uh, he talked about a story where he, uh, last summer, he was working in a hospital that was right in the path of the Saddle Ridge fire near LA. And, uh, the fire came really close to the hospital. And then at the last minute, like scores and scores of fire trucks showed up and saved the hospital. And he was like, as I was driving home that night, I was like, this is public safety. It's built on latent capacity. You know, you've got trucks and people around overprepared for emergencies. And that is exactly what all of the kind of efficiencies of capitalism have very, very effectively pulled out of healthcare. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Unlike the rest of the industrialized world. I seems like it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and infant mortality is on the rise in the United States. Women giving birth are more likely to die in the United States than any other industrialized country. When do we wake up and say these health insurance companies have to be put out of business? That's an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 we get into the big picture questions, right? Of like, okay, how do you, how do you change the big picture in a country like the United States? And obviously, you know, you, you do it through political pressure and, and where do you get the levers for political power? Like we're getting outside of my, what the area that I've chosen to, to look at. I mean, I, I talk to healthcare as I read what they say and they do say that like, look, you've got countries with better outcomes than ours 
and better, you know, and like that spend per capita a lot less money on healthcare that have insurance companies, right? Where like, I think Germany is one of them. Where it's, it's not like having insurance companies is by itself the problem. It's just, it's like we've decided over time. I mean, I, I, my impression is that we've, we let it become a super profitable business and that the, that our system of government really rewards and has come over the last bunch of decades more and more to really reward, you know, big interests who have the money to go fund political campaigns, get themselves heard in, in, in Congress and in state legislatures and put out big propaganda campaigns. Propaganda. Cause they, it, they have to rely on propaganda because the truth is unsustainable. Ugh. Life expectancy in the United States is going down. I think we have the lowest life expectancy in the industrialized world now. So, right. so. How do you argue in favor of this current system without propaganda, without without lying? It's uh, uh, I think about the you're reminding me of that movie. Thank you for smoking. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's like yeah. This is a this is a people. This is not the only instance where we've had armies of people in the business of defending what seems really like something indefensible. Well, one would think that this pandemic would lay bare the the flaws of our health care system and people would come to their senses. But that's not going to happen. Well, it depends on which people. Right. Like when you say people would come to their senses, well, which people are we talking about? Because the, be the people who want Medicare for all. The argument is going to be against government. The CDC had tests that didn't work. They, they dropped the ball on the tests and they didn't outsource them to, uh, the, the, the companies, the, the companies that conduct, uh, that make these tests. So the argument is going to be the, the government can't do anything right. The CDC kits didn't work and it should have been farmed out to private enterprise. They're going to say private enterprise is better than, than government healthcare. I see it. I, I see the propaganda machines revving up to, to blame government health care on uh, the pandemic. They're going to blame the pandemic on government health care. I see it happening. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of getting the, me down here. Yes. Yeah, the sloppy. <laughs> la- I, I can hear the listeners going away. The sloppy laboratory practices at the Centers yeah. for Disease Control. And that, I mean, if when you, I mean, right, it's, it's very, very effective to turn around and, and find someone to blame, find someone to like, to tell, to tell the people who to be mad at. It's, uh, it's sadly a super effective thing to do. Well, are you hopeful? Um, by disposition, I am, I, I work hard to, by disposition, I'm a depressed person, honestly. By disposition, I'm anxious and depressed. And I've, worked really hard over like for as long as I can remember to kind of like find ways to keep that from uh, totally immobilizing me. Yeah. You're a professional journal. You're a professional journalist. Yeah. Something like 25,000 journalists in this country since the pandemic started have either been furloughed or forced to take a pay cut. Yeah. 
I mean, it's almost as though the stars have aligned for this country to slip into a totalitarian state. No journalism. People, I mean, what what caused this? What caused the the, the idea of being a journalist uh, becoming an unsustainable way to make a living man i certainly thought about that you probably have too and i uh by disposition i'm like man i'm not getting into that dude I'm, i can't I, i'll spend until it's gonna be tequila o'clock and i still got work to do right but but it, you know the there were there were books for years about like oh man and just the the the, the quick history right like there were books for years about like oh man there's all this consolidation corporatization um, and the people who end up owning newspapers want to make more and more and more money. The internet happened. Those people were used to just making money hand over fist mm-hmm. and have continued to look for the fastest way to make an extra dollar, even as, even as the things that made newspapers so profitable went away, like running classified ads, mm-hmm. like Craigslist just like killed stuff. And, and that continues to happen. And so, the, you know, in my, where I live in Chicago, you know, this, this hedge fund has taken a big position in the Chicago Tribune. They've said like, we're not going to take a majority interest till June, but their model is, yeah, like get rid of as many journalists as you can, like make the product as crummy as it can possibly be and still put it out. Cause there will still be people who pay for it. There will still be advertisers. There's still money to be juiced from it. Right. Um, and real you know, estate. The buildings there's, and there's yeah, the money to be made. They, the, 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 the last round of, of rapacious capitalists sold the building. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. And there's money to yeah. be made in putting debt on the company you just yeah. purchased and yes. driving it out of business. You can pay yourself enormous fees by making a kind of company go bankrupt. You, the same way you can yes. run a nonprofit hospital and pay yourself enormous fees. Somewhere along the line, we need a, a, a justice department and a Congress that cracks down on this craven, opportunistic financial sector that is killing us, it, literally killing us, literally, literally killing us. Well, Dan Weissman is the creator and host of the podcast An Arm and a Leg. How do people get your podcast? You uh, you can look for us anywhere you like to get podcasts. We are an arm and a leg, or you go to our website. It's armandalegshow.com. And you have a Patreon account. Oh, yeah. Yeah, patreon.com slash armandalegshow. People are, we are, we are largely supported by listeners. Okay, great. If you work for a health insurance company, if your job is to sit on the phone and say, no, nah, we're not paying uh, for the chemo for your six-year-old. That's your job. Yeah. Are you a victim of a system or are you a bad person? Because you're in the weeds dealing with these people. Yeah. You know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, Bernie wants to close the health insurance companies. But, you know, three million people work in those buildings. Yeah. And I say, I say, uh, if anybody, this is my personal opinion. Yeah. If anybody should end up on the street, poor and bankrupt, 
It should be the, the people who work for health insurance companies. At some point, you have to hold them accountable. And you can't say, well, they have a hungry mouth to feed. Well, I don't know. I mean, do you? Well, I, I don't know. This. I mean, we get into all kinds. Of, I mean, I don't know, because like you just get into places where it's like in, it's like in Pittsburgh, apparently, like those jobs in those call centers. Right. It's like there, there haven't been any steel mills really in, in Pittsburgh for kind of a while or not in, you know, way less than there were. And that's where the jobs are. Like it's one. It's the banality of evil. You you're given a job and mm-hmm. enough plausible deniability that you don't get to see how your phone call killed somebody. That's the system they have set up where you really don't get to see the results of your decision. How do we get people to quit working for health insurance companies? How do we shame them? Because they're bad people. You can, you know, just because you don't know that you're doing it, they are. They're bad people. You can't just blame the health insurance executives. You have to also blame the people on the ground who are just following orders. I'm sorry, what? You remember the movie The Incredibles? That was that guy's job. What? The movie, in the movie The Incredibles, like right there, right there, they can't be superheroes. So the guys have a regular job, and that's his job. There's like this little old lady coming to him at the beginning of the movie. She's like, "Well, uh, I'm gonna be bankrupt," and he's like, he, he, he kind of has this quiet moment of rebellion. He's like, "Well, I can't tell you," and he gives her a notepad like to talk to Mrs. What's her name in room three o five, and I can't tell you to give her these were these special code words. Right. But yeah, I mean, these are these are. You know, for lots of people, these are the jobs that they have. I don't know. I mean, do you also think that people who work for, who work at a gas station, who work, you know, on an oil rig, who work uh, farming tobacco, which people still do. Uh, or or own a mutual to, fund that owns stock uh, in an in ExxonMobil. I understand what you're saying, but, you know, when you're making that call to the the person at the health insurance company, and they're saying no. That That's different from the person who works the cash register at a gas station. You're on the phone saying to a doctor, no, we're not paying for this. When you know that when you say no, somebody's not getting their medical treatment, that's – it's. That, you, you have to know that there's a difference between that and – pumping gas. You're killing somebody immediately. I think the problem is Americans after World War II decided against collective guilt. We said we will not hold <laughs> we will not hold Germany accountable for the actions of the Nazis that they were not willing participants and we just we held the Nuremberg trials and we said we're just going to get the higher ups, but we're not going to blame the German people for this. That was a decision we made. We don't believe in collective guilt. Uh, I think we apply that to ourselves here in the United States. We, we're too easy on the people who do really bad things and cause the most damage. We lock up, you know, people with a couple ounces of cocaine on them. But the really, really bad people, there's there's no collective guilt. It's, you know, moral relativism. What's the difference between 
you know, uh, a health insurance executive who doesn't want to pay for chemo for a six-year-old and somebody who works the cash register at a gas station. You know, we're all to blame. Eh, I don't buy that. I think I think at some point you have to start shaming people who work in work for health insurance companies who deny the claims. And when you're fighting for Medicare for all and people say to you, well, three million people are going to lose their job at the health insurance companies. I think the proper response is good. Good. I I, I hope they end up on I hope they end up on the street starving. That's my. I, well, I disagree with you in two ways, and one of them is one of them is that seems like a crummy political strategy. Like Pennsylvania is a swing state, Pittsburgh is a big populous city. Like that seems like a bad strategy. Yeah. The other, the other is I, I think you know find something better for those people to do. I mean, it's certainly like I, I, I looked it up. Like when I started seeing that number, like three million people out of work. Like what does that mean? Or two million people in this number? I, I was like, how does that compare to the number of jobs that were saved by the auto industry bailout? The answer is. It's a lot more. And that's not that's not a good reason to run our current system as a jobs program so that people have jobs denying other people health care. That's hmm. that I don't think that, I'm not saying right. that. But I'm saying like, okay, well we made a pretty big investment to like help people stay keep jobs making cars. Maybe right. we can make a big public investment like finding better stuff for people. And, that, a, and that's hey, in I, Bernie's I, that's yeah. in Bernie and Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for All bill. Re, a five year retraining and reimbursement for these quote unquote people who work for health insurance companies. All right, I'll let you go. You know where <laughs> I stand. I'm kicking I, you know, I gotta decide whether or not uh I'm gonna vote for Biden. And that's a whole other issue. Dan Weissman. What's your what's your wait, what's your what's your, uh what's your alternative? Well, yeah. Well, you know, that's the alternative would have been for Barack Obama to keep his mouth shut and his hands off the scale and let the uh, primaries take place. I mean, he really stepped in and manipulated. I mean, the more I read, you know, he got Beto and he got uh, Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar to all drop out and rally behind the worst candidate the Democrats have run in my lifetime. That's the work of Barack Obama. The more I read, he was quietly working behind the scenes. And a lot of people complain about McCain for giving us Sarah Palin. I think Barack Obama one day we'll look back and blame him for Joe Biden, who can't even string a sentence together. And even at the height of this pandemic, says he would veto Medicare for all. This is not the candidate the Democrats should be pushing at this time. So when you say, what's the alternative? You're right. Well, we didn't have an we, we had an alternative. It was Bernie or at least Elizabeth Warren. But uh, Barack Obama from uh, your neck of the woods. He claimed he was staying out of it, but he wasn't. And uh, he influenced those primaries. You know, Ouch. he did. That's not what you agreed to. You didn't sign up for this. You came on to promote yeah, uh, man. your arm and leg. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. like, well, I didn't know. I didn't realize I was getting into this. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Weissman is the host of the Arm and a Leg podcast. Can you stay on the line for one second? That was a lot of fun. Thank you. Great talking with you. We believe in democracy, not oligarchy.
Today, we say to the private health insurance companies, whether you like it or not, the United States will join every other major country on earth and guarantee health care to all people as a right. a human right, not a privilege, and together we will pass a Medicare for all single-payer program. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. We're coming to you live from Liberty University. (laughs) Good kids, good kids. Please welcome the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy club chain in North America, perhaps the world. My friend, your friend, we love him, Mark Breslin. Hello, Mark. Welcome to Liberty University. Well, thank you. Now, Christian comedy, this is a phenomenon. Clean, right? What do they talk about? This is interesting because they don't talk about Jesus. They do not talk about the Bible. You'd expect them to. What they talk about is the family Hmm. because the family is the, you know, sort of uh, the, the, the primary unit of faith as far as they are concerned. I know a number of Christian comics, and some of them are pretty funny. Leland Klassen um, is a guy who's a Christian comic, and he lives out in um, the middle of British Columbia. Very handsome guy. um, Has like a good hour and a half's worth of material. Almost never does comedy clubs. He's done Yuck Yucks a couple of times, and he's done okay. Um, I don't think it gave the audience what they were really, that sort of illicit thrill that they were looking for. But um, he's he certainly done okay. And he was part of the, um, the that a series that uh, Comedy, no, not Comedy Central, but CNN did on comedy. Do you remember? This was oh, last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they did, they did a, um, they did a, um, an episode which included Christian comedy, and they followed him around, and they taped him at Yuck Yucks, and um, and he's quite good, Leland Klassen. Um, there's another guy I used to work with named Andy Andrews a long, long time ago in the 80s, um, and he was also a Christian, uh, Christian uh, comic, and he used to do only religious universities. Hmm. Um, I guess, I don't know what those are. What are those? Well, here at Liberty. Yeah, Liberty. I guess they're universities where you actually believe you might graduate with something that would help you in in your life. Um, that's the faith that's that's in a Christian university. So, um, thank you. So, um, uh, so he was so he was pretty good. Um, 
but um, there's certainly not a lot of them. They don't do comedy clubs. Um, I know of a Jewish comic in uh, two Jewish comics, I think, in the states that are excellent that do not do comedy clubs. They only do uh, uh, synagogues. Robert Kate is one of them, and he's fantastic. Do you know him? No, no. You know of him? No, I guess you wouldn't know of him because unless you're on that circuit, um, you, you would know him. And I don't think Mark Schiff from New York from long ago, who has become a religious Jew, I don't think he works uh, regular comedy clubs. I think he only does synagogues as well. Both of them have an issue with uh, working conventional comedy clubs because they will not work Friday nights. And if you don't work a Friday night, how can you get a week's booking in a comedy club? Right, right, right. Well, I mean, there are loopholes. There are loopholes around that. You can perform, not get paid, have it deferred. There are a thousand loopholes that they've invented. Um, I believe they think it's work. They're they're orthodox, but they're not orthodox, big hat orthodox. They're not big hat orthodox at all. Um, So... I think we call I think we call them all hat no shtetl down in yeah, Texas. That's funny. I don't know that's what that means. Funny. It sounds funny. I don't know what it means though. Yeah, all hat no shtetl. That's really funny. <laughs> um, oh, hang on. Let me just figure out what that joke means. Because in Texas they say all hat no cattle, which means you're a fraud. Right. Yeah. And all hat, no shtetl. Would that's mean, funny. It's funny. You don't have to. You don't have to rewrite it. It's okay. Good. All right. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. Um, so, you know, there's, um, there's, it's interesting because I think, um, you would never find, uh, more, um, atheists in any particular, um, in any particular, uh, profession than in comedy. A non- an enormous number of comics are atheist, um, are atheist identified. In fact, we even did, and we tried this, uh, yuck, yuck show called you know uh, something like um you know comedy uh, comedy for atheists and we had you know six or seven very strongly identified uh, comics who were atheists doing stuff um and it drew pretty well but the problem was nobody had a lot of material on it they'd come on they'd do their three four jokes about atheism and then they'd go back to their regular act mm-hmm. um, which was disappointing which is why we didn't do it again right right but you know to be a comic is to be a part of the official opposition it's not about faith. It's about skepticism. So it would be natural for a um, for a comic to to be an atheist. It's not strange at all. So if I you're... have no idea, however, I have no idea, however, how how Jerry Lewis felt about this. <laughs> if you're a religious comic and you're only playing to religious groups, how could you possibly be funny? There's no danger there. It's just no. reassuring. That, no. Sure, but well, think of it this way: it's a corporate, and you know, corporates—they um, don't want anything that's uh, anything but reassuring. So it's just a corporate with a, a particular—they've got a—they've got their particular industry that can't be insulted. Right. No different than you know, if you did um, an insurance company, you can't make insurance company jokes. Well, let's um, yeah, let's talk about this global shutdown. Something like two and a half billion people around the planet can't leave their homes. And that's not just the agoraphobia. It's in lockdown. And one of the great things about this is you can't go to religious services. Now, 
Are people going to come back? They keep talking about, will people come back to movies? Will they come back to comedy clubs? Is organized religion in trouble? Are people going to wake up to the fact that, you know what? I haven't gone to my, I haven't seen my pastor, my rabbi in a month. And you know what? I'm no worse for the wear. Do you think fewer and fewer? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say this, but there is probably nothing in the world that is more uh, that that is is safer than religion when it comes to to building an audience. I'm telling you, as soon as this is all over, people will be flocking to the churches, flocking to the synagogues, and flocking to the mosques. They want they want back in. They want. Back and I in. say, I say, go flock off. <laughs> You know, if that's what you believe. Now, in, um, in America... I haven't, been, I haven't been in a synagogue in, I don't know, forever. I, I had to go for a bar mitzvah um, a while ago, but I, I, I never go. I never go. In America, there is this resistance to the lockdown. They're saying it's infringing on our, our freedoms. In Canada, are they resisting this? Are people protesting the lockdown? No. No, everybody's uh, everybody's on board with it. Uh, I'm sure there are people who who feel it's gone too far and that the economy is going to be. I mean, somebody made a uh, an interesting comment that more people will die of bankruptcies than they will of the COVID itself. And um, I, I know that there's certainly people who feel that it's gone too far, um, that it should be like Sweden, where um, it's voluntary. If you want to take the risk, go out, take the risk. And, you know, Sweden's numbers are higher than mo- most of Scandinavia, but not that much higher, which is mm-hmm. interesting. Right. Right. Well, the uh, the rap against Trump is America was. Comp- oh, where do you start? Come on. I'm going to defend him in a way. Not that, you know, All just because right. you can't do a sh- You know, there's no conversation unless somebody's being the asshole. I'll be the asshole. The PPEs. Okay. It seems like around the world, nobody has enough masks. Nobody has enough testing. Nobody well, has the enough. Masks, the masks are a problem even on Halloween. I find that <laughs> when I go out to get stuff for my kid, um, you know, all the Minecraft stuff is gone. It's, it's a problem. It's always been a problem, and I think it's maybe taken this <laughs> horrible thing to finally bring this problem to light right absolutely are you getting reports in canada that they're they're not doing enough testing that there aren't enough yes okay so it's not strictly an american this is so this isn't about our health care system primarily you know primarily it's about a lot of things it's a lot it's about having been caught with our pants down uh, not realizing that this was going to be as serious as possible. If there's a certain North American and Western European um, attitude that, oh, it happens in third world countries, this doesn't happen to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the arrogance that has, you know, created a lot of deaths and a lot of sickness if we'd gotten on it sooner. But nobody really, really believed it could happen here. And it did happen here. It is happening here. And are you, you're, you're, every time I pick up the paper, I'm seeing things that smell like America. You had a shooting in Nova Scotia. Oh, yeah. Nursing homes. Yeah. 
yeah, are being abandoned. Course. These are things that you expect from a third world country like America. No, they happen in the third world country like Canada. Um, but uh, it's it's we're different from you, but we're not completely different from you. How are you holding? You should up? remember that. Yeah. How are you holding? Well, up? you know, Simon and Garfunkel once sang, "Every um, every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines." Unfortunately, I don't smoke, and they've stopped publishing magazines, <laughs> so I'm in real trouble. How long has it been since you've been outside? I have not been outside. I swear to you, for more than a month. I have not um, stepped outside. From I went the- shopping last Monday. I'll probably go do some shopping today. I'll wear a mask. I'll wear my gloves. I'll stand six feet from everybody. I won't go into a big supermarket. I'll go into a small place and kind of an upscale place where they they really they have lots of people making sure you stay away from everybody. You can only the place I go to the only one person can go into the produce section at a time. They monitor it pretty darn well. So um, um, so I'm doing that. I have to go to the bank today, but they don't have to stand in line. I just have to use the, you know, the instant teller. So other, but otherwise, I'm inside. Um, the, as I've said, the inside part doesn't bother me because I'm not a big uh, go-to-the-park kind of guy anyway. Um, it would bother me much more if this were the summer and I couldn't go to a pool. That would bother me. But... Right now, I mean, it's not that I'm being inside. It's that there's a whole bunch of other insides I can't go to. I can't go to a movie. I can't go to a restaurant. I can't go to my office. These are the things that I love. I love to do. What do you miss most? But you know, can I tell you? Can I tell you sure. something? When I'm on my de- when I'm on my deathbed, um, I'm go- I'm going to be that rare guy who says, "I only wish I'd spent more time at the office." <laughs> Because here's the thing, David, to be honest, when you spend, you know, all this time with your family, um, nonstop, and, and I spend quite a bit of time with my family anyway, mm-hmm. uh, just because of my age and I don't have to work, you know, every day and all the rest of that, um, I'm kind of the opposite of most people. I like to go to the office to feel um, honest and authentic. Uh, but then when I come home, my life is a bit of a fraud. Because you're not in charge. At home. That's right. That's right. I can, well, I can't be. I can't be Mark Breslin, really, at home. I've, I've got people who would be, who are appalled by the idea. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be a provocateur with a young child. You can't say things just to get a rise out of the young well, man. I can, but um, my, there's my wife, and she wouldn't like that yeah. at all. Yeah. So you know, I I really really miss work. I really, really miss going to work, mm-hmm. and I'm not. A, and I'm not a comic anymore, really. So it's not that I miss, you know, performing for a crowd. Um, but I understand so many comics have been posting how awful it is for them because they can't do that one thing that they do better than anybody else. Smoke and, dope and, and masturbate all day and work forty-five minutes in the evening. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have that lifestyle anymore. They don't have the payoff of the of the applause. So, uh, somebody suggested the other day in uh, in the paper, you know that I don't know what it's like in the states, but in in Canada, drive-ins are still legal. As are drive-bys. 
No, that's in the States. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so drive-ins are still, ele- are still legal, and people are watching movies in drive-ins. And somebody said, well, why don't they do stand-up comedy shows uh, and, and the drive-ins? Mm-hmm. Everybody will drive up in their car, and, you know, you'll, you'll listen to the – it's like a frequency. I've never been to a drive-in, you know. Um, you listen to the frequency on your, uh, on your car radio, and you hear what they're saying. But, again, it's the problem of lack of feedback. You need the laughter. What are you going to do, honk the horn every time something funny? Hey, that's a good one. Thank you. That's my A material. Well, I had a Zoom. So, you, know, you can't really do that. We had a Zoom meeting uh, Friday night. We're doing them every Friday at 9 with the listeners, 9 Eastern. If you'd like an invite, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the office hours button, and we'll send you an invite Fridays at 9 Eastern. And we were, we had, we, we only allow 100 people in. That's what my plan, that's the level. And it was interesting when I, I could mute everybody. And then when I unmuted them and they were able to keep the extraneous sounds down, I could hear laughs. It was fascinating. People would say something and you'd hear the people. You could hear the laughs. Do you think that this could be monetized? Do you think that you could do it in such a way where people would pay $5 or something to, you know, to be part of this? Um, You'd hear the laughter. You'd get some money. It would be a poor a poor cousin of what stand-up comedy is, but at least it would be a poor cousin. Do you think that would work? I don't know. I, I Right now, I'm just trying to connect with my listeners and have them mingle with my guests and discuss this because this seems to be the beginning of something that probably already exists, but we don't know about it. Somebody has probably figured it out already. Uh, yeah, I do think some, but I know that there's some comedy clubs that are doing this. I think Flappers has some virtual shows. And Uh, I think the comedy store is doing something. Um, it's a one-off. Um, I, I think in a couple of days, they're allowed to have, I think in California, five people in a room. Okay. So I guess they set, I guess somebody went in, set the cameras and sound up. And then five people will go in, and so they've got five comics, and they're pretty big comics. I think. Uh, oh, who's part of this? Uh, I think. Uh, woman. Uh, I can never remember her name. Um, she had a sitcom on, and and uh, and a big concert video going on at the same time. Uh, Cummings, Whitney Cummings. Whitney Cummings. I think she's part of it. Yeah, I think she's part of it. Um, but they were all names that I recognized. Mm-hmm. And. Um, they do it five at a time, five at each hour, because I guess they, five of them do it, then they leave, then another five people come in. Um, I, I'm going to try to tune into that to see how that goes. I have a feeling, this is what I was thinking. They still won't hear laughs, except from the other four comics. Well, but if you can trust, if you, you know, I'm just thinking out loud. If you had a maitre d' and you yeah. they, they enter the room, because you do have a waiting room. So you can have a maitre d' say, you know, welcome to Yuck Yucks. Uh, remember, uh, we'll mute you if there's any noise and feedback. You know, you have to be in a quiet space to watch the show. We will mute you 
if you're making noise. That's the same way we would do in a comedy club. Don't make any noise. We want to keep everybody's mic on. And if you limit it to 100, you might be able to do a stand-up show, but it would be different. You'd have to have somebody who could, you know, somebody like Jeff Ross, somebody who makes fun of the audience, that might be interesting. Somebody who's more interactive, who's in the moment. If you do your act, if you have this act that's just been, you know, concretized and unbending, it may feel distant, but comics who work the moment, somebody like Slayton, I think they might succeed at it. It would be different. It, they'd have to. Yeah, I never thought I'd be looking for comics to do crowd work. I know, <laughs> I know. What's so, the, uh, explain to us what the problem is with crowd work. And by the way, you're great at crowd work. Thank you. Um, and it's lovely, um, but it's a bit of a cheat. If you're doing crowd work and the stuff is, you know, off the top of your head um, and improvised, there's a real, there's a real virtue to it. But if you've got a whole bunch of stuff that's all stacked in the back of your brain and you're just waiting for the guy to tell you that he's a mortician, right. oh, you're a mortician, yeah, and then you do your four lines, yeah. um, it's kind of cheap and um, and not very impressive. It's a magic um, act, essentially. It is. Kind of, but you know what's interesting? You're living in New York. When I go to visit my friend Aaron Berg in New York and he takes me down to the stand, um, I don't know if you've been to that club. Yeah. Yeah. And on a Saturday night, it was almost all crowd work. Almost all crowd work from all the comics. Yeah, yeah. So um, you would not find that in a lot of other clubs. You would not find that in, in Yuckets. We have very strict rules. We're booking an MC to do crowd work. But when the uh, other acts come on, you're to do your set. Yeah. In fact, just to push back on this, by the way, Aaron, nobody does crowd work like Aaron Berg. I know. He's great. He's fantastic. And he's in the moment. And he, he does this show all the time. I yeah. know. there's The stuff he comes up with, there's no way he had it in his pocket. I mean, the guy is just no. a genius. The guy really is a genius. No, he he's 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 the real thing when it comes to that. But you know that there's so many people doing, um, you know, faux crowd work, mm -hmm. and um, it just makes you kind of go, oh, "All right, this is not what I this is not what I pay a comic to do." Right now, having the MC having the MC do crowd work when I MC, the headliner would ask me not to do crowd work. They'd say, "Just get them used to hearing material." I'll do the crowd work when I get up on stage. Except when I book comics, I don't book comics to headline into crowd work. I think it's cheating. I just don't think it's as interesting. And um, I want the audience to walk away with some content. So uh, we, we encourage the, the MC to do as much crowd work as they possibly can. In fact, I get mad sometimes. I book a, you know, I'll book a comic who's an, to MC, but they're not an MC. And they'll go on and they'll say, hey, anybody from out of town, they'll do two things with the people from out of town, and then they'll go right into their act mm -hmm. as if they're not even the MC. So I, I don't like that, and I tell them that, and I tell them I, I can't book them as an MC if they're going to do that. Mm -hmm. It also said... David, I've got to ask you another question. Yes, sir. And it's completely off, off topic. Yes, sir. What are you wearing? I am wearing blue jeans, a pressed 
blue Oxford shirt. I am taking my cue. I'm being serious. From Prince Philip. Mm-hmm. I, I am take, that's a great question. I am taking my cue. Because you know, you want your, you, you want your audience to have a visual picture of what's going on right now. I can tell you that I'm sloppy. Um, and I've been sloppy almost every other day. I'll take a shower every other day. What about you? How often will you take a shower? That I will. Uh, I will scrub the Netherlands. Yes. Uh, but I'm not. Yeah, I'm not showering every day. No, but are you showering every other day? Yeah. Yeah. Are you spending any days in just in your pajamas? No. That would be. That would be a sign of depression. I'm no, saying- that would be a sign that you want to be Hugh Hefner. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it worked pretty well for him. So, uh, see, here's the thing, David. Um, you know me, um, and maybe one of the things you may have forgotten about me is I love clothes. Yes. Um, if I weren't in the business that I'm in, I think it's a good chance I would have gone into the clothing business. Yes. My father was in the clothing business, but he wasn't in high-end design. He did uh, you know, work shirts and workwear. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but I love, I love clothes. In fact, I'm not just a clothes horse. I'm a clothes stallion. <laughs> That's how <laughs> intense it is. And I take my clothes really seriously. If you take a look at my closet, I have maybe a hundred shirts and I have them all organized by color from white to black and they go white, 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 ecru, 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 vanilla, 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 oh yeah, vanilla, cream, 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 all the way to black as if my closet were organized by some renegade Afrikaner eugenicist. You know? It's, it's, I, I take it, I take it so serious. It really plays to my bit of, um, you know, um, OCD and, uh, everything has to be very neat as a pin and very precise. Uh, and then if you think that's not a, if you think that's going too far within the colors, uh, schemes of the different shirts, they're then alphabetized alphabetically. So on the white shirts, we start with Armani and then we go all the way to Xenia. And then with the cream shirts, it starts all over again. Do you have a what? Do you have under W? You have a wife beater. I, no, I, I. No, some things I just do. I <laughs> somebody complained. I got. I said. Who did I said to somebody? You know, it's a golden age for domestic violence because the numbers yeah. are up and the police can't come out. And I got like three. Emails telling me that they're never listening to this show again. And I wasn't saying domestic violence. I don't approve of it. I'm just saying. If, if you well, remember Kenneth's line, he said, domestic violence. I, I don't approve of it. I can understand it, <laughs> but I don't approve of it. <laughs> now, if it takes place in Toronto and I'm in America, you, all right, let's not, I'm not going down this, this path. I agree with you about clothes. So you're so it, it, just going back to Prince Philip. I actually think of Prince Philip in Sandringham, and he's probably isolated. He's retired, but I think he still gets up and doesn't see anybody, but puts on the costume. And he puts on his. That's right. He puts on the costume. He's still in his tweeds. 
Um, he even wears tweed underwear, which I think is extremely <laughs> uncomfortable. But uh, he's got a complete co- sense of commitment, and when you're a royal, that's what you do. Yeah. Now, here's something weird. Um, so the way I buy clothes, I, I don't really go to stores anymore. I buy online, and because I buy online, I'm always looking for bargains because eventually everything will go on sale. So what I do is I bookmark maybe a dozen things that I like, and I keep checking on them to see if the price goes down. Now, you would think, you would think that since nobody is buying clothes right now because you can't go out and have anybody admire them, mm-hmm. you would think that uh, supply and demand, everything, the prices would be tumbling. Mm-hmm. But they're not. They're not at all. I would think that that would be the first thing that would go on sale would be clothes because you really don't need them. Well, but you are keeping your, your, are you being manicured? Are you being considerate to your no. wife and kid? Are you what, shaving? Manicured? When's the last time you shaved? I shave every other day. I don't like the feeling of beard on my face. And I don't understand why so many, you know, millennials now think the beard is so great, especially women who are growing beards um, <laughs> among the millennials. Okay. I, I don't understand why they think it's, such an attractive look, but you know, almost every comic, for instance, that's in their twenties that comes to me, um, they've all got a big bushy beard and I don't understand why. Um, you, I think you want to be as clean shaven as possible. And that includes a mustache because you want people to see your face and you want to see every, um, minutiae of expression that you could possibly have. Very few comics had, um, uh, beards in, in the classic days of comedy. Right. Carlin was one. But I can't think of an awful lot. Chaplin of had the Hitler stash, or Hitler had he the had Chaplin the Hit- stash. That's right. Yeah, um, that's true. Um, but he was playing a character uh, right. in a way that you know stand-up comics are not doing. No, I don't understand the beard. I had a beard once. Murray Langston. Murray Langston had a beard. Who? But how would you know that he had a bag on his head? That was the joke. Nobody. Oh, sorry, I. First of all, hang on. Nobody knows who Murray Langston is. Nobody knows who Murray Langston is, and nobody knows who the unknown comic is. But go ahead. Right. So, so we're we're showing our age. Yeah. Once again. Um, But uh, what was I going to say about beards? Yes, I grew a beard. Now, um, my great grandfather was an eminent rabbi in Toronto in the in the in the 1880s or so and every Jew had a great-grandfather who was an eminent rabbi you ask any Jew their great-grandfather was a renowned rabbi prove it prove it prove it to me I can I can prove it because he started the biggest synagogue in Toronto and they have a museum in that in that um in that place, and when you go in, one of the first things you see is this very large, like three by five, blow up picture of my great grandfather Shmuel Breslin. With, uh, <laughs> that wasn't even a joke. Um, with a with a beard that makes him look like he was going to take over for one of those ZZ Top guys, you know, if they uh, they couldn't make it. And I saw that. When I was, you know, a teenager and I thought, you know, I'm going to grow a beard because I'm, I'm 20. I look 12. Maybe this will help. And all that came out was this scruffy, scraggly guy who looked like I was like the bad, 
I, I was like the bad guy who was going to take away the daughter and fiddler on the roof. It was uh, awful. It was just an awful look for me. So finally, after about a year of this, and this was around the time I started Yuck Yucks, I would have been about yeah, 22, um, I shaved off the beard but kept the mustache on, and then I looked like a French sex offender. It was just not a good look for me. I looked like a carny that was going to take your little daughter into the back and really show her what the prize was. So I, I got rid of that, too, and I've been clean-shaven ever since. Wow. I also like the process of shaving. I, I hear a lot of guys say, I don't like shaving. I don't like shaving. I love it. It feels like I give myself a new chance every day that I shave. Every day that I shave, it's a new world. I have a new way of, I, 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 I can start afresh. Um, I love the, the softness of my, of my face. I, uh, I, I just don't understand why people like facial hair. I, I just don't get it. And you love the thrill of knowing that at any moment you could sever your jugular and end it all. And you choose not to. It's an affirmation of life, shaving. Difficult, yes, difficult when you're using an electric shaver to think about that. But nevertheless, I did try to slit my wrists once with an electric shaver. And, you know, after about four hours, I finally got hungry and just gave up. Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, perhaps the world. And we will, uh, I, next week, I, I hope, uh, we, the world is still here. Will it be here let's next week? Let's get together next week. Yeah, let's get together next week, David. Thank you. Sounds good. Be well. Thank you, Liberty University. You're the best. The best. Stay on the line, Mark Breslin. Let's go to Beijing, where Timothy Ulrich is standing by. He is a reporter for China Global Television Network. Hello there, Timothy. Hello, David. Hello, listeners. So we're going to talk about freedom of speech in China. We're going to get the latest numbers out of China when it comes to the virus, whether or not they can be tested. First, you want to correct something you said about Djibouti. What did you say about Djibouti last week? You're really going to do this to me? Yeah, we were talking about the Belt and Road. I had asked you about the Belt and Road Initiative. This is China expanding so, uh, its capital throughout the world, building bridges and infrastructure. And I asked what role the Belt and Road Initiative played in spreading of the virus. And Djibouti came up, and I had said that it is part of a major waterway when it comes to oil. It's part of the oil lanes near Saudi Arabia. And you corrected me and said Djibouti is yep. landlocked. A couple of people wrote in. Yeah. And, so you want to apologize there? I stand corrected. I stand corrected on Djibouti not being landlocked. You're hearing it first here, people. It was news so, to the people also, of Djibouti. They started selling they their like, boats in Djibouti. When they heard this show, <laughs> so there goes the fishing market. Yeah, 
a lot of my listeners picked up on it. I was I was pleasantly surprised. Okay, freedom of speech. In yeah, China. apparently your your viewers have a, your listeners have an extensive knowledge about East African geography. It's fantastic. They love Djibouti. So count yourself lucky. Um, oh, I also wanted to correct one more thing. Sri Lanka, that port is not a military base. It's just a trade base. It's a 99-year lease, yada, yada, yada. Other thing. Well, uh, hang on. You got to explain. The- you, well, hang on. Hang on. You got to explain to my listeners that the Belt and Road Initiative conducted by China is the, the spreading of capital. They're, they're investing in overseas infrastructure projects. And some of the strings attached uh, are military bases, correct? Uh, incorrect. Djibouti is an anomaly, really, when it comes to this. The, Djibouti is the only military base outside of China. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? Well, the, uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. So just a fun fact there. And uh, do you do you know where most of uh the, the PLA, China's army, goes to? When? When? What do you mean? So, so where they're deployed to, where the, where the action's happening for the PLA. Because, uh, China's the, the number one contributor to UN peacekeeping missions, and, uh, mostly that has to do with Africa at the moment, fighting, uh, countering extremism. <clears throat> And I, I just want to put that into context as to why Djibouti might be so important, because obviously uh, it's right next door to Al-Shabaab in Somalia. I see. There you go. Uh, Sri Lanka is a, is a different case. Uh, it was this port that was thought to be successful. It just, uh, um, it didn't, it didn't turn out the way that it was supposed to. And uh, now China has a 99 year lease on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I forgot to mention this doctrine of Xi Jinping's. It started with Hu Jintao, but Xi Jinping is uh, Hu Jintao is Xi Jinping's predecessor. It's um, uh, shared humanity. F- uh, hold on. Uh, what's that called? See, this is why I forget it because uh, I get on here at five in the morning and I forget these these long names of. Doctrines of Xi Jinping, but uh, shared future for mankind is essentially the the outline of foreign uh, foreign policy when it comes to things like the Belt and Road. Okay, you know, building up a uh, a future in which hopefully all of humanity can participate in. So that's the vision there. China but, had China does have an expanding it. military. There, I believe. America spends close to $800 billion a year on defense. Coming in second is China, which spends about something like $250 billion a year on defense. So why does China need to spend so much money on defense? It's a far second there. Yeah. Our economy. But yeah, you see, our economy is based on defense. We can't help ourselves. That's true. We can't. In America, we, that's what we do. We make bombs and satellites that guide those bombs. And that's how we juice our economy. 
Nobody's what really. What were the figures again? Something like <clears throat> we spend about $800 billion a year on defense that we know of since the Pentagon right. can't be audited. It's over <laughs> way more than, more than no. a trillion. And China's oh, for about sure. $250 billion there in second place. Who who are they frightened of? Uh, India, Taiwan, Russia? No, it's, it's mainly regional security. So it has to do with, uh, not Afghanistan, but um, uh, various insurgency groups across Southeast Asia, Central Asia. Uh, they have regional security agreements with several countries, including Russia, uh, Central Asia. And, and then that also goes towards the UN peacekeeping missions. Right. Right. So it's not like uh, the expansion of U.S. hegemony where it goes into, you know, weird ops and, uh, you know, overthrowing democratically elected leaders across the world. What about are you allowed to talk about Tibet and the Uyghurs in China? What kind of freedom of speech do you have over there? Yeah, well, what would you like to know? Let's break that up into two parts there, yeah? Okay, let's talk about the Dalai Lama, who can't come back to Tibet, and what many claim here in the United States to be the destruction of Buddhism. Um, You know, it's kind of funny, because Buddhism is an intrinsic part to the Chinese culture. It's basically inseparable from its history. Uh, the only exception being is that the, uh, uh, Qing dynasty was largely Taoist. The Ming Qing dynasty were all Taoist, but there was still uh, a flourishing of Buddhism in China historically that lends itself greatly into its history. Uh, you know, I don't actually know that much about the, the political situation. Well, I mean, the Dalai Lama, regarding- well, I mean, as I understand it, the Dalai Lama, is forbidden to to come to China. I think he's forbidden to come back to Tibet. They the, the Chinese government is picking the next Dalai Lama. There already is a, a second Dalai Lama and a, a couple of Panchen Lamas that have been designated by the Chinese government. So isn't Tibet essentially occupied by China? It was already, it was already a tributary state before modern China. Meaning it was, it was essentially part of China beforehand. It was just, uh, under, under a different geography, so to speak. So, so there's no discussion about Tibet, what's happening there and the possible destruction of the origins of uh, Buddhism? Uh, not really. I mean, Buddhism is something that's widely studied here. Uh, in fact, uh, about two months ago, I went to this amazing relief of uh, early Buddhism when it first came to, um, it was southwest China, in its early esoteric Buddhism which is a very fascinating study in itself as well before it emerged into the, uh, I guess it would be called the, the exoteric, the, the uh, mainstream belief. So very fascinating 
ancient ideologies and mythologies, cosmologies going into these reliefs. Very fascinating. But to say that it's just been completely cut off because the Dalai Lama is not allowed back into China, I, I kind of take issue with. Why? Certainly well, the Dalai does. Lama takes issue with not being allowed to return to uh, Tibet. I'm sure no arguments here. He is a, a supposed reincarnate. Right. But that is just one school of thought. You know, the the predominant um, form of Buddhism that, that emerged out of China is Zen Buddhism. And that, in turn, went to Japan, and it's, it's quite common all across the world. Okay. Is there a discussion about this, the, the plight of Tibet and China? Are you allowed to discuss this? Um, honestly, this is why I am not that well versed in it because it's not, it's not very discussed just because it's, uh, it's, um, pretty well enough in the past. If that makes sense. No, it does. It sounds like it's <laughs> you know. being, it sounds like you're not allowed to discuss this in China. No, I'm in China and I'm talking about it right now. I just, I just haven't looked into it as much. Okay. Right. But, I mean, I can talk a lot more about uh, what's going on in Xinjiang. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the, the Uyghurs. The, these are the Muslims living in what we're told is essentially uh, tantamount to the Warsaw Ghetto. About a million Uyghurs, these are Muslims living in, I guess this would be eastern China? And you know, far western far China. Far western China, right. Uh, they're living in what is considered it's, lockdown, right? Uh, I just wanted to make a joke there, but it's probably no, not good, don't, don't, don't not good to joke, follow no. up on it. No. That Xinjiang is landlocked? Yes. Okay. Um, okay. Okay, that was a bad taste, but yeah. okay, so this figure, this figure is actually kind of interesting. Uh, Ajit Singh has a really good investigation at the gray zone about where this figure came from, about this, uh, you know, million Uyghurs in lockdown in these, mm-hmm. these quote unquote concentration camps. Uh, and there's two sources. One of them is a, uh, uh, so-called East Turkmenistan uh, separatist, pro uh, separatist activist who is basing that off of five sources, five single sources, five single people. And then the other one is from this radical neocon conservative who believes that he is on a mission from God to destroy China. And this, uh, this is the, this is the statistics that's quoted by uh, Reuters, New York Times, without question, and even even far left—well, not far left, but left-leaning outlets like Jacobin and Democracy Now, without question, of where the sources came from. All right, it's 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 settled. It's it's just settled law here in the United States that a million Uyghurs are in lockdown. So you're saying that's not happening? 
Well, it hasn't been proven. I mean, are you really going to go off of these two sources, one of which is being paid uh, by the CIA through NED and the other one who who belongs to a, a far-right conservative think tank? Like, I, I just don't see the add-up. If, if there was supposed to be this um, figure that you're supposed to take as almost biblical fact, it doesn't exist. Hmm. Okay. But uh, like this, this occurs time and time again. And really what it boils down to, and, uh, this has been traced down through the research is, is regime, regime change in China trying to topple the, the communist party. This has been used as leverage since as far back as the Nixon administration to essentially, uh, discount the Chinese government as be, being um, uh, the the rightful governor of this uh, this territory of this province, and uh, yeah, it's just reiterated, regurgitated time after time, and it's a it's a bipartisan effort. Are are people free to leave? Uh, are the Uyghurs free to? Go throughout China. Yeah, there are. Um, there have actually been some. Uh, it's pronounced some Xinjiang. Stories. How do you pronounce the province? Xinjiang. Xinjiang. Can they leave? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's uh, Uyghurs all over China. There, there was even some in Wuhan. Uh, there was a pretty interesting story about. I mean, a, a pretty sad story, of course, because this this uh, poor Uyghur man was infected by COVID nineteen. Went to a went to a hospital, received treatment. Um, but you know, there, it, I I would also like to point out that the Uyghurs aren't the only Muslim minority in China. Mm-hmm. There's also the Hui, the the Hui people. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones, but, but Muslim culture has been part of China's history since the Silk Road. The Silk Road ended in Xi'an, which is, uh, I mean, you go there and there's, there's still a lot of Muslim architecture, a lot of, a lot of, um, Muslim influence there. Okay. So the UN Human Rights Council says that China's been actively harvesting organs from prisoners in re-education camps in Jinyang. I'm mispronouncing it, but this is where the, the Uyghurs are being held and what you are, you're not saying these are re-education camps. You're saying they're what? Uh, the preferred term is occupational, uh, training camps. And do, do they exist? Or sorry, vocational training camps. Yes, yeah, they exist. Okay, and the BBC has published investigative expose, exposés using satellite imagery and interviews on the ground that reveal hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs and Muslim minorities being held without trial in Xinjiang, I'm mispronouncing it, Xinjiang in in internment Xinjiang Xinjiang in detention centers. So it's not just you know it's the BBC they're legitimate news. Well, to be fair, 
this is a very difficult region to report on. It's like going into Kashmir right now. Well, not as bad as Kashmir, but there's so much convolution going on that it's very difficult to discern these facts. And, you know, that, that BBC report didn't report that there were millions of Muslims. It just said hundreds of thousands. And no question as to if they're there uh, at their own will. That's kind of the, uh, the, the next point of investigation, which should really be looked into because they're obviously, you know, if the, if the government's providing free education to, um, to these, these, uh, these locals, be them Uyghurs, be them, uh, whatever minority to accommodate the expansion of, of, uh, Sorry, your face keeps changing. It keeps um, messing me up. Yeah. Of, of Han Chinese capital into this region, into, into investment, into, into, um, expanding and bettering these, uh, the lives of these people. Then, you know, these, uh, I'm sure that a lot of people would take that up. Okay. They would be interested in, in taking free Mandarin classes and right. understanding how to, you know, conduct a business meeting or what have you. All right. 1.2 million people have been killed in Tibet, they say. The Dalai Lama maintains that 1.2 million people in Tibet have either been sent out of the country or put in re-education camps or died from economic mismanagement. That's what the Dalai Lama claims. So... Is that discussed in China? Because you, you said we should discuss freedom of speech. Are, are conversations allowed in China when it comes to what the truth is about Tibet and the Uyghurs? Yeah, I'm sure it's discussed. I mean, you can't stop things that are behind closed doors, right? Yeah, but is it discussed in the media? Can you read about it in China? Well, so this is what I... Hope to get at at a at a, a previous episode was the uh, the role of of free speech in Western societies versus in uh, post Marxist Leninist society like China. Okay. So essentially, um, I don't mean to go through all the history, but there uh, in Marxist Leninism, there's a thing called the Vanguard Party, which rules over the socialist state, the one party that controls the government. And this party is controlled by the proletariat. Now, I want to get a bit Socratic with you. Uh, why do you have freedom of speech? Why do we have freedom of speech in the United uh, States? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, it exists in many Western democracies. But why do you in the U.S. have it? To give the illusion of freedom? No, I mean, I mean, think about when the, uh, you know, when the Constitution was being drafted. Well, I, I would was, assume it's has something to do with the Establishment Clause. You can worship any god you want, or not have to worship any god. Freedom of speech. I don't know what 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 is what is it. Well, you couldn't speak out against the king, right? Right. And, and if you wanted something changed in your society, how would you go about doing it? You would speak out. Exactly. And okay. so this was the, 
the founding principle of of the that idea of freedom of speech is that you should be able to speak out against atrocities committed by uh, the king or whatever ruling class that existed at that point. But of course, uh, Marxist Leninism doesn't exist in a vacuum. It, it took lessons learned from Western democracies to to understand how it should formulate this, how it should understand the the shortcomings of the uh, the freedom of speech, which uh, you say is the illusion of freedom, which I, I absolutely agree with. That you can go on and and post some funny gif of President Trump and say, "Yes, my freedom of speech has been fulfilled. I can say this and not go to jail." Uh, but there's a, there's a much deeper root to this, which is that you should be able to affect change. Uh, and the, the whole idea behind a vanguard party ruled by the proletariat is that the average people can affect change. And this is something that was carried on through the Maoist tradition into the modern Chinese, Chinese government. And it's, it's part of, uh, Xi Jinping's thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. Uh, one of the, one of the parts about it is upholding, uh, these ideas about about the the government ruling for the people by the people essentially to put it into american terms uh and so when you talk about freedom of speech and effect having that affect of change you yourself as an individual should have more accessibility to do it in a marxist leninist maoist society so what what are you getting at? Well, so uh, so freedom of speech is wanna... in a Marxist Leninist society. Freedom of speech is implicit, so you don't have to protect it. No, I'm saying that you don't even need to do it. You can you can affect change by having direct accessibility to your government officials. Like, let me ask you this: um, When was the last time that you've had a, a brush in with a government official? Well, you're not right. now, but before the lockdown. Yeah, they don't do town hall. You know, a lot of congressmen and women don't do town halls. They don't answer their phone. So I go on. Well, so I I um, I talk to a government official every day. My building manager. The government is much more uh, part of your life. It's much more horizontally structured than hierarchical. It's, and, it's, and, it's, okay, that's interesting. But the so you, but isn't your speech limited? I mean, don't you have to worry that he's going to report you to the higher ups for what you've said? Well, the thing about this is, is that there's a right conversation at the right time. So you, you, um, have concerns, you go to your local official, uh, or you know somebody who knows somebody who's a higher up official. Mm-hmm. This is how it works. It's a much more communal, if you will, a much more social form of government. Okay. Where it's more societally or communally based. And people vote. How often uh, are people, people? How often do people? People vote? in the MPC vote. And in, in the, in the uh, well, people, so local, in, people who belong to the Communist Party vote. 
Right. I mean, people can be elevated to the position of local officials just based off of merit, based off of uh, contributions, based off of standing in the local community. Mm-hmm. But so in order to vote in an election, you have to be a member of the Communist Party. No, no. Voting is much more indirect. It, it's, um, you know, you vote in the MPC or the, the standing committee. So it's, it's much more, in, in a way, I would I would say that this is uh, much more effective because you don't have this spectacle occurring every four years that just explain I, that to me. Waste every. I, I'm keen, I, listen, listen, listen. You're an American. You're you're living and working in China. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of what you're saying is uh, an affront to my jingoism, which is rooted in ignorance. <laughs> I'm willing to admit that I'm ignorant about this stuff, and I've been brainwashed. I've been brainwashed into believing that you've been brainwashed. But uh, yeah. so explain to me how uh, elections work. You have a mayor of Beijing. Uh, right. You have a um, – well, Beijing is a, a municipality, and it's run by the general secretary of the, the municipality. So I would assume the mayor has to be a member of the party. Uh, that's correct. And who votes for the mayor? How do you, does he run for election or is it, is it, is he elected by the party, a meeting of party members or is he appointed? Uh, I would like to uh, change the language a bit of this. Uh, it, just a little bit, because the people are the party, right? Okay. If the government is represented by the people, they're represented by the party. So if you're so born, if, the, if you're a citizen of China, you're automatically a member of the party? No, nah, you have to become one. But, I mean, honestly, um, that's kind of that's kind of one of the critiques of it is that there's not many members of the party. In fact, there's more Christians in China than there are members of the Communist Party. And how do you get into the party? You um, you meet people who are in the party and they invite you in. You have to be invited in. You get a, and, no, and, you get a little... and the country is run by that party. Mm-hmm. So it would be the equivalent of the Democrats running America and the convention in Milwaukee this summer would be the end of the elections. That would be the the final vote, correct? Um, help me understand that analogy a bit there. Well, it would be like saying the Democratic Party runs America. There's no alternative. You vote to... You vote to find somebody to head the party and the convention in Milwaukee that is scheduled for this summer, that would be the end all be all of the, the elections. That's where you would find our president. Correct. <laughs> well, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it in that analogy. Well, the Politburo, so the, the Politburo is, is the party leadership. Correct. Um, yeah, yeah, has the party, right? Okay. All right, to be continued.
to be continued. Oh, she sure. Do you? So oh, you? Yeah. Well, we have to wrap it up. Are the okay, number? Right. Here are the two things that I struggle with when I talk to you. You are telling me things that I don't want to hear, and I'm resisting you because I've been trained to believe that the Dalai Lama is in exile, that China invaded Tibet, is responsible for the destruction of Buddhism as we know it, that they've killed 1.2 million people in Tibet, either through economic mismanagement or execution or placing them in internment camps. I've been led to believe that the Uyghurs in uh, Western, I always, I'm looking at the, it's Western China, far yeah. West, far West China, um, uh, that about a million Muslims in China are in lockdown and uh, the, the Chinese are using the most sophisticated form of government surveillance in these re-education camps. That's what we're being told here in the United States. You're saying that's anti-Chinese propaganda. Not only that, that's pro-Western imperial, uh, pro-U.S. imperialism. Okay. And so when I'm told that search engines are censored in China, is that true? Or is that Google, yeah. or is that Google and Facebook trying to get more business in China and accusing them of censorship when maybe China doesn't want Google and Facebook and Yahoo doing business in China? Can you no, go no, on? No. Is the no, internet, sorry, is the internet censored in China? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it is. I mean, it, it's, it's shut off from, from many Western, uh, Western social media sites, news sites, what have you. Okay. Why? But that's a that's another discussion for another time. I mean, that goes into Marxist geography, which is which is a whole another topic that uh, will only uh, blow your mind further. I okay. feel. <laughs> All right, because it's a. You know, I, I just want to end on this that. After Fukuyama published The End of History, mm -hmm. the West stopped believing in theory. You know, they, they thought that they found the best theory, and so nobody wants to tangle with theory anymore. Right. So that's when Russia When Russia fell, Francis Fukuyama said it's the end of history. It's the end, end of the dialectic. There's no more tension between two ideologies. America has won. Capitalism reigns supreme. <laughs> and democracy and freedom and all that matters is America. We blocked out the rest of the world, but the world kept spinning without our permission. And as you always say, uh, just kind of paraphrasing that and inserting it into what you said, the world's, uh, the Western world stopped thinking critically. Yeah. There was no more critical thinking. It was just dissolved overnight, basically. Okay. So, the, so uh, this is difficult to have these conversations with you. You, uh, uh, you, you've challenged a lot of my thinking especially when it comes to the virus. You say the numbers can be trusted. 
Uh, a lot of people say the numbers coming out of China can't be can't be trusted. Yet a lot of people say that an authoritarian regime like China can lock down a province like Wuhan and stop the spread. Is Wuhan a province? You know, Wuhan's a city. Okay, what what province? province. What, what's the province? Hubei. Hubei. Okay, and that the problem in the West is we're into personal freedoms, and the government telling people to stay indoors goes against our our belief system, what we think a government is entitled to do. Other countries, especially in Asia, what I'm reading, countries like South Korea, Singapore, China, uh, they're more willing to trust their government and more willing to cooperate with the government when there's a pandemic. So maybe the numbers coming out of China are more accurate than here in the United States, we believe. Do you trust the numbers coming out of Wuhan? I trust the curve. You trust the curve. Right. That there was this, was this increase. There was this decrease. There's, uh, cases coming back. They're slowly disappearing. Um, whether or not those were 100% accurate, that's up to officials. That's up Mm -hmm. to medical professionals to clarify. Uh, late last week, Beijing officials said, yes, actually, we underreported the deaths. Our bad. Uh, here's those actual numbers. But the curves remained steady. Mm-hmm. So whether or not those overall um, uh, numbers change, the curve is still there. Okay. And while it's, it's, it's not going to go away, it's, it's certainly not going to go away. Mind you... I'm in the uh, the most high-risk area in China right now. It's Chaoyang District in Beijing. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't going to go away immediately. It's no it's no victory for authoritarianism or something. But it does have. There is something to be said about horizontal central planning, which is what we saw. We saw communities in Wuhan, communities all across China who are able to effectively implement these measures without these hooting and hollering people in their trucks going and yelling at healthcare workers. Right. Like what we're seeing in America. Yep. We love our freedom or what we think is freedom. Exactly. Okay. Where were you Friday? You you came to the zoom meeting and then you disappeared. What happened? I wanted to apologize, really. Um, so I was standing there for an hour in the middle of the most high-risk area in China right now, and you were having a puppy Super Bowl. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Yep. And I understand, you know, you had to go to Susan Collins. That I get. Mm-hmm. Deciding whose Scottish fold was more prettier than the other, uh, I don't know, but... You know, I had to get to a D&D game, and <laughs> I was afraid okay. of being brainwashed All right. by the Apple store. I was standing outside an Apple store. All right. Well, we'll uh, see you Friday night at the Zoom meeting? Yeah, I'll be there this time. Okay, buddy. Maybe a little bit earlier, yeah? Yeah, yeah. For you. 
I'll, I'll call you. on you. I'll call on you earlier. Absolutely. Yeah, Thank Tim- you. Timothy Ulrich writes for China Global Television Network, and he talked to us today from Beijing. I have to say uh, there is some resistance on my part. A lot of the things you're telling me, I don't want to hear. So this is interesting. That's good. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, The world needs to be challenged. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you're going to make me read more, so I thank you. Stay on the line, <laughs> Timothy Ulrich. From New York, from beautiful Bayville, on the glorious Gold Coast of Long Island's North Shore, let's welcome our old friend Jackie, the joke man Martling, for endless jokes. Say, Alexa, play Jackie Martling. Follow Jackie on Twitter, at Jackie Martling. Jokes every day at 4.20 p.m. International Marijuana Time. For personalized videos, go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling, instant fun. Call Jackie's dirty joke line. Use your finger. Call 516-922-WINE. And if you just want jokes sent to you, simply email Jackie at jokeland at AOL.com. Hello, Jackie. Why'd the guy jerk off on his hard-boiled egg? (laughs) (laughs) Why? He was out of salt. <laughs> I love it. What would you call a high rise full of midgets? What do you call a high rise full of midgets? I give up. A condom minimum. <laughs> So a guy says to the bartender, my wife's mad at me for measuring my cock. (laughs) The bartender says, so how big is it? He says, just long enough to reach the back of her sister's throat. (laughs) Great. So how do you know when a Chinaman's robbed your house? Oh, how? You get home and the fucker's still trying to back out of the driveway. Come on, Jackie. Be nice. These are nice people, Jackie. Don't even pretend that ain't fucking funny. (laughs) So a little old lady's taking a final look at her husband just before his wake. And she goes to the funeral director and she says, "You, you, you know, Charlie, Charlie sure looks great there in his coffin, but I'm so worried about his his toupee sliding down, and <laughs> I know it would just break his break his little heart if his toupee slid down. The funeral director says, "Don't worry, lady." So a couple of days later, the last people have left awake. She goes to the funeral director and says, Ch- "Charlie's toupee stayed right in place <laughs> the whole time." Oh, thank goodness! I can't thank you enough. But by the way. What you do to keep it in place? He says, I stapled it on. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Very nice. 
call a Jewish gynecologist? What? <laughs> Goldfinger. <laughs> <laughs> So a guy calls the cops and he says, help, help. Two women are fighting over me. The cop says, that's not great. He says, you don't understand. The fat one's winning. (laughs) I love it. What did the the O say to the Q? What did the O say to the Q? I give up. Your cock is hanging out. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great. So a guy's getting a blowjob, and he says to his wife, I think I'm going to finish in your ear. She says, no, no, don't do that. I might go deaf. He says, I doubt it. I've been coming in your mouth for years, and you never shut the fuck up. That's great. That's so great. Why did the Polish library close? Why? (laughs) The fish drowned. (laughs) Why did the... It's not supposed to make sense. It's It's a bold joke. Okay. So a guy says to the bartender, hey, you ever piss in the shower? (laughs) And the bartender says, yeah, by accident. The guy says, by accident. And the bartender says, yeah, you know, these things happen when you're taking a shit. (laughs) Good, good. I like it. I like it. Two salesmen are at the bar. The first salesman says, hey, you remember that chick that we double teamed on our last trip? The second salesman says, yeah. He says, well, she just had twins, and mine died. <laughs> What's the hardest part about playing chess in the park with old men? What? Trying to get 32 of them to stand still. <laughs> calls and says, Doc, I don't feel so hot. The doctor says, well, tell me about your urine. If your urine's clear, you're hydrated. If it's yellow, you're dehydrated. The guy says, it's white and it's thick. The doctor says, you're shaking your cock too much. (laughs) (laughs) A priest... A minister and a rabbit walk into a bar. The rabbit says, I think I'm a typo. (laughs) That's cute. That's cute. So a little old lady brings four cans of cat food to the checkout counter. And the girl at the register says, I'm sorry, ma'am, but we can't sell you cat food without proof that you have a cat. A lot of old people buy cat food, and they eat it themselves. So the manager says, we need to ask for proof that you're buying the cat food for a cat. Well, a little old lady goes home and gets her cat and carries it back to the store, and they sell it a cat food. Next day, she brings four cans of dog food to the checkout counter. The cashier says, I'm sorry, ma'am. We can't sell you dog food 
without proof that you have a dog. A lot of people buy dog food and they eat it themselves. So the manager says, we need to ask for proof that you're buying dog food for a dog. Mm-hmm. So the lady goes home, puts the dog in her grandson's red wagon, pulls it to the store. They see it and they sell her dog food. Next day, the lady comes back to the store and she goes into the manager's office and puts a box with a hole in the lid on his desk. And she says, stick one of your fingers in that hole. And the manager sticks one of his fingers in the hole in the box and pulls it out. She says, now smell your finger. <laughs> and he sniffs his finger. He says, that smells like shit. She says, it, it, it is. I need three rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Great. A guy says to the bartender, God damn it, my girlfriend's getting fat. The bartender says, How fat? He says, Last night I fucked my wife. (laughs) (laughs) A cop comes to the window of a truck that's wedged under an overpass. And he says, you stuck? The driver says, no, Einstein, I was delivering this bridge and I ran out of fucking gas. (laughs) (laughs) So a guy says to the bartender, yesterday a girl came in for a job, you know, and right in the middle of the interview, she gets down on her knees, pulls out my cock, starts sucking like mad. After a while, sticks a finger deep up my ass. Of course, I couldn't hold back. Just about to unload, she pulls back. Jesus Christ, I shot all over her face. Hmm. Oh, it was wild. Bartender says, so did you hire her? He says, nah, I need somebody who can type. So here's a pickup scene. Yeah. Here's a pickup scene in a transgender bar. Oh, boy. Come on now. Behave. Hey, I'll show you where yours used to be if you'll show me where mine used to be. Oh, <laughs> All right. A guy's out duck hunting. And he's got to take a leak. So he leans his shotgun against the tree. A gust of wind blows the gun over. Boom! The shotgun goes off. He gets shot in the crotch. He wakes up in the hospital bed, and the doctor says, well, I got good news and bad news. The good news is the only wounds were to your genital area. And we were able to get all the buckshot out of there. We removed every bit of the the buckshot. Guy says, well, what's the bad news? He says, well... A lot of the buckshot hits you right in your cock. So I'm going to have to refer you to my brother. The guy says, well, is your brother a plastic surgeon? He says, nah, he plays flute. He's going to teach you where to put your fingers so you don't piss all over (laughs) (laughs) So why did Sulu blow the Klingon? Why? Why? He's a queer. <laughs> oh, Jackie, come on. 
that? Come on. Come on, Jackie. It's 2020. <laughs> yeah, he's, and he's still a queer. Oh, come on, Jackie. Come on now. So grandma, grandma sits down in a big chair and she says to her granddaughter, Mary, Mary, grandma's got a tattoo of a mouse on the inside of her leg. Y- you want to see it? She says, sure, grandma. <laughs> grandma lifts up her skirt and she says, fuck, it's not there. I, I guess my pussy ate it. <laughs> <laughs> For endless jokes, say, Alexa, play Jackie Martling. Follow Jackie on Twitter at Jackie Martling. Jokes every day at 420 p.m. International Marijuana Time. You want personalized videos, go to cameo.com forward slash Jackie Martling. Instant fun called Jackie's Dirty Joke Line. Use your finger, 516-922-WINE. Or go to Jokeland at AOL.com. Just email Jokeland at AOL.com, and you'll get jokes sent to you by email every day. Thank you, Jackie. Why don't Polish people eat M&Ms? <laughs> Why? Too tough to peel. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So a couple walks into a restaurant, and the hostess says, How many in your party? The guy says, it's just me and my wife, and it's no fucking party. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Stay on the line. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. 